Welcome to the mop-up for August 8th, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 87 degrees and sunny. So they say I'm in an air shaft. Uh, I have to check the clock to know if it's night or day. I'm not affected by weather, so I couldn't really care less what the climate is. I might as well be a Republican. Well, the Senate passed that big climate bill, or as it's called, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is crammed with all sorts of goodies to combat climate change and make certain the rich finally pay their fair share of taxes. How are they going to do that? How are we going to get the rich to finally pay their fair share of taxes? Well, by pumping $80 billion into our severely underfunded Internal Revenue Service. But Republicans do not want the IRS to function properly. That's part of their no new taxes strategy dating back to Reagan. No new taxes. They don't want to defund the police unless it's the police who want them to obey the law. Republicans want lower taxes and the taxes they can't lower, they try not to pay by defunding the IRS, which they have succeeded in doing. For Republicans, crime is only on the streets. Here is Donald Trump last week at CPAC. We also need a no-holds-barred national campaign to dismantle organized crimes. These are street crimes. Organized crime today is on the streets. And this administration doesn't want to talk about that crime. They want to talk about what they think are other crimes. And many people say they're not crimes. Right, right. Many people say they're not they're not uh, they're not crimes. Right. On today's show, we're going to be talking about how it's the Republican Party's uh, fault uh, for defunding the police. The left does not want to defund the police. Not at all. The GOP, it's their fault. The police are being defunded. The GOP only cares about crime on the street enforced by local police officers. They don't give a rat's ass about uh, rich people or corporations uh, committing crimes like not paying their taxes. And these are the real crimes. They result in hunger, crumbling bridges and schools, and people die because people don't pay their taxes. Uh, we need people to pay their taxes so we can enforce the laws that protect us from banks, unscrupulous lenders and realtors. But Republicans, they don't care about enforcing that law because they want to balance the budget, right? But if you really want to balance the budget, you need a fully functioning Internal Revenue Service. It is estimated that for every dollar you spend on the IRS, $10 comes back in the way of taxes. You cannot collect taxes without collectors. You cannot collect taxes if your computer system runs on a 1960s operating system called COBOL. No idea what that is, but it's what our IRS is running on. And that's not a mistake, right? The GOP has seen to it that the people who collect our taxes are understaffed and they have to work with antiquated tools. According to the Washington Post, the Internal Revenue Service 
had 12 years ago 100,000 employees. Today, it has roughly 80,000. That's why the rich are rarely audited, and Republicans love that. They want that. They set the IRS up that way. Half of all IRS audits target Americans earning $75,000 a year or less. Corporations and the rich rarely get audited because corporations and the rich have high power tax attorneys who can tie these audits up for years. Just like our criminal justice system, it's it's the IRS. It's just like our criminal justice system. It, It only goes after people who can't afford lawyers or at least good lawyers. Now, the past two weeks, the Republicans have been incensed that this new climate bill pays for itself, right? This is, they are so angry. Republicans always say, we can't afford this. We can't afford anything. We can't afford it. Well, what they won't say is we can't afford it if everyone paid their fair share of taxes. And the only way you can get people to pay their taxes is through law enforcement. The IRS is law enforcement. If you're for law and order, then you are for the criminal enforcement of our tax laws. Americans are supposed to go to prison for failure to pay their taxes. It's how they got Al Capone. So this new climate bill, which Biden is expected to sign later this week, will pay for itself by adding new internal revenue service agents who will specifically target corporations and the rich. And Republicans hate this because Republicans work for the rich. It is the job of Republican lawmakers to demonize the IRS to ordinary Americans. The Washington Post reported yesterday that Republican Senator John Thune complained that we shouldn't be throwing money at the IRS because they only answered one out of every 50 calls during the 2021 tax season. Well, whose fault is that? It's the Republicans. They've left the IRS underfunded. You see how it works? Ordinary Americans are trained to hate the IRS because they are led to believe it's inefficient. But what Republicans don't tell ordinary Americans is that the Republicans have made it inefficient in order for Americans, ordinary Americans, to hate it. And who benefits from ordinary Americans hating the IRS? Not ordinary Americans, just the rich. Republicans know exactly what they're doing. Demonize the IRS, then cut the funding even more so ordinary Americans hate the IRS even more. And most ordinary Americans lack critical thinking because, you know, without people paying taxes, we can't afford schooling. So Americans lose the ability to think critically. And they they say, yeah, the IRS is just another example of government inefficiency. No, the IRS is another example of a government agency that has been gutted by law-breaking Republicans who are paid by the richest 1% to make sure the richest 1% don't pay their fair share of taxes. 
Again, Republicans dating back to 1968, when Nixon was running for president, have been the party of, quote unquote, law and order. But only the laws they care about, only the laws that keep the 99 percent obedient and in the dark, only the laws that keep our streets free from protesters. Republicans support the local police and only the local police because the local police protect property and the wealthy. But Republicans don't support any other law enforcement agencies like the Internal Revenue Service. They're defunding the Internal Revenue Service. Republicans hate the police. They want to defund every single law enforcement agency except the local police because the local police protect property and the wealthy. That's all the local police do. I've gone over the numbers. They don't solve or prevent crime. Something like 2% of all felonies are solved and prosecuted by local police when it comes to rape. Fewer than 1% of rapes are prosecuted by the police because local police, they're not in the business of preventing or stopping crime. Their job is to protect property and the wealthy, right? To prevent chaos from cutting into the profits of store owners and people who own property, Right? That's the only law and order, the only policing the Republicans care about. I played this on Friday. Here again is Republican Senator John Barrasso lying. He is a liar. John Barrasso is a liar. Here he is lying about this new climate bill that will beef up the Internal Revenue Service. And you go through this whole bill, what do you see? You see the IRS being empowered to hire many more auditors. 86,000 more IRS agents. What do they want to do? They're going to audit people. We're talking about families and farmers and small businesses, making it much harder for families to get by. The burden of what they're placing on the American families is just absolutely awful. No, what's absolutely awful is that you're a liar. The IRS specifically said that the new funding will not target the poor or the small business owners, it will specifically target the rich. Well, the Republicans, it, you're a liar. Barrasso is a liar and a doctor from Yale. The Republicans march in lockstep. Their new talking point is to lie about this new increased funding for the Internal Revenue Service. They lie and say it'll increase the number of middle-class people getting audited. It won't, it's a lie. They are claiming that the IRS has been weaponized, they use the term weaponized, by the Biden administration. We are now supposed to be terrified of the Internal Revenue Service because they have weapons. Well, yes, they've always had weapons. The IRS is law enforcement. The IRS has a criminal division. It's dangerous working for the IRS. You need Guns that, you know, the IRS is how Al Capone got locked up. IRA, 
IRS agents get people arrested. It's how you enforce tax law by arresting people. And some people, especially mobsters, money launderers, drug dealers, sovereign citizens who tend to be Republican, uh, they don't want to pay their taxes. And so the IRS, they need weapons to enforce tax law. But now the GOP is complaining that the IRS is being weaponized. The GOP wants everybody armed, but not the government. They're for law and order. And yet they want everybody armed except the government. So let's start with the bottom of the barrel. Here's Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene being a good soldier for the rich at last week's CPAC. But we don't need 70,000 new IRS, armed IRS agents. This is terrifying. No, we need 70,000 armed school teachers. That's not terrifying. Uh, No, we don't need 70,000 armed IRS agents in order to protect themselves from money launderers, drug dealers, and mobsters. Who's a good little lapdog for the wealthy? Marjorie Taylor Greene is. Yes, you are. Okay, by the way, People have been shooting at revenuers or tax collectors since the 19th century. You know, damn revenue, damn revenuers uh, coming out into the woods and forcing me to pay taxes for all that whiskey I make with my still. That's right. The tax collector needs guns because uh, people shoot at them. People who think, you know, I need a gun to protect myself from those infernal IRS agents making me pay for all the roads and bridges I drive on to go to the gun store and rifle range. Here is Tucker Carlson. He's trying desperately to convince Fox viewers that this new Climate Reduction Act isn't about saving the planet. It's about taking away our freedoms because it'll weaponize, it will weaponize the IRS. So when they start treating the IRS as a military agency, you should be very worried. And that's exactly what the U.S. government is doing. In 2018, the Government Accountability Office reported that more than 2,000 IRS enforcement agents have more than 4,000 weapons, guns that kill people, remember? The IRS is also stockpiling more than 5 million rounds of ammunition. In 2020, the watchdog organization OpenTheBooks.com reported the IRS has spent more than $20 million on guns and ammo between 2006 and 2019. So Tucker Carlson seems confused as to why the IRS would need weapons. He's confused. Who better to clear things up than Florida Congressman Matt Gates, Congressman Matt Gates. Here is Matt Gates explaining it all to Tucker Carlson. Joe Biden is raising taxes, disarming Americans. So, of course, they are arming up the IRS like they're preparing to take Fallujah. Like you mentioned, five million rounds of ammunition, 4,500 firearms, automatic weapons, and $731,000 of taxpayer money spent this year to quite literally weaponize your government against you. Matt Gates wants to protect law-abiding citizens from an overly intrusive government that sticks its nose into your private business. You know, like wanting to know why you pay to transport underage girls across state lines for the purpose of having sex with them and then writing it off as a business expense, Matt Gates, But, you know, it's all political, you see. 
that's how what you know Matt Gates is eventually going to get arrested for statutory rape. But when the police want to arrest Matt Gates for statutory rape, then it's political. That's the politicization of law enforcement. But Matt doesn't want the IRS carrying weapons because, you know, why should the IRS carry weapons? There's never been a problem for IRS agents with drug dealers, money launderers and mobsters threatening the lives of IRS agents. Republicans want to get rid of the Internal Revenue Service. The only law enforcement the Republicans want is keeping poor people terrified. If the if law enforcement keeps poor people terrified and compliant, they're for it. And they love police that goes after what they call thugs, which is code for black people. Uh, we need to stop spending money on the FBI the Justice Department and the IRS and only spend money on more police. This is uh, more of Matt Gates. So it's not really that Joe Biden and the Democrats hate guns. They just right. hate law abiding exactly. Americans having them and they take the money from the people to go and have their own little private arsenals. And it's particularly egregious from a country that militarizes its bureaucracies and then forces its grandmothers to go and fend for themselves on dangerous streets because they defund the police and have cashless bail and other hug a thug woke criminal justice policies. That's, That's exactly why I'm introducing right. legislation to stop it. Well, God bless you. <laughs> God bless you. What a good Christian, Tucker Carlson. God bless you. God bless you, Matt Gates, for all you do. This is the way it works. Republicans stand for law and order so long as it's police officers keeping poor people in line. But when the police keep rich people in line, then it's an overly intrusive government and we need guns to protect ourselves from an overly intrusive government. So while the Republicans complained about the IRS enforcing the law last week, they also took exception to the Justice Department enforcing the law that law enforcement enforce the law and not break it. Here is Fox's Laura Ingram lying and then complaining about our Justice Department's decision last week to charge four Louisville, Kentucky police officers with violating Breonna Taylor's civil rights when they shot the African-American emergency room technician in her own home after illegally breaking into it. This is the racist Laura Ingram. Officers who accidentally shot and killed Breonna Taylor after being fired upon by her boyfriend, they were cleared of any wrongdoing. But now Biden and Garland are coming after them. Well, so what's going on here? The full story behind the left's continued war in police. Yes, the left's continued war on the police. First off, as I talked about on Friday's show, the Louisville police didn't accidentally shoot Breonna Taylor after her boyfriend fired at them. The Louisville police were carrying out an illegal no-knock raid in the middle of the night, and her boyfriend, because these were seven plainclothes police officers who didn't announce themselves, her boyfriend exercised his so-called constitutional right, the Castle Doctrine, to fire a warning shot. Somehow, the police kicking in the door of an African-American woman and shooting at her death is not an overly intrusive government for Republicans like Laura Ingram.
right? Because she's black. Here is the overly intrusive Attorney General Merrick Garland intruding on Laura Ingram's constitutional right to trivialize the police killing unarmed black women. This is Merrick Garland explaining that, no, those four police officers have not been cleared and that Laura Ingram is lying. We allege that the defendants knew their actions in falsifying the affidavit could create a dangerous situation. And we allege these unlawful acts resulted in Ms. Taylor's death. The charges announced today also alleged that the officers responsible for falsifying the affidavit that led to the search took steps to cover up their unlawful conduct after Ms. Taylor was killed. We allege that defendants Jaynes and Goodlett conspired to knowingly falsify an investigative document that was created after Ms. Taylor's death. We also allege that they conspired to mislead federal, state, and local authorities who were investigating the incident. For example, we allege that in May 2020, those two defendants met in a garage where they agreed to tell investigators a false story. This indictment separately alleges that defendant Meany lied to the FBI during its investigation of this matter. The police lied. There was a story in the New York Post over the weekend about thousands of police officers taking sergeant's exams here in New York City and cheating, lying on their sergeant exams, which comes naturally to New York police officers because police lie. And those four Louisville cops are liars, but so is Laura Ingram. They lie, she lied, Republicans lie. And because the police only lied about killing a black woman, Laura Ingram wants them to be left alone. Laura Ingram, like the entire Republican Party, has a storied history of professing their Christianity as well as their contempt for minorities. That's why Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban was flown into Texas last week to speak before CPAC and told Christian Republicans who are racist they have nothing, nothing to worry about. Don't worry, a Christian politician cannot be racist. Don't worry, a Christian politician cannot be racist. Well, then I guess you can do anything you want. If you're a politician and you're a, a Christian, you can't be racist. Victor Orban is the racist Tucker Carlson's favorite politician. Victor Orban is the longest serving prime minister in Europe. He opposes immigrants. He calls his country Hungary a Christian nation and proudly refers to Hungary as an illiberal democracy. The European Union temporarily threw Hungary out because Orban was attacking the press and his own democracy. But conservatives in America love him because he's anti-migrant, he's anti-immigrant. He is always professing that he and Hungary are Christians. Hungary's a Christian nation. He's a Christian. He constantly says he opposes the mixing of the races. And he is successful. He is successful politically. Here he, at, here he is at uh, CPAC uh, explaining why he's so successful. Another factor of our success is 
that my government is devoted to law and order without compromise. Yes, law and order without compromise. Uh, yeah. Uh, he won't compromise on law and order. Unless you're talking about law and order for Victor Orban and his cronies, in which case, compromise away. That's why Hungary is a kleptocracy. Hungary is a kleptocracy. Mr. Law and Order has created a kleptocracy. That's not me. That's The Economist back in 2018. Here's the headline. The EU is tolerating and enabling, oh, I made a mistake, authoritarian kleptocracy in Hungary. This is a story from 2018, how Viktor Orban campaigns against the EU from Monday to Friday and collects its subsidies on the weekends. Okay, so uh, he's running a kleptocracy. He's shouting law and order while running a kleptocracy. And that exact that's exactly what Trump, the GOP and CPAC want America to be more of. We're already an authoritarian kleptocracy, and that's what CPAC wants more of, an authoritarian kleptocracy that allows the rich to steal as much as they can from the government, and through authoritarianism, through police officers and extrajudicial militia, ordinary Americans become too frightened to complain. This is what Conservatives at CPAC last week meant by law and order. Steal from the masses and make sure the masses are too frightened by the police to say anything. Right? Victor Orban, right? We need to be uh, tough. We need to support our police. Right, Victor Orban? We decided we don't need more genders, we need more rangers. <laughs> Less drag queens and more Chuck Norris. <laughs> we, believe, we believe there is no freedom without order. If there is no order, you get chaos. In Hungary, law enforcement agencies are not people's enemy. They are the guardians of freedom. Therefore, law should not protect criminals, but protect the victims and those who are defending the law. Police should be well respected. So, <laughs> law and order. He's all for law and order. Uh, police should be respected. Not just respected, but feared because that's how you maintain law and order. Law enforcement agencies are not people's enemy. They are the guardians of freedom. Guardians of freedom, and by freedom, the freedom to steal from the government while not paying any taxes. Freedom for the kleptocrats. Victor Orban doesn't love law enforcement. Uh, they actually fear law enforcement because they are white-collar criminals. Everybody in the Republican Party supports white-collar criminals. They don't support poor people, and they use the police, law and odor, to keep poor people in line. 
they want the Republicans, the conservatives, CPAC, they want to defund law enforcement and pour money into policing only the poor. It used to be sub Rosa. Now, like everything in the Republican Party, it's out in the open. The GOP now is openly talking about defunding the Justice Department and the FBI. The Democrats, Republicans claim, want to defund the police. No, it's Republicans who want to defund the police. They want to gut the Internal Revenue Service, the FBI, and the Justice Department. Here is Arizona Republican Congressman Andy Biggs, who asked Donald Trump for a blanket pardon after January 6th. Here he is talking at CPAC over the weekend about defunding the FBI and the police because the FBI, uh, I'm sorry, he wants to defund the FBI and the Justice Department, not the police. He wants to defund the FBI and the Justice Department because the FBI and the Justice Department are looking into the role Congressman Andy Biggs played in the insurrection. Congressman Andy Biggs. You, and that's what you do is you, you start defunding some of these bad agencies, the FBI, yeah. the DOJ. You use the Holman rule to de- defund people who have abused their power. Yes, the people who have abused their powers like trying to lock up seditionists like Congressman Andy Biggs for coming up with the Stop the Steal rally. He would never say defund local law enforcement because local law enforcement only locks up poor people. But the Justice Department, the FBI, they're going after Andy Big, right? They've been politicized. They've been politicized, so they must be defunded. Here is Donald Trump over the weekend in Wisconsin. We are a nation that has weaponized its law enforcement like never before against the opposing political party. They send their law enforcement out to get them because they can't beat us at the polls. So let's lock them up. Lock them up. I wonder. hmm, I've never heard him say that before. Uh, Yeah. Steve Bannon was pardoned by Trump. But now he faces a year in jail after being found guilty last month for contempt of Congress. So he's looking at another prison sentence. So naturally, he doesn't want to defund the local police because, you know, he's all in on law and odor. He does, however, want to defund the Justice Department and the FBI because it's been politicized. You see, when Trump and Steve Bannon or Andy Biggs are being prosecuted, suddenly law enforcement like the FBI has been politicized. Okay, if you are at the forefront of this movement, look at what they're doing to President Trump. They understand they can't beat him at the ballot box. They can't beat his energy. They can't beat his vision. They're coming after him with a death by a thousand cuts legally, right? They're trying to put him in jail to make sure he cannot run again in 2024 and be the rightful president he should be right now. They couldn't beat him at the ballot box. Uh, They beat him at the ballot box 
And then he committed a series of crimes trying to steal the election. And that's why the FBI and the Justice Department is coming for Donald Trump. Well, FBI Director Christopher Wray testified before the Senate last week, and Ted Cruz was very concerned about the politicization of our FBI. Here is Ted Cruz. Director Wray, I'm deeply concerned that the FBI and the Department of Justice have become thoroughly politicized. I think this is a problem that began during the Obama administration. I think it metastasized with career officials during the Trump administration, and I think it continues and is even worse today under the Biden administration. I don't believe you personally reflect that politicization, but I think you've been unwilling to root it out and unwilling to hold people accountable for the politicization. I hear regularly from FBI agents and from professionals at the Department of Justice who are dismayed that our law enforcement has been weaponized and politicized rather than remaining apolitical as it has been for the history of our country. Uh, that's Ted Cruz saying that the FBI, up until Obama and Biden, had been apolitical since its inception. Uh, yeah. Uh, so Ted Cruz went to Princeton and then Harvard Law, but nobody taught him history. He says the FBI has been apolitical throughout its history, you know, except for when it infiltrated the labor movement, especially the IWW and pretty much put it out of business. Apolitical, right, Ted Cruz, except when it set up COINTELPRO to spy on leftists, communists, socialists to spy on Dr. Martin Luther King, send him notes, telling him to kill himself. That's what the FBI did. That's the, your apolitical FBI. They sent uh, Dr. King's wife audio and pictures of Dr. King in compromising situations. Yes, the apolitical FBI has never been politicized until Biden and Obama. Yes, uh, you know, except when J. Edgar Hoover in the 60s called Dr. King a notorious liar, except when the FBI in the 60s refused to investigate uh, church bombings, the assassinations of uh, civil rights leaders. And then, of course, there was Black Panther leader Fred Hampton. Here is Amy Goodman from Democracy Now!, telling us about the apolitical FBI and the role the apolitical FBI played in the death of Black Panther leader Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton was killed December 4th, 1969, when Chicago police raided his apartment and shot and killed him in his own bed. Black Panther leader Mark Clark was also killed by police in that raid. Authorities initially claimed the Panthers had opened fire on the police, who were there to serve a search warrant for weapons. Evidence later emerged that told a very different story. The FBI, the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, and Chicago police had conspired to assassinate Fred Hampton. Now, several hundred pages of FBI memos and reports obtained by historian and writer Aaron Leonard through a Freedom of Information Act request document that the director of the FBI's Domestic Intelligence Division, William Sullivan, 
and the head of the extremist section of the Domestic Intelligence Division, George Moore, both played key roles in planning the raid and the cover-up that followed. Yes, Ted Cruz's nostalgic for the apolitical FBI, led by J. Edgar Hoover, who called Dr. King a notorious liar and the most dangerous man in America. Well, Josh Hawley, Senator Josh Hawley, is concerned about the politicization of the FBI, all because of this new gun law that's been passed. You know, the FBI has always been tasked with doing background checks. And now, because of this new gun law that Biden got passed, it's going to be tasked with even more background checks. You know, they want to find out why serial killers are buying weapons. Here is Senator Josh Hawley clenching his fist and wanting to know why the FBI is so overly intrusive. Uh, Director Ray, I sent you a letter last week about the FBI's decision to try to obtain sensitive personal information related to concealed carry permits in the state of Missouri. I've got the letter right here. Have you read this? I have had a chance to, to glance to glance at it. Yes. Good. So let, let's talk a little bit about it. Uh, why is the FBI attempting to audit concealed carry permit records in the state of Missouri? Hmm. Why is the FBI uh, running background checks on people who want concealed carry permits uh, in Missouri? What could it be? What is, let's see now, Josh Hawley went to Yale Law School. Uh, why would the FBI be doing background checks on people who want concealed carry permits? Because that's the job of the FBI. You know, the that's their job. The FBI runs background checks, Josh Hawley, and you just run. Uh, by the way, I have uh, video of... Uh, of Josh Hawley uh, on January 6th. Real macho man. He's writing a book, by the way, on masculinity. Josh Hawley, because he's, he's all man. Well, the FBI has always been a political organization. What we're saying is a battle for control over it. The same way there's a battle for control over the Internal Revenue Service. Unfortunately, the IRS belongs to the wealthy. The wealthy won control of the IRS. And now with this climate bill, the Democrats are trying to take some of that control back. What but is so obvious is that Republicans are liars and they will say and do whatever it takes to make sure the rich don't pay taxes. That's why they are sent to Washington same-sex marriage, the, you know, Christians under assault, Israel, caravans of illegals or crime in the streets. They work those issues to distract the American people from what the real job of Republican lawmakers is, and that is to make sure that the people paying the Republican politician salary, the richest 1%, don't pay taxes. They will say and do anything to keep the IRS and other government agencies off the backs of corporations and the rich. 
That's the job of Republican lawmakers to make sure the government, which is 30% of our economy, gives the rich, not doesn't take from the rich, gives to the rich. That's the job of Republican lawmakers to make sure the government, which is 30% of our economy, gives to the rich, not take from the rich. The rich take from the government in the form of tax subsidies or government contracts, right? I've talked about this. Jeff Bezos pays no taxes, but Amazon gets billions upon billions of dollars in government contracts. Who do you think is doing the the cloud for the federal government? Amazon. Uh, The Republicans aren't defunding the government. They're redirecting government spending away from the people who need it and giving it to those who don't, like Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. Unfortunately, it's not just Republicans. It's also some Democrats, like Chuck Schumer, who's not just some Democrat. He's the leader in the Senate, (laughs) you know, and Arizona's Kirsten Sinema, who personally saved the carried interest loophole last week. Kirsten Sinema from Arizona. Now, for decades, private equity firms and hedge fund managers have taken advantage of something called the carried interest loophole on their taxes. I have no idea what it means you're not supposed to, but it allows financiers who don't create jobs, who destroy jobs, financiers who trade pieces of paper, the carried interest loophole allows them to pay a lower tax rate than you and I. It's unfair. Now, contained within that new Inflation Reduction Act was a proviso, proviso, proviso was a, uh, an amendment to end this loophole. But Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, representing the people of Arizona, because you know people from Arizona love the carried interest loophole. I mean, they'll secede from the union if, if you get rid of the carried interest loophole for hedge fund managers. Kirsten Sinema from Arizona only agreed to sign on to that bill unless the giveaway to hedge fund managers and private equity managers remained on the books, right? She saved the carried interest loophole. Congratulations, a job well done representing the people of Arizona. I would, I mean, you, if, if you ask Arizonians, what are you more likely to revolt over? Taking away assault weapons or taking away the carried interest loophole? It's the carried interest loophole. That is going to cause the people of Arizona to revolt. Well, uh, the Financial Times did an investigation and it revealed something uh, kind of interesting 
about Kirsten Cinema. Uh, during the 2022 election cycle, the the good senator, the Democrat from Arizona, Kirsten Cinema, has received nearly half a million dollars so far from private equity. And last week, she earned every penny. Private equity's best investment. They gave $500,000 to Kirsten Cinema, and they got back billions in tax savings because she kept the carried interest loophole for them. She got $54,900 this year from KKR, their uh, hedge fund or private equity. My favorite, the Carlisle Group, David Rubenstein's The Carlisle Group, gave her $35,000 this year. Apollo gave her $27,000. Crow Holdings Capital gave her $24,500. Riverside Partners gave her $23,300. Way to serve the people of Arizona. It is impossible to count all those jobs in Arizona created by private equity firms on Wall Street because there are none. That's why it's impossible. Unfortunately, it's not just Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema. The Financial Times also reports today that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer from New York is also a recipient of private equity money. Let's see. Uh, Cinema is, this is from the Financial Times. Cinema is not the only Democrat to have received funds from the private equity industry. Executives at groups, including Blackstone, KKR, and Lazard, have also collectively donated $1.28 million to New York Senator Chuck Schumer, the top Democrat in the Senate, representing about 4.4% of his fundraising from individual donors this cycle. In the past year, he's collected $1.288 million from private equity. This is from the, I'm reading from the Financial Times. That's, by the way, I've watched other podcasters who just read from newspapers, but don't tell you they're plagiarizing. I am now reading from the Financial Times. Quote, a spokesman for Schumer said he was a longtime champion of closing the carried interest loophole, adding that he had, quote, worked until the very end to try to keep the provision in the legislation and will continue to seek opportunities to eliminate it. Sure, sure. And a spokesman for Cinema said she had been clear and consistent for more than a year that she will only support tax reforms and revenue options that support Arizona's economic growth and competitiveness. Well, Kirsten Cinema is a liar because private equity firms do not help Arizona. They destroy Arizona. They destroy jobs. They destroy jobs. What they do is they buy shopping malls and then just sell them, just sell them off for the copper. They buy, oh, I don't know, Toys R Us, using debt, and then to pay off the debt, they saddle Toys R Us with the debt, and then they pay off that debt by 
laying off workers, selling off real estate, and of course, of course, raiding the pension fund. Private equity doesn't create jobs. It destroys jobs. You're a liar, Kirsten Cinema. You're a liar. Well, Chuck Schumer got money from Blackstone, one of the most evil uh, private equity funds, uh, one of the most evil hedge funds in the world. They invest in fossil fuels. They refuse to divest themselves from fossil fuels. Chuck Schumer and Blackstone go way, way back. They not only donate to Chuck Schumer, Chuck Schumer's son-in-law, Michael Shapiro, know this name because I'm going to be talking now about Michael Shapiro. His name is Michael Shapiro. What is his name? His name is Michael Shapiro, and he's Chuck Schumer's son-in-law, and his name is Michael Shapiro, okay? He graduated from both Yale and Princeton, and he's taken a job with Blackstone, one of the most evil private equity hedge funds in the world. Michael Shapiro, that would be Chuck Schumer's son-in-law, whose name is Michael Shapiro, has now taken a job with Blackstone. And what Michael Shapiro, what he's done that's even worse is his previous job, and by his, I mean Chuck Schumer's son-in-law, Michael Shapiro, he just quit his job, he being Michael Shapiro, Chuck Schumer's son-in-law, he just quit his job as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy inside Joe Biden's and Pete Buttigieg's Department of Transportation. I'm quizzing you. Who was Deputy Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy inside the Department of Transportation up until a few weeks ago? That would be Michael Shapiro, Donald Trump's, not Donald Trump, uh, uh, Chuck Schumer's son-in-law. Why would Michael Shapiro... Chuck Schumer's son-in-law go from the Department of Tra Transportation to Blackstone. Why would Blackstone want Michael Shapiro? Well, last year, the bipartisan infrastructure bill was signed into law. And guess who gets to hand out most of that government largesse? The Department of Transportation. You know, where Michael Shapiro, Chuck Schumer's son-in-law, worked up until a few days ago. So he could go now. Now he goes to work for Blackstone, one of the largest private equity groups in the world that donates handsomely to his not-so-handsome father-in-law, Chuck Schumer. The bipartisan infrastructure bill. This is what the Republicans wanted. This is what the Joe Manchin wanted. The bipartisan infrastructure bill passed last year earmarked more than $600 billion for the Department of Transportation to administer and distribute. Chuck Schumer's son-in-law, what's his name? I can't remember. Oh, right. Michael Shapiro. 
He worked over at the Department of Transportation. But now, instead of administering and distributing that $600 billion from the bipartisan infrastructure bill, Chuck Schumer's son-in-law, Michael Shapiro, decided instead to take a job with Blackstone to make sure his, and by his, I mean Michael Shapiro's, his buddies, who were stupid enough to still keep working over the Department of Transportation, administering and distributing all that infrastructure money. Uh, he took a job with Blackstone to make sure they administered and distributed some of that $600 billion to Blackstone. That's what Michael Shapiro is doing now. He quit his job over at the Department of Transportation and went to work to make sure that the department for Blackstone to make sure that the Department of Transportation was administering and distributing some of your tax dollars, 600 billion of your tax dollars over to Blackstone. And let's not forget all that privileged information Michael Shapiro possesses, having worked for the Department of uh, the Department of Transportation before and right after they were given more than $600 billion to administer and distribute. How is that legal? How, how is that even ethical? You know, if you're Chuck Schumer, you say to your son-in-law, Michael Shapiro, you know, go get a job. Can't you go get a job somewhere else? Uh, instead, Michael Shapiro didn't. He, uh, he decided not to be a patriotic American and stick around to make sure our Department of Transportation administered and distributed that $600 billion properly. Uh, that Chuck Schumer, you know, Chuck Schumer was personally responsible for the bipartisan infrastructure law. And, uh, you know, you would think somebody from Princeton and Yale, like his son-in-law, Michael Shapiro, would use his education to help administer and uh, spend that $600 billion properly. We need the best and the brightest from Princeton and Yale. People like Michael Shapiro to, to guarantee that $600 billion isn't wasted, but instead... Michael Shapiro, Chuck Schumer's son-in-law, who graduated from Princeton and Yale, uh, Michael Shapiro, Chuck Schumer's son-in-law, he headed over to Blackstone to make sure that that $600 billion is in fact wasted on people like Blackstone. Uh, hmm. Well, Blackstone assured reporters that Schumer's son-in-law, Michael Shapiro, will never lobby his father-in-law. Instead, he will lobby all the people over at the Department of Transportation, who he made friends with while he was there, and, uh, and you know what Blackstone says Michael Shapiro's portfolio is? This is... Michael Shapiro's portfolio over at Blackstone. It's not to be a lobbyist. It's to specialize in 
infrastructure investments and <laughs> projects. That's all he's tasked to do over at Blackstone, right? Just his portfolio is, quote, infrastructure investments and projects. Yeah, the Department of Transportation has nothing to do with infrastructure investments and projects, right? The bipartisan infrastructure bill that gave $600 billion to the Department of Transportation, right? That $600 billion has nothing to do with infrastructure investments and projects. Yeah, he won't lobby his father-in-law, Chuck Schumer. Instead, Michael Shapiro will lobby his old boss, Pete Buttigieg, on behalf of Blackstone. How is this ethical? How is this legal? Why are we not calling Chuck Schumer's office? I will get Chuck Schumer's phone number and uh, tell him to fire his son-in-law. I, I, I demand that Chuck Schumer order his idiot daughter to divorce that idiot husband, Michael Shapiro. I will not vote for Chuck Schumer unless he commands that his idiot daughter divorce Michael Shapiro. Schumer has two idiot daughters, both graduated from Harvard. One of the idiots is a lobbyist for Amazon. The other works for Facebook. This is, uh, do you understand why ordinary Americans hate Pelosi, Schumer, and Biden? This shit is just as bad as Hunter Biden. It's, it's, it's the same thing. It's only, it lacks the crack and the prostitutes and the Pornhub videos. But it's the same grift. There's no difference between Hunter Biden and Chuck Schumer's idiot son-in-law. They're grifters. Call Chuck Schumer's office right now and tell him to fire his son-in-law, Michael Shapiro. Why can't these pieces of shit, and they are by definition pieces of shit, Michael Shapiro, Chuck Schumer's son-in-law, is a piece of shit. He can't work anyplace else, right? He, he can't, he's got the degree from Harvard. He's got the degree from Yale. You know, maybe be a patriot and stay at the Department of Transportation or wait till, uh, the $600 billion has been dispersed by the Department of Infrastructure, the Department of Transportation, or maybe wait until Joe Biden leaves office and then go through the revolving door. But to go through the revolving door a year and a half into the Biden administration while this infrastructure, the bipartisan infrastructure bill is just getting started, that has to be illegal. That has to be illegal. Well, it's called the Inflation Reduction Act. And unfortunately, you know, it passed. I'm okay with it. Bernie isn't okay with it. Uh, it's not okay enough. But in, in a summer 
of nothing but bad, like Olivia Newton-John just passed away. And uh, later on in the show, I will talk about one of the happiest moments of my life, uh, sitting next to Olivia Newton-John. Uh, Conan flew me, when I did Conan, they would fly me first class sometimes, and they flew me first class, and I sat next to Olivia Newton-John, and it was the sixth, six happiest hours of my life, sitting next to Olivia Newton-John. Wow. Uh, what was I talking about? The Inflation Reduction Act. What a sweet woman. I just sat next to her for... What a sweet woman. Uh, well, <clears throat> the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, it's just okay. It's just okay. Unless you're rich, and in rich case, it's fantastic because nothing passes in Washington unless it benefits the rich. We've talked about this. We are, by definition, an oligarchy. They did a study, and I don't know, I think uh, Professor Hussein has talked about this. Uh, other people, I think Marianne Cummings has talked about this. I think it was Rutgers or Princeton did a study of every piece of legislation that come that came out of Washington, D.C., and, and they discovered that not a single piece of legislation passes unless it gets the unless it's approved by the wealthiest one percent, unless there unless the Chamber of Commerce or some uh, lobbyist for the one percent greenlights it. We're an oligarchy. Uh, so that's the Inflation Reduction Act, which has been approved by the oligarchy. Uh, but not Bernie, not Bernie, who almost won the Democratic nomination in 2020. Uh, Bernie doesn't get what he wants. But Joe Manchin, who represents West Virginia, has more say as to what goes into uh, this bill than Bernie, who uh, America almost made president. Uh, the reason this bill passed in its iteration and Bernie's iteration of the bill didn't is because Bernie's iteration was called Build Back Better and it would have spent money on a social safety net. It would have increased money for public housing, which I'm going to talk about in a second. Yes, we have time. It would have extended tax benefits to families with children. It would have spent billions on caring for the elderly dental and eye for Medicare recipients. But no, there's no money for that. That's inflationary. Washington can't deliver on, on anything, not anything, but can't deliver on most things that would benefit the 99%. Yes, yes, it does improve the IRS. And, you know, little tweaks can make a big difference. Little things. Uh, so, you know, uh, you know, a 15 percent minimum corporate tax, 17,000 armed <laughs> IRS agents kicking open the door of Jeff Bezos's mansion and making him pay his taxes. This might lead to good things, uh, but it's not enough. Americans are hurting 
And this bill does very little for them. Because as I said, nothing gets done in Washington unless it also benefits the rich and the powerful. They are the mafia. They get their taste. This bill is great if you manufacture electric vehicles. If you manufacture wind turbines and solar panels, this is great. It, they say, will reduce carbon emissions, greenhouse gases, by 40%. That's a lie. It's not even close, but it's a start. Also, the good news, I'm supposed to be really thrilled about, this is Stockholm Syndrome. This is an example of Stockholm Syndrome. I'm supposed to be grateful because Medicare can now negotiate with drug manufacturers. Isn't that great? Thank you, SynQ. Thank you. I'm, I'm in the closet and you're violating me with a, a plunger, SynQ. But thanks to Stockholm Syndrome, I'm grateful that SynQ allows me to, uh, allows Medicare to negotiate with drug manufacturers. Thank you, SynQ. Uh, isn't that great? We're supposed to be uh, thrilled. The largest purchaser of drugs in the world, Medicare, is now permitted to negotiate with Big Pharma. This is Stockholm Syndrome. We're supposed to be grateful. This is what the champions of the free market are, are compromising on. They're now allowing negotiations with Big Pharma. George W. Bush, you know, free marketeer, who said, you know, the government just needs to get out of the way. He passed a law forbidding forbidding Medicare from negotiating drug prices because nothing screams free market more than the government forbidding Medicare from uh, negotiating drug prices. So our government has to pay whatever Big Pharma decided it wanted to charge because that's the free market. The largest purchaser of drugs in the world, Medicare, was forbidden by the Republicans, by law, from being the beneficiary of the single most important component of the free market, shopping around for a better price. Right. The, the government was hostage. Medicare was hostage to Big Pharma. And now we're supposed to be grateful that uh, we get to negotiate drug prices, some drug prices with Medicare, because, you know, Republicans, uh, Republicans don't believe in the free market. They're lying. There is no such thing as a free market. I'll keep telling you this. 30 percent of our economy is government spending and Republicans help the rich by making sure the rich get that spending. They literally wrote a law that says Medicare, which they hate, which they'd like to bankrupt. They literally wrote a law that says Medicare can't shop around for lower prices. For 20 years, Medicare has been beholden to the drug companies. And now, thanks to this new bill, we can negotiate with the drug companies, you know, which would be the drug companies would be nothing without the billions the government puts into drug research and then gets nothing back in return. Right. Like we financed the COVID vaccine gave 
the, 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 the patent to whomever, and now we have to pay them for what we invested in. We finance drug research and then turn the patents over to drug companies who return the favor by charging us an arm and a leg for insulin. Seriously, if you look at what they charge diabetics for insulin, it's literally an arm and a leg. So thank you for letting us negotiate with Medicare, SYNQ. Uh, and there'll be a cap on insulin for Medicare, uh, but for a uh, cap on insulin for Medicare, but uh, private insurance companies, they can still charge whatever they want for insulin. The Republicans voted that one down. Uh, one out of 10 Amer and the parliamentarians said it had nothing to do with this bill. Uh, one out of 10 Americans has diabetes and we pay more for insulin than any country in the industrialized world. Diabetes is one of the fastest growing diseases in America. Insulin was discovered in Canada and the patent was given to the Canadian government for free so that nobody could profit off of it. But here in America, we said, screw that. A new study shows that 80% of diabetics consider insulin to be a serious financial burden with four out of five diabetics saying they have to purchase insulin using their credit card. Four out of five Americans use their credit cards to purchase insulin, with the average balance on their credit cards from the insulin alone, $9,000. The uh, four out of five Americans have $9,000 right now on their credit cards just from insulin alone. And as I said, this past weekend, Republicans voted down a measure that would have forced insurance companies to charge only $35 a month for insulin. Like I said, Medicare has a price cap, but not private insurance companies. Who speaks for the diabetics? Who speaks for ordinary Americans? Unfortunately, it's Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden. That's all we have. The Democrats, we got it for Medicare. We got the insulin cap for Medicare. But the Democrats in the war against big moneyed interests, uh, the Democrats claim they're protecting us, but they're double agents. They're spies. They're people like Michael Shapiro who work for the other side and see to it that we get just enough largesse so that we don't go running into the streets or over to the GOP. Call Chuck Schumer's office and tell him to fire his son-in-law, Michael Shapiro. A piece of shit. In my newsletter uh, on Friday, I talked about the Inflation Reduction Act. It is sold to the American people as a way to reduce inflation. Uh, you should sign up for my newsletter. It has hyperlinks. It's a great way to win arguments. Read my newsletter. I give you statistics and I give you hyperlinks to back them up. Okay, inflation. The new inflation numbers come out on Wednesday. The big Inflation Reduction Act, right? You want to reduce inflation? It's very simple. You don't need the Inflation Reduction Act. You freeze rent. Period. Freeze rent nationally. The eviction moratorium has expired. It is 
been called unconstitutional. Rent freezes are not unconstitutional. The president can declare a national emergency and freeze rent. And that is how you defeat inflation, a rent freeze specifically on rent, because 30 percent of inflation is rent. I talk about this in my newsletter. The Bureau of Labor Statistics calculates inflation and they look at what rent costs and 30 percent of how they weight inflation is rent, what people pay for rent. Other housing costs are factored into the uh, other two thirds of inflation, but one third of inflation is rent. Is there any rent relief in the Inflation Reduction Act? If you want to tackle inflation, you tackle rent. You cannot tackle inflation unless you tackle the rising cost of rent. Rent is up 17% nationwide this year. In Austin, it's doubled. Miami's rent up 40% up 40% in Portland, 35% in, in Newark, New Jersey, up 30% in Orlando, Florida, 30% in Cincinnati. Here is Professor Matthew Desmond, who runs Princeton's eviction lab. Since 1985, rent prices have exceeded income gains by 325%. Most poor-renting families today spend at least half of their income on housing costs, with one in four spending over 70% of their income on shelter costs alone. Last year, rents increased faster than they ever have on record. Nationwide, median asking rent increased by 17% in a single year, but some cities saw rent increases double that. Since last March, rents have risen 30% in Orlando, 29% in Cincinnati, 22% in Dallas. This is the inflation crisis on steroids. This is the inflation crisis on steroids and yet nothing about and yet nothing about rent in the inflation reduction act one third of inflation one third of it is rent senator raphael warnick from georgia added we may assume that these numbers are from high rent cities but that's not true it's not just high rent cities in both jenkins county and Taylor County, two rural counties in the southeast part of my state, one out of every three households, one out of three, spends more than half their income on rent. Half their income on rent. Rent is a problem specific, specifically for low-income Americans because half of all renters live below the poverty line and high rent keeps them there. Let me repeat, half of all renters live below the poverty line. As Senator Warnick said, a good number of people living below the poverty line spend half their income on rent. There is a shortage of low-income housing, and landlords are now free to charge whatever they want for apartments and they are also free to leave these apartments in disrepair. 
There is no rent control in America. New York, New Jersey, California, Maryland, and Washington, D.C. still have rent control laws that are somewhat enforced. But landlords now can charge people living below the poverty line. That's half of all renters. Pretty much whatever they want. Here is Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown, chairman of the Banking Committee. Here he is talking about how greedy landlords exploit low-income renters. And again, 50% of people who rent live below the poverty line. We may assume that these numbers are from high... For the lowest income renters, there are just 36 units affordable and available for every 100 renters who need them. That means renters can't, as we might say, vote with their feet in the housing market because there's nowhere for them to go. This huge shortage of housing means that renters have to make do with what they've got, even if their house has dangerous lead paint in the walls, or the landlord won't fix the heat, or their bathtub's been clogged for weeks. With housing so difficult to find, renters are forced to ask themselves whether it's worth it to push for a repair from the same person who can put an eviction on their record and decide whether they have a place to sleep at night. The banking committee last week held hearings on skyrocketing rent, right? While they were so busy touting the Inflation Reduction Act, nobody brought up uh, the that inflation, 30% of inflation is rent, Right. Uh, here is Republican Senator Pat Toomey. He says it's our government's fault that rents are so high. He says that we need to trust the markets. To improve housing affordability for all Americans, whether renters or owners, we should pursue reforms that leverage the power of free enterprise to increase housing supply and make markets more competitive. Sounds nice, but private capital doesn't want to decrease the role of government. Private capital depends on government, especially the Federal Reserve. Here's Senator Elizabeth Warren from last week's hearing. Uh, thanks to an investigation by the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis, we know that during the height of the pandemic, corporate landlords illegally evicted families by the I, I'm sorry, that's the wrong clip. Here is, sorry, Elizabeth Warren explaining how the Federal Reserve, how the so-called free market, this is how the Federal Reserve helps landlords and punishes renters, 50% of whom live below the poverty line. America's renters are struggling, and the Fed's interest rate hikes are making it both more expensive to build more housing and more expensive to take out a mortgage to buy a home. This could lock more families into the rental market and push rents even higher. That's how the government helps the so-called free market. There is no free market. The Federal Reserve controls interest rates, and when they raise interest rates like they're doing now, they purposely slow up the economy, which brings down wages. Wages go down, but rents go up. That's what the Federal Reserve is doing now for landlords and the richest 1%. When you raise interest rates, you slow the economy down so there are fewer jobs, which means wages go down. And because interest rates go up, the price of a mortgage goes up. So landlords increase rents and they increase those rents higher than what their interest rates are. The renters are squeezed and too frightened to complain for fear of an eviction. 
the Fed works for the wealthy. Here is Senator Sherrod Brown talking about faceless Wall Street investors gobbling up neighborhoods and destroying, destroying uh, communities. Wall Street investors just see opportunity. They don't see the pain they, or they just don't care. More and more investors are buying up single family homes, homes that first time home buyers usually buy and renting them out at sky high rates. 28% of homes sold at the beginning of this year uh, went to investors. Think about that, investors too often from out of town who don't care about the community and just wanna make a quick buck are buying more than a quarter, more than a quarter of homes. Not families, not bought by families who wanna put down roots who dream of seeing their kids grow up in that neighborhood and go to that local school. That number is up from 16% just a couple of years ago. The biggest investors with the deep, deepest pockets, the ones who own more than 100 properties, nearly doubled their share of their purchases. Ms. Bruner has seen firsthand in Cincinnati where a single company based in Texas bought up 29 properties on one street in, in Price Hill, 29 properties on a single street. In that neighborhood, now more than half of all homes are rentals. The city's left to chase down these out-of-state landlords who are letting these homes fall apart. Families need a landlord they can talk to who lives in the community. Cities need landlords who want to actually take care of their buildings and help families stay in their homes, but big Wall Street firms promising investors double-digit yields and running up double-digit eviction rates are pricing out those who make a community home. Good landlords, renters. Here is uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. With dollar signs in their eyes, private equity, uh, real estate investment trusts, and big corporations have gobbled up more and more of the rental market and now serve as landlords to thousands and thousands of Americans. In 2018, non-individual investors owned 26% of the rental stock, up from 18% in 2001. On a recent earnings call, executives at the private equity firm Blackstone bragged whoa, 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 whoa. that... Blackstone? Why does that sound familiar? Who works for Blackstone now? Oh, right. Piece of shit. Michael Shapiro, uh, Chuck Schumer's son-in-law, works for uh, Blackstone. Did I mention he's a piece of shit and his name is Michael Shapiro and he's Chuck Schumer's son-in-law? And he works for Blackstone now. Please continue, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Slowing housing construction, that is less supply, and higher mortgage costs, quote, provide a lot of support, end quote, for their bottom line, since, quote, people will still have to live somewhere. 50% of renters, Michael Shapiro, live below the, par the poverty line. Go F yourself, Michael Shapiro. Well, Republican Senator Pat Toomey says the solution is the free market. It's all about competition. And it is. It is about competition. It is the federal government teaming up with landlords and private equity to compete against people who rent, half of whom live below the poverty line. Yes, I believe Republicans call that a level, uh, level playing field. Here is uh, Pat Toomey. To improve housing affordability for all Americans, whether renters or owners, we should pursue reforms that leverage the power of free enterprise to increase housing supply and make markets more competitive. 
Yeah, yeah. And here is uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, thanks to an investigation by the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis, we know that during the height of the pandemic, corporate landlords illegally evicted families by the thousands, violating federal and state moratoriums that had been put in place to protect tenants. See, there are laws, uh, but when you gut the government, there's no one to enforce them. Here is Professor Desmond once again from Princeton's Eviction Labs testifying before the Banking Committee last week. He says the rent crisis is fueled by, primarily by unchecked greed, right? Remember I said that interest rates go up and landlords use higher interest rates to justify charging more? Here is... Uh, Desmond Moore, Professor Desmond Morris explaining the greed. Why have rents risen so aggressively? One possibility is that property owners' expenses have gone up, and to maintain a steady income, owners have to pass on rising housing costs to tenants in the form of higher rents. But this is not what the data show to be happening. Rather, in recent years, owners of multifamily properties have seen their rental revenues increase at a faster rate than their expenses. This has been especially true for properties located in low-income neighborhoods. The owners of these properties saw their rental revenues increase by 47 percent between 2012 and 2018. Their expenses during that time only increased by 14 percent. Here is uh, Senator Sherrod Brown talking about massive landlords, big landlords like Blackstone, where Michael Shapiro, Chuck Schumer's son-in-law works. Here he is talking about massive landlords following a massive number of illegal evictions. Last week, the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis published a report showing that at the height of the pandemic, four of these massive landlords, four, filed nearly 15,000 evictions. Four landlords, 15,000 evictions. Who protects the renter? Half of all renters live below the poverty line. Who protects the renter? Well, Republicans like Pat Toomey preach, just all they do is preach the free market and the government should not make landlords angry. But doubling down on failed liberal housing policies is not going to fix our rental housing market. Instead, it will tend to make housing more expensive. Yes, just don't piss off the landlords. And he's right, because tenants know this. Eviction is, is the surest path to homelessness. You, nobody wants to rent to somebody who's been evicted. Tenants know not to complain because any eviction, for whatever reason, makes you an undesirable candidate for future housing. America has the highest eviction rates in the industrialized world and the nastiest. Professor Desmond says landlords will often evict tenants even if they're only two months behind on rent. Okay, so the rent is too damn high. Senator Pat Toomey tells us what Republicans want you to believe. Why is the rent so damn high? To improve housing affordability for all Americans, whether renters or owners, we should pursue reforms that leverage the power of free enterprise to increase housing supply and make markets more competitive. Uh, yeah, but this is uh, this is what uh, this is the real reason we need uh, this is this is what we need to do, according to Desmond. 
We need to increase the supply of affordable housing. Here's Elizabeth Warren. We've got to build more housing. That is the ultimate answer. We need more supply. There's no way around it. These investments are overdue. Not a single state in the country has enough housing. There's no question that we need more housing stock. And I support many initiatives that would do just that. Both the private housing market and the federal government have failed to provide American families with enough affordable housing. As a result, property owners have seized the opportunity to increase rents knowing they have a captive tenant base. Diane Yentl, president and CEO of the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, says America needs to build 7 million affordable housing units. And during last week's banking hearing, she was questioned by Georgia Senator Raphael Warnick. Ms. Yentel, how long would you estimate that it will take for our housing supply to finally catch up to demand? It will take years, if not more than a decade. It's a matter of um, this restrictive local zoning that needs to be addressed and removed. Right. And the supply chain issues and many more issues, workforce issues to build the housing. It will take many years for us as a country to dig ourselves out of the supply hole that we created. So we can't ma wave a magic wand and it won't go away next year. That's right. Or a year after that. That's right. Or a year after that. So it, presumably rents will continue to rise. In the meantime, they will continue to rise. Maybe they will start to come down. Even if they do, when we look back to pre-pandemic times, sure, many of those numbers in Georgia were likely the same. So even if rents come back to where they were before the pandemic, there are 10 million households throughout the country that are paying at least half of their limited incomes on rent. So yes, they will continue to struggle. So Senator Elizabeth Warren invented the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau after the 2008 banking crisis. She was going to run it for Obama, but the GOP, because she's so good at this, blocked her appointment. So she ran for Senate. Here she is last week with a suggestion to help renters. It's urgent that we take steps to protect renters from predatory schemes and ensure that corporate landlords at least follow the rules that are in place. And that's one reason I've proposed creating a new Tenant Protection Bureau, which would allow tenants to easily file complaints against unscrupulous landlords and to provide officials with the data they need to enforce tenant protection laws. Republican Senator Pat Toomey. We should avoid the temptation to adopt new so-called tenant protections or permanent rental assistance that will have negative unintended consequences, including increasing housing costs. We should phase out demand size. Yes, demand. He's, he's reading from a script. Uh, that's because he's a Republican. Uh, we have to wrap it up. Uh, one of the dirty, dark secrets in New York City, and there are many, is that 60 percent of all those office buildings in New York City are empty. Uh, what, what happened? Did I lose my camera? There we go. Uh, one of the dirty, dark secrets in New York City is that 60% uh, of all office buildings are empty. That's because of Zoom, because of the internet, because people don't need to be in an office anymore and people don't want to be in an office. It's a waste of time and it's less expensive for corporations, uh, if people work at home, think of all the money corporations are saving right now on sexual harassment lawsuits. 
Uh, and things in motion stay in motion. We're not going back. Whether you like it or not, your home is going to be your office, but you need a home. So what do we do with all that empty office space? Who could benefit from all that empty office space? 60% of the office space in New York City is empty. Chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, is running for the Democratic nomination in Manhattan. And during last week's debate, he was asked about all that empty office space and how we can convince corporations and workers uh, to once again uh, pay a fortune for the privilege of spending four hours a day commuting in and out of the incredibly expensive New York City. Here is what uh, Congressman Jerry Nadler, Nadler said. And I, I think uh, we're going to find that uh, people, be, because many businesses have now decided that they can have people working from home, I don't think it's going to come back entirely. And we're going to have to uh, convert. And I, I think uh, we're going to find that uh, uh, a lot of our office buildings or I, I think we're going to have to uh, convert uh, a lot of our office buildings or parts of them into housing, which will also help the housing crisis. Yes, we're going to have to convert uh, these. Uh, I'm wrapping it up. We have to convert these office spaces into housing. We have to convert especially here in New York City, where 10% of New York City public school students are homeless. Uh, forget office space. There are now uh, more empty apartments than there are homeless people in New, New York City. But because of tax law written by and for the wealthy, it makes more sense to keep these apartments and these offices empty. It makes more sense to keep them empty than it does to charge market rates, which means, once again, there is no such thing as a free market. If 60% of the office space in New York City is empty, the laws of supply and demand dictate that the price of that office space should be next to nothing. But it's not. Office space is just as expensive as ever. Why? Because these buildings are owned by private equity and they write the tax codes. They don't need to rent out these offices or these apartments or these homes that they're gobbling up. They can all remain empty and, and they get to write the loss off on their taxes and they create an artificial scarcity of housing. And so that means the apartments and the buildings and the homes rise in value. Their assets rise, but you don't have to pay taxes when your assets go up. You only have to pay taxes on rent, which you're not collecting. Empty homes, empty apartments, empty offices create a bigger demand for homes, apartments, and offices. It's price fixing. They the Blackstone doesn't rent out. So housing becomes this artificial scarcity. The value of the real estate goes up. They get tax refunds because they're losing money since they're empty. Then they borrow against the increased value of their real estate to buy up more real estate, which they leave empty and create more scarcity, more homelessness, higher rents and higher asset prices. Your empty building is worth more today than it was yesterday because you left it empty. That's your free market propped up by a government that not just refuses to regulate, it forks over our tax dollars and our tax subsidies to private equity, who in turn destroy neighborhoods because private 
equity has run out of other businesses and corporations to gut. I'm wrapping up. There are no free market solutions to homelessness, higher rent or inflation because there is no free market. Professor Desmond. Congress could provide much needed relief by deepening investments in housing vouchers. I urge this committee to pass the Eviction Crisis Act and the Family Stability Opportunity Vouchers Act to bipartisan sponsored bills that would help stem the bleeding. And you can extend the emergency rental assistance, which did so much to prevent an eviction spike during the pandemic. When we boost incomes for working families through government programs or economic growth, but don't address rents, income gains are often recouped by the housing market. Studies have shown that when states raise minimum wages, landlords respond by raising the rent. The implication is that investing in affordable housing isn't only necessary to stabilize families and communities, it's also essential because the success of all other economic mobility efforts depend on it. We need rent control. We need a rent freeze. We need to regulate the housing market. You should have to live in a city in which you own. Shelter is a human right. Blackstone, where Chuck Schumer's son-in-law works and other private equity firms create poverty. They do not create jobs. They cut them and gut them. They create poverty and they won't leave the poor alone because they're chasing any capital they can find. They create poverty and then they buy up low income housing and charge exorbitant rents because they can. And now they're buying up mobile home parks. Private equity will not leave the poor alone. The average diabetic carries $9,000 of credit card debt to pay for their insulin. In a year, that doubles. And then another year, it doubles. That's private equity. It is Blackstone that has to find money where there is none to return double-digit profits to its investors. We used to have rent control. We used to have price freezes. We need rent control and price freezes today because rent is unaffordable. Half of all renters live below the poverty line. One third of inflation is rent. The single biggest driver of inflation and poverty is landlords. Make them pay their taxes. Use a stick, not a carrot, to stop them from owning a monopoly of affordable housing. Rewrite the tax code to punish people who invest in low-income housing. Professor Desmond gets the last word. Now is not the time for inaction, for indecisiveness, or for the same old tired debates about spending. We could pay for deeper investments in housing in dozens of ways. Simply collecting unpaid federal income tax from the top 1% of households would bring in an estimated $175 billion a year. What we can no longer do is look renting families in the face Families now living in cars and garages and attics and storage sheds in the richest country on the planet and tell those families, you know, we'd love to help you, but we just can't afford it because that is a lie. You are listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Subscribe to my newsletter because I really go more into depth on the relationship between housing and inflation and poverty, and it includes uh, hyperlinks. So uh, please uh, sign up. Well, Pascal Robert is one of the co-hosts of the This Is Revolution podcast. Sorry to keep you waiting. I I, uh, I over-prepare today. Can you turn your video on? 
says it cannot because you have me frozen. Oh, Dan. Uh, David, my, my internet turned off a little while ago, so I lost hosting. If you make me host again, I'll okay, take care of it. Sorry about that. We're, this is uh, August. We're running on bare bones. Some people are taking time off. Imagine that, wanting a vacation. In holiday the, season. I mean, Jesus, in the middle of uh, August? Who takes vacations in August? Are you there? Can you turn your video on? I think I... Maybe I think you should I be good can. now, Pascal. I just turned it on, but I don't see myself. Can you see me? No, I can't see you. Uh, it's going to be one of those shows? Is that the way it's... Let me try it again. It's one of those shows. Well, uh, your thoughts on uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and uh, the House. I, 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 first of all, I want to tell you, uh, David, you've just done uh, yeoman's work in exposing the collusion between finance capital and the governing infrastructure in this country by demonstrating, first of all, that Chuck Schumer and his son-in-law working for Blackstone and how he's leveraging his position as a former administration official dealing with infrastructure and turning that into a profiteering racket for him to go and get a job with Blackstone. That's that's an that's I'm inspired to write a piece exposing that in and of itself. Well, thank because you. that's just an important piece of reporting. And just demonstrating how our political administration in this country is completely works at the behest of finance capital. And the fact that we have private equity now in large scale numbers buying up housing stock in a country in which 50% of the people who rent live below the poverty line. And we already have a shortage of affordable housing in this country to the point where we need to build 7 million housing units of affordable housing just to be on par with the population. And people wonder why I'm someone who challenges the institution of capitalism, because our our capitalist economy is crushing the life out of our citizens because they are beholden to people who don't care. When you can have two of me sit there talking about we should leave the system beholden to the market and that should be okay and everything will be all right. It's egregious and just beyond words. And it, I, I, I want to thank you for the service that you just did in exposing these facts because I think that it's very important for people to understand in a practical way how the, the forces of economic concentration of wealth have captured governance in this country bipartisanly. Bipartisanly. Well, first of all, let me let me uh, take a, a a personal privilege here to thank you. Uh, I feel guilty keeping you waiting ten minutes. So uh, and so I I want to apologize for I know how busy you are so I apologize for keeping you waiting for ten minutes but to keep you waiting ten minutes and then get uh, praise from you uh, thank you uh, I really coming from you it's uh, 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 means a lot uh, to my nasty ego which is pretty well so if people know. Can something be done? If if this were 
if the American people knew this, there were hearings. You know, I, I'm not a I didn't really do that much research. I watched Sherrod Brown's hearings last week and did a little reading about inflation and how it's measured. If people knew this, would it change anything? If everybody knew this, would it change anything? I don't think just knowing is enough. I think that we have to create a political environment where oppositional politics becomes in fashion. What that means is that we have to create a political environment where simply knowing these facts is not enough, but creating the space where citizens can put pressure on our governing institutions by either lobbying our congressmen or going to the physical spaces of governance and making demands or creating actual mechanisms where we have public forums in which citizens get together and find ways to leverage demands upon our governing institutions. There has to be a way of, we, ha we don't have a political culture of opposition in this country in terms of opposing these day-to-day -day status quo activities. And I think that we need to develop that. And that's the only way we're going to find a way to challenge that. And one of the things that I think that is one of the best uh, ways that has happened to do that is awakening a new political spirit. And not to sound cliche, I think that what that's one of the things the Bernie Sanders campaign did. I think that Bernie awakened a new political spirit, whether you want to call it socialism or not, he, he created a political zeitgeist in which people were using rhetoric around economic justice and equality and fairness and challenging economic wealth distribution upward to try to get people to understand that there's a need to challenge the way in which the status quo works in this country. And I think there was definitely value to that, but there needs to be a continuation of that energy and that zeitgeist needs to be carried through so that we can actually find ways to have senators and congressmen address the needs and the demands of the body politic. Because what we're seeing now is that we have the all the Republicans are the evil, horrible fascists, but no one is saying, well, the Democrats will sell you out as well. And how do we fight both factions to try to get some economic, economic justice and parity for the American people? Right. So uh, if you're a democratic socialist, that means, let me see if I got this straight. A, a social democrat is somebody who believes you can still work within the framework of capitalism to improve the lives of others. And, right. a, and a democratic socialist is somebody who says uh, not quite Communists, but you got to get rid of capitalism. We have to have a way in which citizens, working people, control the means of production in a way in which they can directly benefit from their actual contribution to labor and own shares of their workspaces, own, own particip participate directly in the way in which the profit and revenue from this system actually is generated and is not concentrated exclusively in the 1% within a democratically elected electoral process. Right. So I would assume that somebody like Sherrod Brown fancies himself as a social Democrat. Uh, he wasn't too keen on uh, Medicare for all, but he would be somebody who thinks you can. Right. Well, I mean, listen, we have to let's make some clear statements off the bat. 
we live in the center of in the center of the most capitalist economy in the world being the United States. This is the center of global capitalism, the center of global finance capitalism. It's going to be very difficult to get the political infrastructure, the social infrastructure, and the ideological superstructure that governs the overall thinking of Americans to challenge capitalism as the means of an economic paradigm that we have in this country, because everything from the way we see our media, from the entertainment that we have, tells us that capitalism is not only the norm, but it's good. So I don't expect Sherrod Brown, and I don't think it's shocking to me, it's not going to be shocking to me that he, when you tell him, when I say, yes, I'm a socialist, and I have no problem being a socialist, he's going to be a bit you know, blind, you know, blinded by that and say, well, I don't know if I want him to go that far. But what I'm saying is that it's going to take having some people with the economic vision to be either socialist or even communist or even anarchist or whatever to push the status quo far enough to at least make the quality of life in this America, America humane so that we can at least have social democracy. I would like a little, a little social democracy would go a long way in America compared to where we've been for the 50-plus-year counter-revolution, starting with Nixon going on from Carter up until Reagan, where we basically surrendered to this new form of capitalism called neoliberalism, which hyper-marketized everything, created these public-private partnerships, and gutted the public the public thoroughfares in a way in which they had been able to subsidize a quality of life for most Americans through from the World War II era, at least until the early 70s. It's interesting. The The truth is there. It's on C-SPAN. You can watch these hearings and you will hear people like Elizabeth Warren, who I was really mad at her uh, with Bernie. You know, I, uh, I it's unforgivable, but she is a voice for reigning in Wall Street. It doesn't get reported I try I was plowing through why 60% of office buildings in New York City are empty but the rent is still exorbitant and it's a a shell game that they play with our tax code and as long as Rachel Maddow and CNN and you know the New York Times does a pretty good job talking about this, but not enough people read it. If if Americans understood, if, if the American people were told these houses, that it's not a free market, that it's the tax code written in such a way that that it it increases assets if the landlord leaves it empty. You, your, your assets go up because it's an artificial scarcity and you get a tax write-off on the on not renting this place out. It, 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 it's de- the tax code is designed to create unaffordable rent and homelessness. Well, and- I mean, understand there is a benefit. Pre- precarity breeds profit because when, when you have a shortage it creates a profit margin for those at the top who provide the service. So there is a desire to keep a certain fixed number of people in a space of precarity. And also, 
The last thing our, our, our capitalist system wants is full employment. They don't want to house everyone. They don't want to have everyone have a job. You know why? Because what is the thing that they're afraid of? The I word, inflation, inflation, inflation. The last thing we don't want to have is an inflationary economy. I love it when you said, what, you want to stop, stop inflation? Freeze rent. You know what would happen if you told these these capitalists that you want to freeze rent in this country? They would they would they would they would hang you in this place, man. Instead, they're playing. They allow the maestro Jerome Powell to fiddle with interest rates. But this is the thing: who is, who does Jerome Powell work for? The Federal Reserve is a consortium, is a public is a public private partnership that is owned by a consortium of banks. He represents the banking interests, interests of the banking institutions. Jerome Powell is not looking out for the working man or the working woman. We have allowed this country to completely, completely steamroll the 99%. Uh, and they've done it by making us, among other things, incredibly stupid and susceptible to propaganda. And uh, it's almost as though somebody you know, during the time of the Powell memo, figured out a way to make this country stupid enough to go along with this. Because only a stupid people would allow this. I understand hatred and greed. That, you know, but to be this stupid about your own best interests, it, it has to be calculated. They have to factor in the propaganda to keep us this well, stupid. Part of the propaganda tells people that their their suffering or their poverty or their miseration is because of their own moral failings. We have this. We have developed this kind of ridiculous kind of Protestant work ethic nonsense that tells people that their immiseration in a cop in a capitalist system that is predicated by their suffering is because of their own quote unquote cultural failings. And Americans buy into this kind of nonsense. So it's it's not only also amount of ignorance, amount of ignorance, it's also about a propaganda. You are right by using that term that politicizes people to buy into this thing. And most Americans see themselves as unintended consequences of not yet being a millionaire as opposed to people who are being exploited by an economic system that's pauperizing them. Right. Because the media, the listen, they, the, you know, every, whether the Saturday, Sunday football game, the baseball game, the basketball game, the movies, the pop culture, the Netflix, you got cheap pop culture, cheap entertainment, cheap fast food. So what, what is it going to do? It's not going to breed critical thinking to challenge the system, David. It's going to bring people into believing that they're cattle, that they can, there's nothing they can do. They just got to follow along and hope one day they can get a ticket to a concert where they can just sleep their mind away and not have to worry about the problems that they're dealing with every day. Yeah, uh, like a, a $5,000 ticket to go see Bruce Springsteen sing about the plight of migrant workers. Yeah, exactly. But Bruce Springsteen can't seem to make it out to the Amazon warehouse and support Christian Smalls. No. That, that, that he doesn't have time for. Or, you know, somebody said, well, you know, he, uh, he gives to, at, at his concerts, he leaves out cans for the homeless. Yeah, that's more than I do. But uh, cans for the homeless, 
that helps. But what would also help the homeless uh, is union jobs. And exactly. We had a great show about that the other day. We had a, a great guest, Paul Prescott, who ran for elected office in Pennsylvania, talking about how the shift away from union jobs, contrary to this image of the, the working class guy being a white male, it's disadvantage, it's disadvantages black working class people as well. Working class people are a multiracial coalition in this country. This notion that the working class is some white guy in a hard hat is one of the most de demonic tricks that these racists have made and denies people to realizing, listen, NAFTA and GATT affected black and brown people as well. And that stuff was not a good move at all. And we really got to find a way to create stable working class jobs in this country again if we're ever going to get out of this trend of really demoralizing Americans with the way, the way our economy functions in this society. Right. We're talking with Pascal Robert. We're running 10 minutes behind. He is the host with Jason Miles of the This Is Revolution podcast. Everybody should download it and watch it. Uh, you're from Haiti. My parents are from Haiti. I was born in the United States. Yeah. So, yeah. And there's no government there. No. I was I was <laughs> Not at the current moment, no. <laughs> and uh, Joe Biden is making things worse in Haiti by, uh, I think he shipped, he flew something like 50,000. Yes, that's correct. Ever since the assassination of the president, it's close to, I mean, since the assassination has been 26,000, but it's over 50,000 overall. Yes, he's deporting citizens to the country in a country that's already politically destabilized because after the assassination, there has not yet been an election to put in a stable government. And we have basically marauding gangs that are governing over this, the capital of the country. So there's no security, no stability. It's, you know, it's kind of a war zone. And he's contributing to the situation by making it worse, by by deporting more and more people to the country instead of giving them some kind of temporary housing status in the United States. So it's kind of a nightmare situation. Children are being deported back to babies, infants. babies, babies being sent back Uh I guess you read the Washington Post story. There was a Washington yes, Post. Yes, that's story. right. Yes, and I wanted to talk to you about that. Uh, you're a lawyer. I, I I don't think you're an immigration. No, I don't do immigration. Immigration law. There is no need, as I understand it, uh, to put immigrants, asylum seekers, in detention facilities. It is my understanding in international law, it is against the law to take. Uh, someone seeking asylum and put them in a detention center. You'll see six million Ukrainians throughout even Hungary, Poland. These are some right wing uh, uh, countries. They're not keeping them in detention centers. Granted, they're white. Ukrainians, for the most part, are white. They haven't been too kind to that. Them. Might be a factor. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I've read that uh, Poland and Hungary are uh, not too keen on accepting uh, African exchange students in Ukraine who had a flea. So explain to me how much uh, race plays into the... Well, I think that the bottom line is that there is a perception that people who are coming from dark, the darker parts of the world are generally poorer. And there's an economic consequence to having imperialism internationally siphon off so much wealth from these 
developing and third world countries going to these imperialist countries in Europe and the Western United States so many years where they know they are so destabilized that they can no longer provide for the citizens in their own country. And the more economically stabilized, wealthier countries realize that and look at them as paupers and don't want to incorporate them into their land. And as a result, because they come not just simply because their skin is dark, but their dark skin is equated with a quality of life that is considered and viewed to be unpleasant in the eyes of those European countries who don't want them or Western countries like the U.S. who don't want them there anymore. But what is ironic is that those same Western powers don't calculate how much their policies have helped facilitate the pauperization of those black and brown countries that are now coming to their shores looking for a safe haven. Right. When you look at the threat, you know, not there isn't a threat of an authoritarian kleptocracy coming to America. We're there. The question is, will the authoritarian kleptocracy get worse? Hungary is an authoritarian kleptocracy. It can get more authoritarian and more kleptocratic. When By the way, shout out to Viktor Orban coming to CPAC to give a speech. You heard about that? Yeah, I played some clips from him. Uh, what does that tell you, Dave? What does that say to you? Well, what what I noticed, I, I isolated all the times he said Hungary was a Christian nation and all the times I didn't have time to play it. But he must have referred to Hungary as a Christian nation with Judeo-Christian values and... I thought, uh, well, I'll, pl I'll play you the one clip that, that has got, it's just 10 seconds. This is what got uh, so much uh, play, I think, on the internet. Don't worry, a Christian politician cannot be racist. A Christian wow. politician cannot be racist. So if you call yourself a Christian, which Tucker Carlson does, which Laura Ingram does, which... Uh, Josh Hawley does and Ted Cruz, you're absolved of any racism. That's absurd. They were, they were Christians in the Ku Klux Klan. Right. I think the cross was the yes. giveaway, right? The burning cross was the give. <laughs> Might have been the giveaway. Uh, what is the role that the danger of f melding religion uh, and racism. What what is the and we've we have obviously. Well, I mean, I think we've seen it before throughout history. It's it's the perfect breeding ground for fascism, because you're taking an idea that's based on faith, divorced, divorced from science and reason, and using racialized notions of identity and fusing them together to try to create a political ideology. And the direct consequence of that is going to be something that's going to be kind of fascistic in result. The the true believers at CPAC, uh, they think America is a Christian nation. They're able to lure some stupid Jews by calling it occasionally a Judeo-Christian nation. You get the stupid Jews on board that. And to the exclusion of Muslims, Buddhists, atheists, atheists and atheists it's uh, so dis dis it is so disturbing to me i i we did a i did a, a piece for my episode of this is revolution the mau mau hour which is my, my 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 one show talking about you know christian nationalism 
And why can't we get the black church in America, which has been known to be the bastion of oppositional politics to racial antagonism, going back to the civil rights movement, why can't we get more of these folks to challenge these Christian nationalists on their religious terms? I would like to see more of the black church traditionally, instead of trying to hawk prosperity gospels, we get more interested in trying to challenge, you know, these Christian nationalists. Because this, when, you, when I see someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene say, this is a Christian, you know, she's a Christian, and this is a Christian country, and that, she, we, that we should, that Republicans should embrace Christian nationalism. That's disturbing to me. Regardless of how much of a, of a you know, a sideshow freak she might be politically, the fact that this woman is a United States Congresswoman. She has a following. Uh, how, how popular is Christianity? It's, isn't it declining? It's been going down in the current millennial generations, even in the black community. Less than 50% of Americans for the first time consider themselves regularly uh, church attending or uh, adherence to Christians. I think that was, we had we had all kinds of polling data. Pew had some recent, recent polling data on the issue as well. Right. And what percentage of this country is Christian? And isn't there a difference between a... A Christian and a Catholic, right? Twenty-five percent of the population in this country that is religious is Catholic. I know that, right? And Catholics are different from Christians. Amy Coney. Well, Catholics Bar- are a form of Christianity, but they are a different form of Christianity than Protestants. Right. Catholics feel you have to do good work on on this earth in order to make it to heaven, whereas Christians, especially evangelicals say it's impossible to do any good work, well, you just have to accept I, Jesus. I, I'm not a specialist on theology of Protestantism or its various iterations, so I will, I'm, <laughs> I, will resolve, I will reserve that for those who are more well-versed. But I find that the popularity of our politics being determined in these religious framings to be overall problematic, regardless of the tenet of that the person is ascribing to. Right. Raphael Warnick speaks from the same pulpit that Dr. King spoke from. That is correct. Ebenezer Baptist, Baptist Church in Atlanta. Uh, he's uh, a little problematic, isn't he? He's, he's for, he, he talks a lot about tax uh, cuts for uh the working class. He's a quintessential member of the black political class, which unfortunately has rendered itself to be part of the Democratic Party. You have Greg Meeks. You have you know the traditional. You know they use race as a as a shield to protect the interests of corporate forces, just like most other corporate Democrats. At the same time, they play the game of trying to seem like they're interested in the interests of their black constituents. So, unfortunately, this is where black politics has been relegated to in the contemporary American society. Right. We, we've been talking with Pascal Robert. He's the co-host with Jason Miles of the This Is Revolution podcast. Who are your guests this week? Tell us about the big shows you're playing. This week we have tomorrow, we're going to have a show talking about the New Deal and the FDR and the racial implications of the New Deal with an academic and a writer. And then Thursday, we're going to have our uh, regular Thursday roundup. Fantastic. 
How do people follow you and, and get in touch well, with I'll you? Go on YouTube, go This Is Revolution Podcast, all your relevant podcast apps. You can find This Is Revolution Podcast as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Pascal. Sorry to keep you waiting. I, uh, no problem. It's great to see you. Well, I didn't get to see you, but it's great to hear your voice. Okay. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Please uh, go to my website, and while you're over there, sign up for my newsletter. The recent newsletter is pretty good. It's about the eviction crisis in America, and it has some incredible hyperlinks where if you want to argue, uh, I give you the ammunition. This is something I feel very passionate about. Coming up, Grace Jackson will be joining us to talk about Taiwan and Pelosi. And then at 7.30, we have John Ross, who uh, I think is going to do Stump the Hump, but he doesn't know it, Dan. Let us go, Jonathan, Professor Bick, while we're waiting for Grace Jackson to arrive, why don't you tell us how the community at Office Hours and Hours performed? I think we have some good news. We have a member of our community who needed some money. This person uh, had a medical uh, emergency. Can you can you unmute Professor Bick? Oh, there you go. Uh, hi, David. Hi. How did we do? Uh, how did we do this weekend? We did very well. Uh, we have, uh, before you do it. Hang on, hang on. I, I want to do the timpani. Hang uh -huh. on before. So, how much were you trying to raise for the member of our community? We are trying to raise two thousand dollars. Two thousand dollars, and this past office hours was dedicated to raising money for this important member of our community. All members of the community are important. And how much... Hang on. How much did we raise? Uh, we raised $1,866, I believe. Okay, and let me give a little. And now how much have we raised? $1,800, uh, sorry, $1,800, $1,866.05. You know what? Hey, you know what? I'm feeling generous. How much have we raised now? $1,800, You know what? I'm going to get, I'm feeling, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was Pascal complimenting me. I'm being overcome. I don't know. You know what? I'm going to do it. And I hope I'm sending an example for our listeners. All right. All right, I just gave a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. You are an inspiration. David. Thank you. How much now? How much have we raised? Eighteen hundred sixty-six dollars and fifteen cents. 
Uh, you know what? I will keep doing this to torture the listeners until we get to $2,000. Uh, okay, that's great news. Uh, let's put the link in the chat room if we can, and we could put it in the... Uh, the YouTube chat room. There's Grace Jackson. And yes, I'll put it in the chat, the Zoom chat. If somebody could put it in the um, in the YouTube chat, that would be great. And yes, please give. We want to get uh, to our goal. Maybe you could be the one to put us over the top. Well, I can't put us over the top, but... Well, not you. I'm talking to the audience. That, that's just to impress Grace. And what does it bring it up to now? David, we have raised eighteen sixty-six and twenty cents. And that a lot of that in the past half hour is just that's mostly me, right? Yes, I in the last half hour, I think it was a hundred percent you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know what today is, Grace? Thank you, Professor Jonathan Bick. It is August eighth, and it is the anniversary of this famous speech. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. That would be President Nixon resigning. Grace Jackson is an expert, and she's coming to us from Vermont. She is the co-host of Literary Hangover, and you're in Bernie country. Have you found Bernie yet? I hear he hangs out on steps. Um, well, I just went to the co-op, but Bernie wasn't there refilling his uh, millet supply. <laughs> so I'm, I'm disappointed, but I'm going to keep going back and, and hope for an encounter. You're in the United States for a couple of weeks and you're going to be coming to New York when? That's right. I think... Possibly next week. Great. Well, I will. I will have to. Yeah, we'll have to put something in the calendar. That will, that will be great. I'm looking forward to that. Before David, we talk, um, by the way, some people in the chat are trying to get your attention with apparently Trump. Uh, Mar-a-Lago is being raided by the feds. No. Yep. No. <laughs> oh, hang on for one second. What a great night. Hang on. <laughs> hang on. Let me just see. Oh, thank you for that. Hang on. Maro Lago is being, let's see. Uh, the New York Times is not saying Bloomberg that. has it. Uh, Who has Lane it? Just, Bloomberg. They just, Lane just posted a, a link. Former uh, President Trump says FBI agents raiding Mar-a-Lago. Wow. Currently under siege, raided, and occupied by a large group of FBI agents. Uh, I actually have uh, the sound of this. Sorry about that. Uh, if, it, if I don't see it in the New York Times, it hasn't happened. We're running 10 minutes behind. <laughs> we will we will get 
to everybody, I apologize. So let's talk about, first of all, I didn't know you spoke Chinese. Uh Oh, uh, yeah. You have a pained look on your face. <laughs> I feel like you're about to ask me to speak said language. No, no, no. I'm just, okay. Okay. I, I'm just, I, it's, it is in a spe- it is especially difficult for English speakers to learn Chinese because English is so hard to learn. Uh, well, I would say as a speaker of the Queen's English, it's doubly hard because Chinese or Mandarin is a tonal language, very melodic, quite musical. And as you can tell from my appearances on this show, we tend to speak in monotone across the pond. Right. So I had to learn to actually inflect, you know, my voice, which is very, yeah, it was a challenge. But once you get past the tones, it's actually not too hard. There's very little grammar in Mandarin. So. You know, Lane teaches a class with, uh, is it Berlitz? To teach British people how to add intonation to their, I have a clip of, Lane's oh. language class. And Young man, get the fuck up, you lazy bastard. That's Lane teaching British people how to have a little intonation. Yeah, in I the- need to take that class. Yeah. I really do. I'm going to do my best tonight. But um, I wanted to, to come on just to sort of talk about what happened with Pelosi and her visit to Taiwan. Please. And I, I kind of divided my thoughts into three sections, what happened, what didn't happen, and what's going to happen. Okay. Um, so what happened? Well, uh, she she visited. She indeed uh, landed in Taipei. She spent about, I think, not even 24 hours there. She met the president. She received a special honor from the president called the Order of Propitious Clouds. Um, and she visited one of the national human rights museums in Taipei, which is a very interesting place, actually, a former detention facility that was used to imprison political prisoners during the white terror period. So during martial law under Chiang Kai-shek, back when um, Chiang Kai-shek was still entertaining fantasies about taking back the mainland and finally winning the civil war with the communists. And she took one other meeting, which I'll get to later. Okay. Um, Some people protested her visit. A lot of people came out to support her and kind of express uh, thanks to her for visiting. There was some polling that suggested about two thirds of Taiwanese people thought the visit would be, quote, destabilizing, um, which is not quite the same thing as saying they thought she shouldn't come. I think... You know, on issues like this, two things can be true at once. And mm-hmm. I think many Taiwanese people were were kind of glad for some recognition, um, even if they, they might have been a little bit intimidated at the same time. Um, so what else happened? Well, China waited until Pelosi left to begin their military exercises. And I believe they announced them roughly when she arrived in Taiwan Um, And these were obviously a response to her visit, but they're also not without precedent. Um, But this time, the exercises, they got closer to Taiwan and they lasted longer than the ones in 95, which I talked about last time during the third straight crisis. 
Um, I'm not in any way um, a military expert, and so I'm not going to pretend to know or be able to pass the difference between you know, the capabilities of the PLA in 95 and those of today, I'm sure that they are much more advanced. But just to say that, you know, I I personally didn't find them surprising as such. Um, so China also has halted talks with the US on climate change. It's suspended dialogue between the US military and the Chinese military and it banned some products from like 100 Taiwanese food manufacturers. And it also stopped exporting natural sand to Taiwan. Again, I'll get to that later, the reason why that's important. Natural sand. Yes. Strange. Can you guess why? To build, to build an island? Uh, not quite. It's it's a funny one. Um, I'll tell you. I'll tell you soon. Okay. Um, so Beijing also put some sanctions on Pelosi and the other members of her delegation. So that's what happened, basically. What didn't happen? Um, Beijing did not fly jets close to Pelosi's plane. It didn't prevent her from landing in Taiwan. There were a lot of people who were worried about that. There were some rumors that had possibly come from a leak on the Chinese side that that was going to happen. Didn't she go in through the back door? I, 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 she didn't fly over any Chinese airspace. Right. So she flew from the direction of the Philippines, I believe, to totally avoid China. Uh, and she landed at Songshan Airport, which is um, more like the local airport. It's not the international airport in Taipei. Um, and during their military exercises, Beijing did not fly any planes over Taiwan. Uh, they sent missiles way high up over Taiwan, um, but they didn't fly planes. And they didn't hit Taiwan where it would hurt the most in terms of economic sanctions. That is to say, they did not ban the import of semiconductors from Taiwan. And that gets us to the meeting that the third meeting Pelosi had in Taiwan it was very interesting. It was with the chairman of the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, also known as TSMC. And we all know, I mean, I think most people are familiar with the fact that one of Taiwan's major exports and kind of contributions to the global economy is semiconductors, particularly the super advanced kinds of semiconductors that end up in advanced weapons systems, medical equipment, iPhones. Um, and Taiwanese chip makers actually account for about 60 or more, 60% of the global market share. Really? Just huge, huge. Because we were, the, the, the CHIP Act, this new industrial policy that yes. we passed, was sold to us as a way to combat China. I thought mainland China's influence well, on our defense. Yes, it, it does indeed do that. But it does so by way of Taiwan, you could say. I'll, I'll get to that. Okay. Um, that's kind of what I want to talk about Great. is this, this issue of semiconductors, the CHIPS Act, and how this kind of plays into the US-China trade war, uh, you know, cross-strait relations, all of this stuff is at play. So just a bit of context for this, Taiwan's economy is actually 
experiencing the biggest boom it's had since the kind of Asian tiger years. It's doing very well. And this is largely due to semiconductor demand, especially after COVID, there is huge demand. Um, and obviously, one co- this one company, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, is, is the really irreplaceable one. So I said it, it accounts, Taiwan accounts for about 60% of global market share in semiconductors. But this one company produces about 90% of the world's advanced semiconductor chips. And the US is actually its largest market, accounting for more than 60% of its total sales. Apple alone, about a quarter of that. Now, China also does business with this company. China accounts for about 10% of its sales. Uh, now that it's this Taiwanese company is not allowed to sell to Huawei, the China telecommunications giant, due to a Trump administration rule. Remember back when Trump was talking a lot about Huawei, it was seen as a security risk. Um, but China and this company, the TSMC, they still kind of need each other. And China is the largest consumer of uh, semiconductors for unfinished goods, because a lot of the goods actually get assembled in China using chips from Taiwan. So this company, TSMC, they're looking at the world, they're seeing cross-strait tensions rising, US-China tensions rising, and they're preparing for the worst. If If war broke out across the Taiwan Strait, it would be absolutely devastating for their business and for the global economy at at large, basically. So it's beginning to expand beyond Taiwan. Notably, it's building a $12 billion plant in Arizona and a $9 billion plant in Japan. And it also has some plants in China and obviously in Taiwan. Now, if... TSMC has been lobbying for the CHIPS Act because if it builds that plant in Arizona, it will benefit from that money, the $52 billion or something that's going to subsidize chip manufacturing in the US. So, so yeah, effectively, I mean, you could say that that bill is designed to kind of um, shore up US supply chains against China, but it's kind of doing so by bringing in this Taiwanese company. I think Samsung, a Korean company, is also going to be a beneficiary of it. As long as they do it here in America. Right. As long as it's on American soil. Um, So yeah, Nancy, she met the, the chairman of this company on a visit to Taiwan, and they will have discussed this at their meeting. Of course, the act had already passed. Uh, TM- TSMC had been lobbying for it. And just after the news of their meeting was made public, uh, TSMC stock price jumped a little bit, 2%. Um, but still, uh, it was it, it was very interesting how this visit was kind of both, uh, you know, very politically salient, but also had this kind of economic um, power to it as well. And incidentally, Beijing, the reason it banned sand, uh, export of sand to Taiwan, is that natural sand is actually used in chip manufacturing. But Taiwan only gets 3% of its sand from China. So it wasn't, you know, it's not going to do very much. So that's a kind of roundabout summation. Um, 
a couple of other things to note. I think that going forward, you're going to see more uh, politicians, more lawmakers visiting Taiwan. I imagine if, you know, uh, Kevin McCarthy becomes Speaker of the House in November, he's going to want to visit Taiwan just to kind of match Pelosi. Um, there are, there's already talk in the UK Parliament uh, of a visit of MPs to Taiwan next year. There's a few different bills making their way through the, the House at the moment or through the Senate. There's one called the Taiwan Policy Act proposed by Lindsey Graham and Bob Menendez that would provide lots more money um, for defense assistance to Taiwan in the next four years. And it would rename the the Taipei Economic and Cultural Representative Office, quite a mouthful. That's Taiwan's kind of de facto embassy in Washington, D.C. They would rename that the Taiwan Representative Office. And of course, the word Taiwan in any official context is, is a real trigger to Beijing. Um, another couple of things to watch for, the 20th Party Congress, as I've said, that's probably going to happen in China in uh, October or November. This is when Xi Jinping will get his third term, his unprecedented third term. Um, so he obviously doesn't want to look weak in the run-up to this quite significant milestone. And I think more broadly that the response to this visit and what what China sees as the kind of hollowing out of, of, of the one China policy it's not just going to be these military exercises. It's not kind of one and done. I think it's an unfolding kind of iterative process and it will probably last through 2024 when Taiwan will have presidential elections. Um, in 95, the, the, the cross-strait crisis of that period was kind of partly triggered by the fact Taiwan was about to have a very important election, its first direct president presidential election. And I think you know, in a way, Beijing will be looking to perhaps make the case um, more or less coercively for two Taiwanese people that, you know, they want to kind of attract them, uh, use their soft power to attract them and to make unification seem like a less scary prospect. Now, I'm not sure. I, I don't know if it's uh, it might be a little late for that, but I think that's what they might be thinking. Is Tyro the, the everybody is for Nancy's trip. Nobody has opposed it. That at least not no politicians that I know of. In the US, you mean? I think US. Mitt Romney said something about it. <laughs> well, he also voted against John Stewart's pact bill. He, <laughs> Mitt Romney, the draft dodger, didn't want to give money to uh Iraqi war vets. So we're told we have to protect democracy. Is Taiwan the democracy? We're told it is. Um, I, yeah, I think Taiwan is a very mature democracy. I think, uh, just to pick a random example, I think compared to a place like Ukraine, for example, um, Taiwan is an extraordinarily mature democracy. It's now whether that means that we have to uh, defend it or indeed kind of make these kinds of shows of support for it. I'm, I'm not sure, but it's certainly um, impressive. I think what 
the Taiwanese people have been able to achieve, albeit, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat this, under the wing of the US. You know, Taiwan did benefit from this idea of Pax Americana, the kind of post-war order that allowed Taiwan to thrive. Um, there are lots of other reasons why it has thrived as well. But I do, I, I would suggest that it's not overhyped, you know, Taiwanese democracy. It's, it's real. And bilateral trade with China. Foxconn has factories in China, but it's a company that's headquartered in Taiwan. Yeah. Not the best company in the world, if not one of the worst. But Taiwan does a lot of business with China. Thomas Friedman says uh, no two countries with McDonald's ever go to war with one another. Uh, <laughs> he said that, you know, 20 years ago. The fact that Taiwan and China have so much bilateral trade, would she want to jeopardize that? Uh, I think right now Xi Jinping, top of his list of priorities is to move China up the industry value, um, the supply chain to kind of shore up uh, the Chinese economy against basically what decoupling with the US. So this is very high on his on his agenda right now. Interestingly, you mentioned Foxconn. Yeah, Foxconn is a Taiwanese company with huge operations in mainland China. It assembles iPhones using chips from the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company that then get shipped to the US, sold in the US. Foxconn is diversifying. It's just, I think it's either just opened or it's about to open factories in India where, and, and I think some in Vietnam as well, you know, in an effort to essentially get on the right side of this US-China trade war, it does seem like these big companies are going to have to pick a side. And I think by meeting with Nancy Pelosi in Taiwan, the chairman of TSMC has firmly picked the US. Um, Jeep just closed its last remaining factory in China to talk about decoupling, uh, citing meddling from the Chinese government. But I think Jeep was one of the first big companies to go into China in the 80s. And so that's really quite significant. So I think what you're seeing is a kind of slow motion decoupling of these two economies. And, you know, certain companies caught in the middle are going to have to make decisions. Is the decoupling primarily because China has gotten too successful? Uh, Do we I mean, really care about human rights and the Uyghurs and the plight of Hong Kong and Tibet? Aren't we purposely trying to create, or America, don't we want instability in the world just to make sure we're the, the top dog? I mean, uh, quite possibly. Um, well, what is the problem with China? Uh, from a cynical... I think it's if, great if, power politics, right? right. It's just... It's just, a, you know, this power is rising. The U.S. is the current, the kind of incumbent hegemon in the world. And the U.S. feels the need to kind of counter that. And I think there's also a lot of 
you know, there's more nefarious kind of interpretations of that as well, which I might well subscribe to. But I think on a basic level, this is about kind of balancing against China. But the problem is, is that if we want to do that, or if the West wants to do that, China is a government with many more, I would say, policy options at its disposal to kind of counter another society or another, um, what it perceives as a threat. Like China can take a, what it calls a full spectrum approach to this in a way that, and just by virtue of the kind of government that China is, the amount of power that it has, um, I think, you know, when you have this messy, rowdy democracy in the US, it's it's going to be tricky. So I'm I'm not sure where it ends. I don't, I certainly don't think that, um, you know, full scale war is on the way anytime soon. But I think it's, it's potentially something that's, you know, on the horizon, and people are talking it up. And there's always a danger when people talk it up that it could just be. <laughs> uh, so yeah. America, we, we fancy ourselves, you know, indispensable. Uh, how much of China's success is because of American investment. How much of China's... The fact that we buy the stuff they make and we ship so many of our manufacturing jobs there. Yeah. We've played a significant role in the rise of China. Absolutely, yeah. That's a really good point. And I think not only the US, but um, Japan. And the EU. the EU, right. even Taiwan. There's a there's a book that's just come out about this about Taiwanese investment into China in the 70s and 80s, back when Taiwan was booming. That was also a huge propellant of China's rise. Um, Japan in the 1980s, the same, and of course the US. I think the US and China will they still need each other. So with um, the one China policy. Mm-hmm. How much of this is a dance between Taiwan and China? Because it it doesn't sound like Taiwan and China are mortal enemies if Taiwan is investing in China. Uh, sounds like they cooperate pretty well. They have done historically. I'm not sure that that is going to be the case going forward if right. Taiwan can help it. But certainly historically... The ties between Taiwan and, and China are undeniable. Um, but I think that the more threatened Taiwanese people feel by China, the less compliant they are going to be with China's wishes. And I think that, like I said, just I was trying to say just before, I don't know if I said it right, but um, I think now what China will need to do more of is kind of winning what we would call the hearts and minds of the Taiwanese people, if that's even possible. But I think kind of saber rattling and, you know, coercion and threats, it's just not going to work on a people who have essentially like fought for their own democracy in the 1980s and won it and reaped benefits. So Um, the president uh, of China, her last name is Wen. No, Tsai. Well, oh, I, I see it as Tsai Ing-wen. 
Yeah, Chinese names, the surname comes first and then the two character the two syllables after are usually the first name. So she's called Ing Wen. I see. Her first name. Okay. But yeah, President Tsai. Okay. Are do do presidents and parties differ on their relationship, how they want the relationship to go with China? Is she conciliatory? Did she run? As I understand it, she's not conciliatory towards China. She wants a peaceful relationship with China. She's certainly not. I would I would argue she's not particularly um, antagonistic towards China. Some would debate me on that, I'm sure. But she essentially wants a kind of respectful, cordial status quo. She her party, the DPP, are associated with the independence movement, but she is not about to declare Taiwanese independence. I mean, they certainly lean that way. Are there uh, any revanchists, anybody who live in Taiwan? And I don't even know if... Uh, who, absolutely, who? there are. Yep. And those are the people who were photographed protesting Pelosi's visit. There are people in, in Taiwan who who yearn to be part of the mainland. Now, according to polls, they account for about 5% of the population, perhaps even less these days. I would have to check that. But there is a there is a small minority of people who identify very strongly with the mainland. Um, and then are there's they, just- Are all- they descendants of Chiang Kai-shek or are they descendants, were they, are they the original- uh, I'm not sure exactly if it if it's a kind of ethnicity identification. It it needn't be because so many people, most people in Taiwan are descendants of someone in the mainland, whether those people came over in the 17th century or in 1947 with Chiang Kai-shek. And I think the interesting thing is a lot of the people who came over in, in the 40s with Chiang Kai-shek Initially, they may have been very nostalgic for the mainland and quite pro-unification. These days, their children and their children's children are identifying increasingly with Taiwan. Um, And Taiwanese nationalism is a really significant force in Taiwanese society, regardless of who your ancestors are. So in that respect, it's a much more of a kind of uh, sort of civic, definition of of identity it's about kind of participation in society voting um and and democracy that is kind of how most taiwanese people would articulate their identities and it's usually in direct opposition to the political system of the prc right great job grace jackson is the co-host of literary hangover and she is visiting vermont right now and uh, come back next week. And we should really be talking about China every week. Uh, uh, it's uh, China Watch. Yeah, yeah. it's important. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. To Thank talk you. About. And how do people follow you on Twitter? Grace Jackson. Oh, at- yeah, I'm Grace Jackson on Twitter. Exactly. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Let us now go. We're running 10 minutes. Oh, hang on. Uh, We're running 10 minutes behind schedule, but uh, we'll get to everybody. Joining us from Deerfield, Massachusetts, is an old friend of mine, 
John Ross, gentleman farmer, comedy writer. I think uh, we're going to surprise you a little later on with Stump the Humps. Well, I'm going to surprise you by telling you that I'm going to get you back on schedule. This is going to be a 15-minute segment. Why? Um, I uh, was not uh, maybe exactly following the CDC guidelines. Um, I fucked a monkey. So it, they weren't, the website's not entirely clear. Um, no, that's not true. Uh, but I think I have COVID. Um, I've so far tested negative, but my daughter was in Paris in France for 10 days and flew through Iceland and picked her up from the airport and a two and a half hour drive home in the car with the windows rolled up and when she got home, she tested positive. No symptoms, but I don't see how it's really possible that I could have been in the car with her for two and a half hours. And uh, I'm not feeling 100%. Well, so, but that's just anyway. Well, hang on. Are you, You're fully vaccinated. Fully vaccinated, sir. You have all four shots. Four. Four shots. Four. Is it maybe, is it possible that the shots work and you they did what they're supposed to do and there wasn't well, that, a break. I mean, I, I'm certainly not going to get hospitalized, but I, I think I'm I think I'm hot. I think I'm running a little bit of fever. I feel like a little tickle in my throat. But eh, who cares about that? Nobody cares about that. Yes, Let they do. But on. what about the fact that you're probably a bit of a hypochondriac and you're I'm not at all a hypochondriac? Oh, come on. You you drive with your daughter. She has covid. So you immediately think I must have. I must. Who wouldn't think that way? I'm beginning to think I'm getting it from you. Well, I would love to uh, give it to me. Give you monkeypox. Um, so, I just, let me just tell you what's going on for me. Good news. Uh, big change. Um, well, I, I, I think you're familiar with the uh, investment uh, philosophy advice, probably popularized by um, Warren Buffett, but but I think. It basically, you know, what, what is it when, when everyone is greedy, you be scared. And when everyone's scared, you be greedy, basically a contrarian kind of position. Well, the political equivalent of that, I have just become a huge Trump supporter. <laughs> um, I'm going to the next rally. I'm buying the flags and the shirts and I'm, I'm giving him money. In fact, this is now going to be a pledge of segment. And I would like people to send me money, which I'm going to send directly to Donald. Well, he needs it. Apparently, they, they're I'm looking at the Associated Press. They're raiding Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. And I'm trying to get clear. You know, so that means there was a warrant, which means in order for a judge to have signed off on a warrant, they must have had proof that they were going to find what they said they were going to find or pretty good. Right. Wouldn't you have to have a pretty high level? Well, if you look at bar? Brianna Taylor, the judge signed off on a warrant. And uh, there was, they lied. But yeah, but it wasn't a no knock. But it, now somebody somebody I read somewhere that that Mar-a-Lago is actually closed there. It closed now. and He's not there. Is he there? Do we know? I don't know. doesn't matter. Um, but uh, did you, you watch any of CPAC? Yes, I did. I can't believe you fell for that. Uh you fell for that Victor Orban. That's not Victor Orban. That was Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> so 
so fake. <laughs> He's on. something else. Yeah. Oh. Did you did you like CPAC? Oh, it's you know it's uplifting is what I mostly find. Um, we should go to CPAC. Yeah. And just pretend. But it would be fun to just let it, loose, wouldn't it? it? Yeah. How do you get tickets? Uh, are they expensive? I don't know. But wouldn't it be fun just to hang out and it, it? It would. Well, which would be more fun, that or the rallies with the with the people? I've been to the rallies. You've been. I've never been to a rally. I've been I kind of want to go to a rally now. But uh, are there going to be more rallies? Is he going to? Here's my prediction: If he goes to jail. Uh, Donald Trump, we're talking about. I think he's going to um, take off the, the, the hair. I think he's going to shave his head, right. right? Get it down. I think he's going to get some cool prison tats. And he's going to get super ripped and buff. And he's going to study in the library, probably become a Muslim. And, and then when he gets out, he's going to be like an advocate for the, for the poor and stuff. That's right. what I think. He's not going to. You can't lock him up. There's, there's too much money to be made. Having him Ooh. on the outside, isn't there? Uh, money by who? Who's making the money? The media's. Ma- I mean, you, you, you like? Oh, you, you don't think there'll be some good media shows with him <laughs> behind in the in the Huskal in the He's pokey? Not, do you honestly think they would ever lock him up? Honestly, uh, I well, wish you were right. I, mean, I would love to see it. But I know, but. Everything he's done is criminal. You know what I mean? At a certain point, like it's like it's almost like, dude, you forced our hand. We didn't want to. We weren't going to lock you up. But you've broken so many laws so egregiously, so out in the open. We have no choice but to lock you up or we look like assholes. But but can't you? I'm being serious here. Can't you commit so many crimes? Yeah. I mean, I it's like a lot of stuff at the wall. It's like, where do you start? Well, I mean, you. Uh, I think the insurrection, the, the seditious conspiracy, I mean, you know, calling, you know, tampering with an election. I mean, witness tampering. I mean, it, the, the list is so incredible. I mean, Alvin Bragg should have put him away. I don't know what happened there. Somebody got to him. But but it doesn't look like Merrick Garland's backing down. Um, Boy, and Connie I just, Willis I, isn't backing down. And, and and Lindsey Graham is going to be in some trouble. Like, I, I think a lot of so many people were lining up to help him and got themselves really dirty and and were not smart enough to cover their tracks. Those people are all caught. And at what point do they stay loyal to a guy who's not going to get the nomination or become president again or have any money like they're all going to turn on him, aren't they? I, it sounds like it's a replay of the Mueller investigation to me. It does not seem that way at all. The Mueller, it was all quiet, quiet, quiet. And then it came out and then Barr buried it. And, and uh, Mueller was, you know, had dementia and came out. And, and he's a, a super hardcore Republican. And so he came out and just kind of mumbled that, yeah, you, you could uh, obstruction of justice if somebody wanted to, I, I guess. And then took off, you know. So I hope you're right. It just feels yeah. like he escapes. Well, because he always has. But but this is this is crazier. There's just 
the list of crimes is just too long and too out in the open. And 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 it's threatening our democracy, like so clearly. So, you know what I mean? It's like if we don't, that's that's what, you know, I posted that I texted that thing, tweeted that thing. Um, My answer to Lester Holt, who basically asked Merrick Garland, like, you know, what if, you know, our, our country is. What if, what if locking up Trump would tear this country apart? And I've said the country's already torn apart. The only thing that can put it back together is locking him up. Yeah. I mean, we all have to kind of get on the same page and go, yeah, that shit was criminal. So 80% of Republicans think the insurrection was just Donald Trump. But, but I, I you know, all these statistics, I, I, I question all of them. They say 80% of Republicans... How many people are identifying as Republicans? I think that number is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. I think there's like, you know, two, three hundred Republicans left. And so, yeah, you know, a hundred and eighty of them are like going, yeah, I think the insurrection was bullshit. I don't think I think more and more people are now starting to identify as, you know, independence or whatever. Yeah, there's a lot of stupid people left, but. You know, we're not going to cater to them, I don't think. 75 million people voted for him. Back then, in in 2016, well, in 2020, you know. um, And to convict, you have to find a a jury of 12 people who have to be a cross-section of the community. His side gets to... Voidir. Voidir. Which sounds like a Yiddish word, but it's not. Oh, voir dire. Um, <laughs> don't you think all it takes is one? You don't uh, think one uh, out uh, of 12? A uh, uh, voir dire in the headlights? Um, <laughs> the, you know, yes. But, you know, in the Mueller uh, uh, trial, not Mueller, Manafort. In the Manafort trial, there was a MAGA person on the jury. And she even said, I wore my MAGA hat to the court every day. I left it in the car and I didn't want him to be guilty, but she heard the case and she voted to convict because the evidence was overwhelming. And look, lawyers, it's not going to be like, you know, a bunch of, you know, Trump type dopey lawyers. I mean, that's going to be on his side, but on our side, it's going to be federal prosecutors who are sharp and they know how to, you know, spot somebody it's not like these MAGA types are, you know, genius covert operatives who can like act like, oh, I'm so smart. No, I will never. And then they're, they're morons. They're, they're not going to be able to hide, you know, their um, objectives in, in, right. in a, when they're questioned. They'll get 12 people. It won't okay. be that hard. Have I you- think I've always said this thing ends with him in a country where he can't be extradited. And I don't know if when they went down to Mar-a-Lago, if they got his passport, but I don't know if he's there. Somebody said that um, Javanka, Jared Ivanka, was they were going to be fueling up a plane to uh, one of those, you know, Middle East countries, whether it's, you know, Dubai or Saudi Arabia or any of those ones that he's been dealing with. And that's going to be his uh, his present to his father-in-law. It's like, you know, gotcha. And he's going to be on a, a plane and he's going to end up, you know, in one of those towers. And he's going to go, we should make this one a Trump tower. I just don't see that happening. 
I wish you were. Well, so right. what? So what do you see happening? Him just running again in twenty twenty four, and we're I nothing. Everybody, everybody's just going to go back home and go. Well, we couldn't prove it. I don't know. Uh, it right. is. It, it's. I don't know, but I don't think we're ever going to lock up a, a U.S. president. Have you watched? I, I wish we would. I wish he's, we'd lock all. I'd, I'd like to see all of them locked up. But yeah, but but the thing is, and I mean all that. of the all of the rest of them were, you know, they they fell into this narrow thing. They were presidential. They did the the act, and they were accepted by both sides. This guy came in a bull in a china shop, broke everything, no norms, nothing. It was just ridiculous. So to me. All of the norms of, well, we would never put a president in jail like that. That's out the window. He hasn't been a president. He's just this crazy con artist who's unbelievably stupid and and sadistic and a pathological liar. Like, yeah, we're going to put that guy in jail. He's not even a it's it's a joke that he was a president. Seems kind I don't of unfair how that happened. I don't know if America was just trying to get back at our founding fathers. Like, right. He's low-hanging fruit. I think Cheney and Bush should should go first. But I agree with you that they had enough gravitas to justify. And they were connected to the rest millions you know, of people. They didn't have their generals, you know, calling them, you know, morons. And and also, you heard that thing today where he said, you know, why couldn't you be more like the German generals from World War Two? He said that. So speaking, it's uh, you, it's hard to believe both our fathers fought yep. in World War II. It's hard to believe that there are people in this country who didn't root for America during World War II. Let me just tell Dr. Fraud, we're running 10 minutes behind Dr. Fraud. Oh, I, I, I would like to concede my time to Dr. Well, Harry. Well, give us five minutes, Dr. Fraud. Because, what do you and me need to hug a China for? Well, I wanted to ask you about Alex Jones. Are you watching the trial? <laughs> um, you, you know, because when not, I wa- I've been watching it, not like the OJ, I, I get all the updates. I, I thought of you. I'm thinking John Ross must be glued to the set it, watching this. Be this to it, me, this is more satisfying than the OJ trial. First of all, Except it's not really a trial. It's just uh, the damages. Right. He he already lost the trials because he didn't hand over his stuff. So it was just like automatic guilty. Now we're just and now it's this whole question of is it two times the plus seven hundred and fifty thousand or can he do the whole? Nobody seems to know the answer, but there's still two more to come. Right. Let me play you uh, a clip. My favorite clip from if I can find it from the the uh, I don't think I have it. I mean, that guy, that guy's completely insane and, and like verifiably insane. And the fact that Donald Trump would go on his show and talk about what a great guy he was and how fantastic and good for America. It's he's they're all going to jail. I I wish you were right. There's a comedian he reminds me of. uh, Oh, uh, Alex. Alex Jones. Yeah. uh, I. Half the guys on the road. Come on. No, no. It, uh, hang on. It's. Uh, give me one second. Well, I thought I could find it. Nope. He reminds me. Reenact of, it. 
Sam Kinison. I can't. Uh, it reminds me of Sam Kinison. But you ever listen to those old clips of Sam Kinison? They do not age well. Well, which makes them even funnier. Yeah. I mean, at the time, I was not a fan. If I want to see negative and hear negative news every morning, I'll just watch Fox News Channel. They'll tell me what's wrong with America and everybody. I I wish I looked that good. I got I got to do what he does. John <laughs> Ross, it's great to see you. You good don't have you. COVID. You don't. Uh, we'll see. That's the thing. I'm at the. I, I'm already. I'm skipping my. Uh, Playoff game tomorrow night, but that team doesn't need me. Um, but Thursday night, I have a game. And if I if I come back, if the PCR test comes back positive, uh, I'm going to have to sit that one out. That's not going to be good. Right, get some um, Plavoxoid. <laughs> you, you can always find a good way to pronounce a word. Well, what's the thing that Biden? Paxlovid. What, what, what does Biden take? Paxlovid. Paxlovid. All there right. you go. And, uh, and and one more time, last time, Chipotle. They don't deserve to be pronounced properly. Okay, fair enough. Um, all right. Despicable. You're despicable. All right. Bye, John. That's what I, 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 I used to describe myself as a cross between Bugs Bunny and Johnny Carson. That was my my persona on stage. Um, uh, how do people follow you on Twitter? Your Twitter feed is amazingly funny. Uh, fun with friction. And yeah. Okay. Right. Follow John on Twitter. Take care. You don't, I'll bet you you don't have. Bye. Bye. All right. See you later. Joining you. us is, is Dr. Harriet Fraud. Your, your head is cut off a little. Yes, it is. There you go. No longer beheaded. <laughs> We're of all oh, the people, you're the right? last person who should be beheaded. I have a list of about, yes, indeed. Uh, long yeah, list. Of a long list of people. Right. Yeah. Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host of It's Not Just Sitting in Your Head and Capitalism Hits Home. And we'll find out who you co-host with later on in the yes. show. Fair enough. And you don't think Donald Trump is ever going to end up in prison. You know, they're raiding his home in Mar-a-Lago. Um, I don't think he ever will. I really don't think he will. Yeah. It would be symbolically really nice if he did. But no, of course he won't go to prison. Yeah. But he, it, you know, I think one of the reasons he speaks and, and endorses Alex Jones and everything else, he's also talking to overtly fascist groups he's trying to get his stormtroops assembled they've just took a blow and now he wants to get them reassembled yeah well there was some good news this week if you're not really paying attention yes if you're not really paying if, attention. if you're really not looking or if you own in the hamptons you fancy yourself a Democrat and read the New York Times. You're, you're saying Biden really, really did it. He's 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 on a roll, right? He killed Ayman al-Zahari. This is what the the right wing in the Democratic Party is saying. He, he, just, he just passed the most transfer, transformative piece of legislation since the New Deal. 
Yes, and it's only one-seventh of what he asked. Really, it's pathetic. Well, what's good in it? What do you like? What do you like? There are some taxes that are laudable. There is some effort for wind and solar. That's really important. Pushing electric cars as a solution instead of mass transit is criminal. Continue, Continue that thought, please. Yes. Well, it's lauded as a great achievement that they didn't even mention mass transit. The obvious thing that other countries have. I mean, China has 12 high-speed trains zigzagging across China. We have zero. We have trolley lines that they covered over thanks to General Motors. They could uncover them that link all sorts of rural towns and cities. And they do not use the kind of fuels that are being, that are endangering the planet. And so it's a failure. It's also a failure that it actually raises a seventh of what Biden originally asked for. But compared to the other things, it's a a success. But to me, it proves capitalism doesn't work. It's stymied. They can't do anything. Right. And it's not particularly Biden's fault, although I do think he looks like he was recently disinterred, I must say. Yeah. He has the vibrancy of someone just dug up from the grave also. But it isn't him personally. Capitalism is in trouble. The empire is going. That's why we're fighting to the last Ukrainian, spending billions needed here on arms for them. I mean, it's it's a disaster. People are in trouble. The uh, mass murders are... Increasing incrementally from one generation to the next, starting in, I think it was 2016 with the Columbine murders and so on. Those are just the school shootings, but other things as well. Things are breaking down. And these big victories are pretty, I don't want to say lame, it's bad for the handicapped, pretty inadequate. Yeah, They are not adequate. And they're all they could do which is pathetic. It's a climate crisis. But, and also they, uh, half of, you know, we only have two parties, both representing the employers, but half of them didn't even endorse it. So they'll give it every bit of trouble on a state and local level that they possibly can to undo it because we are a dysfunctional dying empire. And when we face that, then we can plan and use these vast stores of armaments to get rid of them and have a country for us and redistribute the wealth. Yep, absolutely. Employment, you know, we, but Americans would have to be in the street before that would ever happen. Well, like uh, they, the way the that they are in the street. Uh, that's where Getting they're, there. Well, no, they're living there. Um, that's, 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 that's not a symbolic statement. So the the Amtrak. I was reading that the exec, the chief executives over at Amtrak, paid themselves exorbitant bonuses this year because yeah. they were able to not turn a profit, just get more money 
in subsidies from the federal government. So they celebrate. It's it's a public-private partnership, Amtrak. I happen to love Amtrak. I think I love traveling on Amtrak. Very comfortable and nice and very expensive, too. And you wish the high-speed trains actually went on high speed. But it's better than Metro North. You could say that for it. Just a big endorsement. It's a low bar. Train travel would save every... Would say we were traveling. We were driving. I think we, I can't remember the town we visited, but you look is outside of New York City, and by the train station, it, there are re, they're revitalizing the downtown around the the train station in that town because that's like Europe. yeah. If there's a train stop, there's going to be commerce. That's how you revitalize every city in America by building a train track is like a river. Yes, it, it is. It creates, and it creates commerce. Every stop is like a port, but uh, the oil companies don't want that. No, they don't. They want everyone in their little individual car with 60,000 of them dead every year from car accidents. And uh, they, it, there was that slogan in the 60s, what's good for General Motors is good for America. That's not true anymore, but they cling to it. We need mass transit. If you take the trains in France or Germany or Switzerland, wow, they're beautiful. They're clean. They have lovely salads and nice foods. They have free magazines. It's another experience. It's very comfortable. The bathroom is nice. I mean, it's just... And utterly different experience. It also explains the French paradox. They often ask, well, why do the French eat fatty food, but they remain thin and Americans get increasingly obese? They take mass transit. You know, living in New York City, we don't have the obesity problem in New York City. You have to walk. You have to walk and and you actually have to stretch and you dodge bullets on the subway. It's good for (laughs) Climb up all those stairs and down all right. those stairs. But, it, but people move. There are a lot of older people who are in great shape in New York City because they're moving. That's Sitting right. in a car, not good for you. Not no, it's not you. good for you. And also it would, as you say, that's a very wonderful illusion, you know, image that mass transit and the train would be a river. A city like New Haven, which is in many ways a provincial dump. That would change if you had a rapid train. People from New York would go and live in New Haven where it's much cheaper right. and it would take an hour. Right. Instead of two on a, a you know, not very reliable train uh, mechanism in the Metro North. Now you Also, if you wanted to cut down traffic, France, which is hardly paradise, but it has the RER. All the suburbs are connected to this wonderful rapid transit that goes right into the center of Paris. Most Americans, including me, don't really travel. So all you know is what you see in in front of you. Right. And the danger of not traveling is you can be led to believe anything they want you to believe Mm -hmm. about America. American exceptionalism is caused by Americans 
knowing nothing about the world except America. And being told, we're the greatest, the greatest, the greatest, the greatest, yeah. while knowing nothing. You know, one of the things that really has inspired me was the victory in France of Mélenchon. Because within a few weeks, he united the socialists, the communists, the climate people, the unionists, the racial justice people, the sexual justice people under a socialist banner. And they've won the majority of the seats. And the first thing that their Congress did was raise the minimum wage 15% and all municipal workers' wages 10% across the board. And they already have very good public health care and child care and after school care and summer care and paternity leaves and maternity leaves. You know, but he is he's not going the American way. He's holding on to the social services that people desperately need, unlike Macron, who suffered terribly in the last election when Mélenchon united the left. It was really impressive. The last election, he got 1% less than the fascists. This time he got a good deal more. Yeah. You you were talking about Colombia's inaugurating a new president, Gustavo Petro. He yeah. was, I don't know if he, he wasn't a member of FARC, but he was a guerrilla. The other alternative guerrilla movement. And he got elected promising to uh, hire the unemployed and stop drilling and spend uh, money on higher education by making it free. Uh, how does that happen in a country like Colombia? That, that yeah, we they've never had it. They never had a left government. But I think people have had it. Also, what he did is what they did in Chile and what Mélenchon did in France. He united the indigenous movement of all of those South American indigenous people who have been dispossessed with the labor movement of dispossessed wage workers, with the communist party, with the socialist party, with the feminist movement, with the sexual rights movement. And together under one banner, they won. His vice president is a black woman who was a house cleaner because he wants to give people a chance who have leadership abilities and who wouldn't and didn't have a, an elite education. Right. You know, it's beautiful, but it's the union that we don't have. The left is splintered here. If we weren't, we would be the biggest force. The right seems much more united. The, the right seems united in stealing that's election. right. Stealing, raping, all of it. Right. Controlling and, and stealing black people in the back, all of those past times. Yeah. Yeah. Did you read about the police in New York City cheating on their sergeant exams? There was Yes. I also read about them covering their license plates with masks so that they could speed and not, and get out of the detectors that the police set up and then go as fast as they want it. Sure. Right. Sure. You know, they're, they're like the Uvalde police, although they don't just sit there. They shoot people back right. <laughs> rapidly. <laughs> so what did you want to talk about today? I wanted to talk about capitalism and loneliness 
Okay. Because we and the Brits are both in a period of acute loneliness, only they have now a cabinet minister of loneliness because they realize that when people are cut off and lonesome, they're much sicker. Public health um, nations are better on loneliness, addressing loneliness because they pay the bills because people who are unhappy, lonely, abandoned, get sick much faster. They cut down uh, Medicare bills radically in New York when they tried an experiment, which of course was so successful it was discontinued, of turning a single room hotel, which had been kind of a real rundown cheap hotel, into a very lovely place for seniors where everybody had a small room of their own with a little tiny kitchenette. And then there were big collective spaces where there were games, where there were movies, where there were projects. And they found that the Medicare bills were cut by half. Really? Because people wanted to live. You know, Americans are also dying faster and faster every year, whereas other countries are extending their life. We're cutting hours off because out of despair, there's the book by Case and Deaton, Deaths of Despair, because people have been abandoned here. They're left to die. We have the most deaths in the world because we won't close the borders because business wants them open. And so we leave people there to die. Amazon's a great example where the first protest that Chris Smalls, who won in the Amazon labor union, his first protest was a walkout when he wasn't even, the union hadn't even been formed, a walkout because they weren't getting protective equipment against COVID. They weren't being told when one of their number was sick so that they could ask that person to go home. And they weren't being given safety precautions of any kind. Of course, Amazon said they did everything they could. They were compacting people together. And although they put out regulations, you may not stand near someone. In order to do your job, you had to. And that's why they were coming down with COVID and dying. Right. And so that people, and that's just Amazon. It's the same across all America's biggest employers, the call centers, Walmart, Amazon, and fast food. And so they, A, the government abandoned them to die. B, they're lonely because nobody's standing up for them. Not only is there crime in the street where they could be shot or knifed or robbed, whatever, but the bigger crimes are where you go to the bank and you're, you have to pay a fee for everything. When your credit card is absorbent and you're ripped off, when you go to a job and you know you've made them rich, and your wages are stagnant because they're taking the amount of money you make. They wouldn't hire you if you didn't make more for them than you're worth to them and not sharing it at all. And you're abandoned and alone and crime is happening. You know, crimes, I was really impressed reading in this consumer products report that TJ Maxx, which is very prosperous, has made money on these infant recliners that kill kids. That's why they were taken off the main market. Same with the rattle where babies swallow the pellets, but they were discounted and they have gotten into no trouble. They had to pay some fines, but they're not in jail. Like the people in Rikers who didn't do much, who just sold pot 
a long time ago. Or just having or having a bad day. Uh, don't have their meds. We lock up people That's for, right. for being off their meds. That's right. Or for jumping the turnstile. And there's the Sackler family that killed 600,000 people who overdosed with OxyContin because it was sold under false premises. And although they've had certain indignities, they are no longer on the board of the Guggenheim, nor are they on the board of the Museum of Natural History. But they're keeping the 37 billion, or maybe only 30 billion because they had to pay some fines. They're not in jail. So people feel criminally ripped off and alone, abandoned by their government, unsafe, not only on the small level, but on the larger level where nothing much is done about it. Trump will get away with that. Bragg suspended the case for grift in New York, even though there was no good reason to do that. All of his prosecutors left in protest. What is this? People feel abandoned by the government, abandoned by their employers, and terribly alone because the pandemic increased people's loneliness. You didn't have the nice, friendly encounters you might have had at a store online or um, crossing the street or whatever, because you people were dangerous. So right. you had to stay away. And 60% of New Yorkers live alone. And so with the pandemic, there's an enormous loneliness around that. Even the personals have reflected that during the pandemic, instead of saying wanted casual sex uh, completely with a complete with complete works and no discussion, right? right. It's now wanted a companion. I have a country house on the beach. Please come live with me. You know, right. I I have a delivery job. Please sit next to me during the day. Because people are so lonesome. And, and we forget that we're social animals. You have to be reminded that we're social animals. We do because our society pits us against each other. You're always having to watch out for personal crime. You watch out that you're getting ripped off, which you will be. It's the environment we live in. And you don't have a sense of people together. There is no mass party that brings us all together. And religions are often exposed as being extortion mills. And so people are really desperate and lonely, and it just doesn't work anymore. It's interesting but, you brought up the opioid crisis. On the Ralph Nader Radio Hour this week, we have the authors of American Cartel inside the battle to bring down the opioid industry and they gave a stat that was staggering 98% of all prescription opioids are prescribed in the United States worldwide wow I, I, it was staggering i i heard that i went are you kidding me 98% of prescription opioids are prescribed in the United States and i'm thinking are we in that much physical pain that no we it, it's but it's really a criminal cartel because what you do is they had an amazing selling machine, the Sacklers, with OxyContin, bribing doctors, including cuts to people like 
CVS, which was sued, Rite Aid, Duane Reed, they are supposed to report suspicious numbers of prescriptions. They didn't. There's one town in Ohio that sued where the average person got 350 pills every month. What? But they managed to silence everyone and to use these hard sell techniques. And they ended up killing 600,000 people who died of overdoses. And the premise on which they sold Oxy in the first place was that it was a 12-hour sedative. But in their studies in Puerto Rico that they did, it only lasted for eight hours. And by the last four, you were desperate. And then if your prescription is canceled, you're hooked and you go on heroin. Right. And they knew that. And they knew that. Yes, they did. They knew it. And it's mass murder. And they'll never see a day in jail. It's it's the worst drug crisis this country has ever gone through, dating back to Nixon's war on drugs, the war on heroin, the war on crack cocaine. Yep, this is is the worst worst drug epidemic. Every little town had holdups at drugstores and so on. And Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family is still negotiating with the, the the district attorneys on how much they're willing to pay. Uh, they should be next to El Chapo. They sure should be. And their holdings should be nationalized to pay for addiction recovery. But they're not. And they've just, like the tobacco companies, they're now concentrating on selling in Europe. Right. Because Americans have caught on. But they will not see a day at Rikers like so many people with petty crimes. This country is... uh, It's collapsing. It's the empire is collapsing. We've lost the last four wars. We're trying for geopolitical advantage by turning Ukraine to rubble and using them against the Russians because the Russians are allied with the Chinese. The Russians have a lot of raw materials and things the Chinese want, and the Chinese have huge technology and enormous population, and it works. And they're part of that BRICS alliance, which is um, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. And that's why, you know, the U.S. is losing its hold at Biden's meeting of the South American states where they wouldn't allow Cuba or Nicaragua or Venezuela to come. They only got four countries. Right. Very quickly, let's go to Lane and see him. You have a question for Dr. Yeah. Dr. Froda, I know America has the same problem as the UK where yes. the the police have sort of became a de facto social service and looking after people with mental health issues. And Not taking looking after them, arresting them and shooting them is more like it. Yeah, well, but they're, they're having to deal with the, the overflow of that problem not being taken care of. Absolutely. I just want to let you know that I'm in a programme um, set up by our police to counter that because our, our police are more community minded. Good. And I w- I'm wondering if that's a way of um, the American police can do the same. And Well, they're not the- volunteering for it, the American police. However, there is a yeah. movement to replace 
police with social workers when there's a mental health problem. Right. Um, and I think I was uh, the, the guy I'm with at Durham Constabulary. He he set this he set this as his own personal task. That's now gone through seventeen of our forces, where they understand the causes of crime, they understand the causes of addiction, and um, they see the root cause as we all know has been austerity, poverty. Right, uh, political disenfranchisement, and, and loneliness. Capitalism is what yeah. is. and loneliness. Yeah. I don't think they'll ever use the C word. I think they probably think the C, the capitalism word. But um, I'll, I'll just be interested to think if there's, if there's any way that is, it, is there any way of possibly pushing local on a local level police forces to do the same in the states, or if there's any programs existing. Of course, there are programs. There are programs defunding the police. There are programs for changing police from police to social workers when there's a, an emotionally charged incident. Hmm. And there are those movements. What we don't have is a powerful national movement that demands all of these things in the name of all of us. Hmm. Would be a so huge I think, improvement. I think the police see it as more, that's their way of saving money. They don't want yes. people to end up in jail here, here at least. Yeah, well, they, they try to prevent crime before it happens, you see. That's a good idea. But with the prison industrial complex being what it is and those yeah. profitable prisons and profitable big selling things. I had a client who worked with recently released offenders. They had huge sales at coliseums with all sorts of things for restraining and not, mm. you know so on. It's a very profitable enterprise in the United States. So you'd have to fight the capitalist angle here. Yeah. But there are attempts and they are very, very worthy. Yeah. Not fair to the sure. cops either. They can't handle it. Thank you, Lane. Thank you. Always good Cheers, to hear babes. from you. Thank you, Dr. Harriet Fraud. Dr. Harriet. Thank you. Your, your show is on WBAI here in Manhattan where people can Listen to you every Wednesday, I believe, at 2.30. That's it. Sometimes they have to close for this or that because they're having, the, you know, the hearings of something. But yeah. other than that, 2.30 on Wednesdays. And with Liam Tate and Ikoi Hiro, I do. It's not just in your head. Fantastic. Thank okay, you. How thank do people, you how do people contact you? H-F-R-A-A-D at gmail.com. H-F-R-A-A-D at gmail.com or through my website, HarrietFraud.com. Fantastic. Thank you so thank much. You. Take care, everyone. And thank you for listening. Thank you. We love you. We really do. Thank you. Sure. You're listening. To, thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, DavidFeldmanShow.com. Coming up in a few seconds, I hope, is Professor Adnan Hussein and... We're going to be going to Denton, Texas to see a live performance of Professor Mike Steinell in about an hour. If you're just joining us, we're talking about Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago being raided by the FBI. Fox News is not happy about this. Here is Don, uh, what's his name, Bongiorno? I love this guy. I, I, I don't know how to pronounce his uh, he was on with Jesse Waters, and uh, he's very upset. Dan Bongiorno. 
I just want to say in closing, listen, America, they're laughing at you. The left thinks this is hilarious. If you doubt me, just go to any of their goofy platforms, Twitter or elsewhere right now. They think this is hilarious. You know what? I just former law enforcement. Uh, I don't think it's hilarious. I don't think it's funny. Uh, when they lock them up, that'll be funny. Joining us, I hope, is Professor Adnan. There you are. Good to see you. Uh, Professor Adnan Hussein. Good to joins. be with you. He is the chairman, chairman. Yeah, chairman. You are the, the chairman of the religion department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. You also host the Mudgeless podcast. I'm going to ask you uh, who's on this week. And Noam Chomsky is on guerrilla history. That's right. Yeah. Look for that um, episode where uh, Henry Hakamaki and Brett O'Shea and I talk with uh, Professor Noam Chomsky about his book um, with uh, Vijay Prashad, who follows after our conversation with Professor Chomsky. The book is called The Withdrawal. Um, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and the fragility of U.S. power. And that should be coming out uh, mid-month. And so our episode uh, is coming out, uh, I think, next Friday. Not this Friday, but the following Friday. Right. You said that he spoke of some kind of Keynesian defense system that we've set up here in the United States I talked about Raytheon laying off 4% of its workforce. And I thought, well, that's not Keynesian. We're, we're giving all this money to Raytheon and they're not creating jobs. How conscious, conscious does, does Chomsky talk about how conscious our politicians are about stimulating the economy by giving money to the weapons dealers? Is it out in the open? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, his remark there um, was about, I think, restructuring that took place as a result of World War II and the post-World War II economy and increasingly as a result of deindustrialization in the United States, that the kind of system of capitalism that we have in the United States is really floated by uh, government spending um, in the military Um you know, all of our foreign aid is really kind of recycling, you know, um, contracts with companies to provide military equipment or various other kinds of services. Uh, and that uh, remains one of the kind of leading um, areas of U.S. industry is really, you know, the security, surveillance, um, architecture. Uh, you have to see a lot of the new technology, media kind of companies, the high-tech Silicon Valley computer and internet uh, industries as a kind of outgrowth in some ways of um, investments in um, defense spending. I mean, a lot of these innovations come out of DARPA and other spin-off projects, the, the defense research uh, agency. Um, and so that is really um, the basis for a lot of the U.S. economy is military spending by the government and its corollaries. That is a kind of Keynesianism that um, creates its own demand, right? You know, because the government purchases this, this and also sells it abroad. 
uh, partly through its political and imperial influence on global institutions, military alliances like NATO. And so I thought, you know, in the book, this was a very useful way to phrase it. I mean, I have mentioned certain things about uh, how this is almost the only real industry that the U.S. seems to have are things related to military security, surveillance, and so on. But I hadn't really conceptualized it the way he had as kind of Keynesianism, but it's a particular kinds of Keynesian um, spending. I mean, in the Great Depression, uh, you know, Keynes's ideas were priming the pump, creating demand, um, pumping money into the system so that you could have consumers. Here, this is not about individual kinds of consumers and consumption, uh, but it is about um, a certain set of niche constituencies that end up and interests that end up having great sway over U.S. foreign policy and uh, spending uh, domestically uh, because uh, they've got uh, control over the government to pump up uh, these private companies that um, offer. And I guess you, you could also say this actually reminds me of something that I thought of in the 1990s when we had the restructuring under Clinton, the end of welfare as we know it. And, you know, no more um, free ride. Basically, you know, what Reagan, uh, you know, fantasized about doing, but Democrats would have opposed had it been, you know, suggested um, and put into legislation by Reagan. Clinton managed to accomplish that entire agenda, it seems. And at the time, I thought, in a way, the only uh, place where the welfare state survives is the military. You want to get a job? Well, good luck trying to find something in this economy, a living wage. You have to go into the military where you'll have security of employment. I mean, you might be killed. You might have to go to a foreign war, but you can count on that. You want um, an education? And you can't pay for it because we're increasing the cost of education, defunding, you know, state education. Right. You go to the military because they will pay for you to go to college as long as you go to training twice a month. And, you know, eventually you have to serve, you know, some years in the military. You want health care? Well, you're not going to get it through the private system because they're cutting back on all of these social benefits. And there's, you know, Medicaid is being cut. Sometimes it's being funded or not in various states. And you have to wait till you're 65 to get Medicare. Right. So you have to go into the military. And so it seemed to me this last survival of the welfare state was in the military. So that kind of social spending that you see in the 1930s of putting in universal programs, you know, to raise the standard of living and keep people from falling in the Great Depression under FDR, that then also turned into, you know, kind of military spending during World War II. You know, it seems like the pump got shut off for people, okay, all of those programs, but it stayed open for the military. And, um, for the economy that's built around it's it. It's so really think, interesting because when Clinton became president, Clinton became president in 93. It was like two years after the end of the Cold War. Exactly. There, there was yeah. supposed to be a peace dividend. Peace dividend. Yeah. I was like, where are we getting the peace dividend? We, you know, I'll tell you, you know, the military got the peace dividend <laughs> because they now didn't have major buildup to confront a major threat, but they nonetheless got expanded uh, right. funding, right? It, right? it actually expanded during that period. 
incredible. I want to ask you about the 40 dead Palestinians in Gaza in a second. And there seems to be a, a, a civil war between, not a civil war, but a dispute between Hamas and I believe Islamic Jihad in Gaza. Uh, and but I want to ask you about that in a second, but I want to t turn to guerrilla history and the conversation you've been having uh, about the uh, leftist politicians doing quite well in Latin America, Mexico, Argentina, Bolivia, in the past three or four years have all elected left of center presidents, Peru, Honduras. Uh, yesterday, uh, uh, Petro, I think his name, in, in, in Colombia, who... Uh, are you shocked by this? How do you explain it over guerrilla history? What is happening in uh, South America? And how, can, how can we get some of it? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I do hope that we might have Alex Avenia on soon to talk about it. And perhaps he might even come yeah, on he, the show Henry, uh, here to yeah, talk. Yeah, It would be great to have him former guest on this show and also on guerrilla history. Um well, I mean, I guess I'm not so shocked because, um, you know, things keep getting worse and worse and people are reacting to, um, uh, you know, kind of more right wing governments um, in Latin America that had been, um, you know, in power maybe the last few years with the uh, bringing down of Lula's government and, you know, other kinds of changes that had happened. But this picks up on you know, the pink tide that happened in the late 2000s. I mean, you know, there was uh, uh, remarkably, I mean, that is the time that it really surprised me. So this seems like it's building on those when Evo Morales came in, in, in you know, in, in, in Bolivia, when, of course, you had Hugo Chavez in uh, Venezuela. Um, Lula? You had, yeah, and Lula, of course, is probably, you know, of the biggest and most important country, if, uh, you know, Brazil. Um I was surprised then, uh, but I think what happened, uh, and this is actually a thought I had at the time, um, and I ended up seeing that Tariq Ali actually wrote a good book that really, you know, kind of suggested this, that the U.S. got so trapped in its global war on terrorism with, um, you know, invasions in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, such costly and also you might say in terms of the foreign policy establishment absorbing concerns that it wasn't able to spend the time and the attention um, kind of controlling and managing um, the Western Hemisphere the way it always has and that has always oh, been see. part of oh, the Monroe Doctrine. Yeah. Oh, I the Monroe. Go ahead. I didn't. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. the Monroe Doctrine, of course, uh, you know, from the 19th century, the U.S., even before it was really a major power, announces essentially that the Western Hemisphere is its particular territory uh, to manage and that, um, you know, foreign international European nations should not try and expand colonies, you know, in and, you know, establish you know, military bases or create military alliances that would be to the detriment of the United States because the doctrine was is that the United States is the hegemon of the region. And, you know, it's been the case 
uh, since then that the U.S. has always been most concerned with guaranteeing its security as it understands it and pursuing its interests um, you know, in the Western Hemisphere. And so it starts, of course, with confronting, um, you know, the old the old Europe, as Donald Rumsfeld might want to, mm-hmm. to call it, you know, the Spanish Empire, um, you know, helping the Cubans a little bit to, you know, uh, overthrow uh, the Spanish. Um, um, and, um, you know, there's a period there where essentially the U.S. takes over a lot of the Spanish colonies. So, you know, you've got Puerto Rico, you've got in the in the you know Pacific, the Philippines. Right. And you have a series of U.S. expansion you know, in in the region. And so through the 1950s, through the Cold War, in particular, any kind of communist insurgency or movement or democratically elected government was seen as a huge threat because it was essentially understood in U.S. foreign policy terms as a proxy of a foreign power, i.e. the Soviet Union interfering in the Western Hemisphere that had to be controlled by the U.S., which is, of course, why the Cuban Revolution was something that, even though in its early stages it may have been socialistic, but it was really pursuing a kind of militant third world nationalist independence movement, it became identified as many other militant third world nationalist movements were during the Eisenhower period and afterwards as a threat, as tantamount to communism. And, you know, we actually just had a recording of for our Sanctions uh, as War series that we're doing for guerrilla history. Uh, one of the case studies was uh, looking at the article or chapter in that book that collected uh, volume on Cuba and sanctions on Cuba, which is the longest running and most draconian uh, system of sanctions on any country since, of course, the 1960s. You know, um, so um, I guess my point is that, you know, as the U.S. became a global superpower, and particularly after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Warsaw Pact, um, the U.S. extended its interests very aggressively throughout the world um, and got um, a little overstretched. I think it's it's fair to say that the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war and concerns about, you know, pursuing the global war on terrorism um, weakened the U.S.'s attention and control in its historic kind of area. I don't think, you know, I mean, look what happened to Salvador Allende in Chile in the 1970s. I mean, you would not see Lula and, uh, um, you know, uh, Evo Morales and uh, Hugo Chavez coming into power in the high point of the U.S. management of the Western Hemisphere just wouldn't have been allowed to happen um, as it happened in the past. As to this latest kind of uh, round, I think it's because in part um, there is, I think, a, a greater boldness in countries around the world that um, the attempt by the U.S. to bully them with this kind of, you know, policy of of uh, the rules-based order and kind of forcing uh, countries to participate in it or pay consequences and be outside of the scheme of democratic nations as they like to uh, portray it um, is uh, – you know, weakening. I don't think as many countries are as worried about the U.S. threat or they feel like there are ways that they can balance relations with more than one party Mm -hmm. and to stay outside of a kind of block politics that you either have to be with the U.S. or you're with the Russia-China 
countries like India, many other countries in South Asia, the Middle East, they're interested. And even some in Europe, and this is going to be what's interesting is as we look forward, um, you know, and in fact, actually, there was talk before this Ukraine uh, war situation and the expansion of NATO to uh, to Ukraine was being discussed. And most recently, there were quite a lot of discussions within these sort of foreign affairs community and geopolitics that Europe was starting to consider realigning itself to participate in the Belt and Road Initiative, potentially, uh, as the sort of endpoint of this Eurasian trading network, and to uh, pursue its own interests in an independent path outside of U.S. kind of belligerence and to try and be a moderating influence and preserve their own possibility to make economic deals with China to their own advantage. That talk has really kind of uh, was put on hold, I think, by the Ukraine war and the U.S. rallying of, of NATO. Um, but those tensions are there. And if even the close allies of the United States that are tied into its military alliance and so on, and historically have relied upon the U.S. for their security, um, are willing to consider uh, an independent path. Just imagine what it is uh, like for a country like Pakistan. And this is partly the reason why I think uh, there's been such interest in um, Imran Khan um, and consternation over him, over, uh, you know, we talked a little bit, I think, uh, maybe a couple few months ago about uh, the uh, uh, sort of toppling of his government, you know, parliament ended up um, allies in his parliamentary, um, you know, delegation that had formed government decided to break ranks. And so he had to, you know, dissolve government. Um he was calling for new elections. But part of the reason why there's been pressure and the United States has been so upset with him is that the very day that uh, Putin announced his you know, plans for the so-called special military operation, he was visiting uh, Russia to talk about trade agreements and, and, and expand their relationship. And this is happening increasingly, that countries want to be able to maintain to their advantage, multiple affiliations, trading partners, alliances, and not be locked into the U.S. system. So the, uh, yeah. let me ask you, when you look at what's going on in Chile and Argentina and Bolivia and Colombia, Mexico, it's not entirely uh, – America as the enforcer of capitalism, those countries have uh, a right wing. They have industrialists. Why are they failing at suppressing uh, the left? Why they they rely solely on the United States? No, certainly not solely. Obviously, that you know, I mean, uh, it's not as if. Uh, that's the only factor that right. has suppressed, you know, left movements. Um, but I think, I mean, I think that has been um, one of the retarding factors, you know, that, um, you know, I mean, I, I'd love to hear what Rodrigo has to say about, you know, what's happening in, in, in Mexico. We actually um, have time, if you don't mind. Oh, great. Sure. You know what, should, uh, if he's here, we should bring him in. We, we have Professor Mary, Professor Marianne. Uh, can't do today's show. So if oh, we great. Can, if you great. have time so and Peter B. Collins has time and Rodrigo wants to come on earlier, 
Rodrigo, do you want to answer that question? Rodrigo? It looks like he's coming in. But he, there yeah. he is. We were we were asking why there seems to be a a wave of uh, leftist politicians winning in South America, including your country Mexico, and what why the the right wing, including the military, uh, have not stopped it. Well, they may want to, but they're kind of uh, overwhelmed, I think. You may remember Bolton talking about the coups that he participated in that caused the CIA to accuse him of stolen valor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Those were interesting that he referred to referred to those. I think most of the ones that he would have been referred referring to in his own career would have been taken place in Latin America, South America. Yes. Um, okay. uh, so, yeah, of course, there is that that role. But I'm wondering if the U.S. has not been um, enforcing its usual kind of uh, standard of friendly governments, you know, <laughs> in in the south um you know what's happening um you know there have been populist movements in the past like in the late 2000s as i mentioned the pink tide and i think that had something to do with geopolitical circumstances but i'm wondering if there's something new or different about this recent uh you know wave i mean despite us pressure um, okay, Evo Morales may not have come in back into power after his resignation, but his party has put forward and managed to capture government. Uh, you know, you still have, um, you know, Venezuela holding out. It's not Hugo Chavez, but it's Maduro, and you still have a left government. But now you have additions with Chile, right? The recent um, election there. And there's the possibility that Lula may, you know, Lula is leading in opinion polls right now in Brazil. And so we're seeing a kind of a continental level reaction. And, you know, I'm, I myself am curious exactly how to explain that. Um, Rodrigo? It's probably a, a happy storm. But also uh, Latin America hasn't seen good governments with regards to COVID. Uh, mm. So Interesting. it may be a combination of desperation and people willing to take a chance on leftists again. And also Leftists are learning how to organize mm. right. all over the continent. So. Great. Mm -hmm. We'll come mm -hmm. back to you later, Rodrigo. Thank you. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder. Well, you know, go, go ahead. ahead. No, please. 
Well, the only thing is, I know the time is short, and Peter uh, B. Collins will be uh, joining you soon. I mean, I actually had uh, thought about talking a little bit about this whole uh, Trump raid on his uh, on his uh, you know home in Mar-a-Lago. I mean, quite apart from the you know humor value. But we're getting um, the, reports that the FBI has taken 15 boxes right. from Trump's office and living area in Mar-a-Lago. Is this? Do you think this is about his taking things from the White House that belong in the National Archives, or is it related yes. to the insurrection? Well, I think they're closely connected in the sense that there was the House investigation and of course, probably also the FBI investigation that's been ongoing uh, that would want to see documents uh, and, you know, to be able to have access to potential evidence to assess the, you know, culpability of the White House, its staff, the president himself in organizing, you know, the January 6th, whether they incited it, whether they, how much they knew about it. So as a result of the House investigation and the FBI investigation, there has been an interest in subpoenaing and getting control over, you know, documents and records from the White House. The second point is that there already had been reports, um, you know, quite some time ago about the kind of haphazard um, administration uh, uh, during the Trump presidency when it came to classified documents. Uh, He turned Mar-a-Lago into, you know, a kind of uh, the winter White House and, you know, was taking documents and undergoing, you know, uh, apparently Violating a lot of the, the emoluments clause. I mean, a lot of emoluments Ma- there. Many things. Yes. Yeah. And 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 they also had reports um, that that have come uh, up that on some trips, <laughs> official trips abroad, um, as well as in the White House and in Mar-a-Lago, that uh, his penchant for trying to dispose of untidy documents uh, was clogging up toilets uh, and that they had to be unclogged. Uh, and there were a lot of handwritten records and things that he was sort of routinely trying to dispose of and get rid of, which makes you wonder. I mean, you know, I mean, um, you know, like uh, what could be so um incriminating and so uh, disturbing um, that um, he was willing to risk uh, the proper functioning, <laughs> you know, of of the plumbing, you know, in order to dispose of these records. Uh, so uh, that was already uh, something that was on the radar uh, to talk about and, and to be concerned about and whether classified documents were being misused or not in secure locations and so on. And if we all recall how the Republicans made such a big deal about, you know, Hillary Clinton's email server and whether it was, you know, uh, secure or not, and whether it, it con- you know, her using it constituted um, violations of, you know, uh, the classification of official documents and records. Um, so apparently Trump has like typically gone around with a bunch of boxes and traveled with boxes that contain everything from clippings of the press uh, that he himself annotates or signs if he thinks it's a good article and sends to people to official records and classified documents, briefings, printouts of tweets. So it's like this grab bag of whatever Trump was interested in, a sort of a scrapbooker as a president, I guess. And, you know, when he got bored, according to some reports and according to a new book that's going to be coming out in October, apparently by a New York Times White House correspondent, 
you know, he would get bored on these long Air Force One flights and he would go through his boxes and kind of, you know, if um, when he was done with reading something, um, often he would shred it, uh, rip it up and crumple it up. And the White House staff had to go and, you know, piece them back together and and so on. Mm-hmm. So apparently this is part of his practice. But I think it brings up this other kind of issue about you know, evidence. Like, why are all these records supposed to be kept in the way that they're being kept? I mean, there is a fascination with, like, everything. It's very unclear to me exactly what constitutes personal records and presidential records. And I know that, um, you know, uh, what's at stake or at issue is really the Presidential Records Act of 1978, and it was amended in 2014, as well as an Obama-era executive order 13489 about presidential records and that these kind of constitute the legally established practices for what constitutes a personal record versus a presidential record and what you have to do with presidential records, who gets access to them, and so on uh, over time. And, um, you know, this just reminds me as a historian, because historians, presidential historians are obviously very keen to know um, that everything that they might want to know about a president's decision-making, inner workings, conversations with advisors to gain insight behind, you know, kind of uh, the more evident uh, uh, decisions of of the president and the functionings of government. They're interested in absolutely everything being preserved so that they these will be sources, primary sources, documents and records. The main work of historians, you might say intellectually, or at least the principle and foundational work is first to collect, gather evidence, read and interpret them, and then try and make them understandable and meaningful to tell a particular story and to analyze them. Um, And so, you know, historians who are interested in kind of this great, you know, great men in their decisions, they would like these kinds of records to be available. Others who look more at kind of social and economic and political policies, you know, are interested in like the tax documents or the orders and, you know, other administrative records uh, of the functioning of government. And these archives, it's a very interesting question. What gets, you know, historians depend on whatever is preserved from the past. I mean, they can't have evidence that hasn't somehow survived, sometimes by accident, but mostly by intentional collection practices. So what gets preserved and in what format, whose stories can be told from them, um, what gets left out from it? What are the logics by which a state, for example, produces all of these documents? I mean, they can't be read as value neutral. Sometimes that's what historians in the past have done is that they just think, well, these are the tax records. This is how much, you know, somebody owed or, you know, earned and and, and so on. But as we know, these are all fictions in their own way. I the mean, way they're released, the way they're released and even the way in which what are you asked to supply? This is the same with the census. We think these records give us like a really good statistical analysis of the U.S. demographics, its populations and various in- things that we might be interested in asking about. But it's always very political and intellectually interesting. How do you uh, ask for people about their racial or ethnic uh, identification? Their gen- now gender is going to be, you know, uh, an interesting and important. How is that going to be officially asked and reported on census documents? There's already decisions that are made that then make the evidence 
conform in certain ways to the structures and the ideas of the questions of what's collected and so on. And so these are not neutral sorts of uh, documents themselves. And it's just going to be very interesting to see uh, how much, um, you know, regardless of the political value of being able to prosecute him for violations of this is, you know, how much is this going to matter really for how a future, you know, future historians represent this period. To me as a historian, it's really interesting because that's, I think, the heart of really training people to do history. I was actually working on my course for this fall that I'm teaching on crusading and the crusade society. And I thought it would be really fun and fascinating if I just set it up as weeks of debates between historians and we just talk about like some key issues. You know, what were the crusades? Were they for money or were they for religion? Were, you know, what were the motivations and various other things like that. Uh, but then I thought, I, I remembered, well, I want students to be able to make up their own mind about some of these things. They don't want to just hear what other historians said and choose between what they, you know, uh, which historian is correct um, in this kind of debate format, uh, even though that would probably be fun and be a more popular sort of way to organize the information. I thought I've got to put in primary source texts so that the students can read you know, at least some evidence and draw conclusions themselves and learn how to analyze and interpret historical evidence. What is it evidence for? Mm -hmm. How did it get collected? Whose interest does it serve to present the information in a particular way? And these are the kinds of questions that, you know, I think we might want to ask here. It's not just about, you know, Trump uh, trying to uh, evacuate the evidence. Um the question is, is what really, you know, um, you know, what really were these, you know, records and and why, you know, do personal kinds of, uh, you know, how do we understand the personal and the presidential, these records? It's a it, it's an area that hasn't necessarily been clarified to me about what's really at stake, uh, apart from the kind of political pursuit of him for violations or finding out about his involvement in January 6th. So I just wanted to yeah. mention that as an as an angle on the story that occurred to me Fantastic. As, a, as a historian. Let me let me do this. I don't know what your time is like. Peter B. Collins is waiting to come on. We're, we we don't have Professor Marianne Cummings at 930. So uh, I wanted to brief. Uh, I don't know how your time is. and I don't know how Peter B. Collins' time is. But I wanted to ask you about the ceasefire in Gaza that was negotiated by Egypt. I, I wanted to ask you about divide and conquer, because Israel is really good at that. Hamas controls Gaza primarily because, in many ways, I think Israel didn't so much as invent Hamas, but sort of did to create a division among the Palestinians, uh, primarily Yasser Arafat, Fatah. Is that correct? You're, you're muted. Yes. I mean, I, what I would say is that it is very parallel, say, to U.S. policy during the same period, which was to um, oppose secular nationalists and leftists in the third world and militant uh, anti-colonial uh, movements by supporting religious movements, uh, which is what they did, of course. And that's what led to Al-Qaeda and, you know, the jihadist international in Afghanistan. That very same kind of policy 
of trying to boost religious groups uh, as a counterweight to secular left uh, politics that were predominant through the 60s and into the early 70s. Would Yasser Arafat have been a secular? Yes. Yeah, it was a nationalist, uh, you know, liberation movement along the lines of, uh, you know, the South African, you know, kind of resistance movement uh, against settler colonialism in, you know, South Africa, right? You know, uh under Mandela and other resistance movements like that, that didn't make an appeal. And of course, this was important because there is a large Christian population Mm -hmm. in Palestine. It's obviously been diminishing as people leave any way that they can, you know, but uh, there is still, you know, a substantial uh, Christian population. And the PLO appealed to broadly a sense of Palestinianness as a secular identity in which, you know, you could have multiple different religions and, and so on. But their goal was within the kind of Arab nationalist era um, to uh, emphasize Palestinianness uh, as as the, you know, national identity and base politics on, on, on that sort of secular, uh, secular basis. And it was, you know, Hamas that um, argued that this was not um, going to succeed. It wasn't, um, you know, organically, uh, you know, related to the majoritarian interests of the people and that um, what they, you know, wanted was uh, to, um, you know, free Palestine and um, that they felt that this needed to be done by, you know, appealing to uh, people's religious uh, commitments and loyalties and ethics Um as a stronger, you know, sentimental and emotional, you know, um, you know, way of maintaining resistance during a period when it had been, you know, kind of under attack and crushed um, by Israeli occupation, the seeds of a new movement came to the fore through uh, the social welfare programs of like Hamas, like, you know, this is the thing that happened. They're essentially a Muslim Brotherhood type group. It's just the Palestinian version of it. And they, you know, if they didn't receive uh, in its early stages direct, you know, support, um, it could have been even just passively, like you don't target the Hamas activists and throw them in prison, you know, uh, the way you do the Fatah ones, right? In the in the Fatah late 1970s would be and PLO. early 80s. The Fatah. PLO, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and may was- I... David, may I? Because, um, Professor, I I wanted to point out that I believe it was in 2006 that the U.S. uh, pushed to to go through with a Gaza election that brought Hamas to power. And I think this is an extension of what David articulated as the divide and conquer Mm -hmm. strategy. But Mm -hmm. the United States would not recognize Hamas won that election. And then the United States, which, you know, we're all about democracy, Hamas wins and the United States, we don't recognize them. Right. Well, we've always put them over the barrel that they have to recognize Israel before any, you know, it's a precondition to negotiations. And it's the only thing they've got to give up in negotiations. (laughs) And so uh, here they are captive in this open air prison. And, uh, you know, we have continually squelched any opportunities to give them even modest leverage with Israel uh, while proclaiming that they are all terrorists, that 
Uh, every home is a, you know, a, a weapons lab or a, a rocket launching facility. And so this collective punishment is something that was engineered or at least enhanced by U.S. foreign policy under George W. Bush and Condoleezza Rice. Right. What I'd like to do is uh, I, wa I want to talk about Amnesty International and Ukraine in a, in a second. But going back to Gaza, does it feel like America, not America, Israel is throwing money at Hamas uh, so they can govern a little. Israel is giving them enough work permits to give them a, a, a semblance of power, and that the reports are that Hama that that Israel was killing uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. That they were going after not Hamas and Gaza, but the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And the Western press is saying uh, Hamas is uh, kind of happy that Israel is going after Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Is, is that what you're reading? And is, how much of that is true? I find it hard to make out like what is exactly going on in terms of um, sort of Israeli policy here. I mean, there may not be a grand strategy. It might be rather narrowly tactical because apparently there, I'm forgetting the details, but some months ago there had been some conflict with, uh, you know, militants in the Islamic Jihad movement who conducted an operation. There apparently were plans that they might be doing something else. It could just be very narrow operationally and redound to the benefit in terms of the rivalry of Hamas. Because frankly, um, you know, if I was in a kind of colonial uh, occupation situation, I would be, you know, you know, trying to, uh, you know, Hamas is the dominant force in, in, in Gaza. I mean, there's really no question about that since, as Peter, you know, mentioned, they had won these major elections and they have proven um, to be uh you know, pretty stable as the main group that's governing or controlling. Well, you can't say they're governing or controlling Gaza, but in Gaza, uh, since they obviously don't have any control over its, you know, its borders, its airspace, etc. But I mean, uh, they are definitely stronger than Islamic Jihad in terms of their popularity as a as a popular social, religious and social movement. So it wouldn't see it seems to me make sense to further consolidate if I'm an Israeli, you know, like to, right. to consolidate. So I don't know. It's hard to it's hard for me to really piece piece, you know, um, through exactly whether there's a larger sort of plan or motive or strategy around around this. Well, at there the could be. at the risk of getting deplatformed, I'm going to touch a third rail. <laughs> uh, the act, the charges against. Hamas uh, that Israel always makes is we had no choice. Uh, these children died because uh, the Palestinians use these uh, use them as shields. They know right. that we won't. Uh, they know that Israel won't attack this building, so they're able to hide rocket launchers there. And it's the fault of the Palestinians that the Israelis had to kill these innocent children. 
in you. Yeah, I, but for, before you go any further, I mean, uh, the fiction of that uh, uh, kind of logic is uh, proved in that they keep doing it. So obviously, it's not a strategy that works. <laughs> Israel keeps bombing those places, even if they have to wring hands afterwards or, you know, blame Hamas. So it's clearly not a very effective deterrent to try and use them as human shields because this happens, you know, every time there's a bombardment. I mean, we get the same story. So. Well, in Ukraine, Peter B. Collins, you want to touch the third rail for me and Amnesty International? Well, I have to say that uh, I lost confidence in these international human rights groups quite a while back. And uh, both Human Rights Watch and Amnesty have soiled themselves in, uh, in various ways, uh, particularly over the last 10 years. And so from what I've read, uh, you know, what occurred is that in a fairly routine manner, uh, an, a report was issued uh, citing potential, potential human rights violation by Ukrainian forces. And this has produced a, a huge wall of propaganda and bluster uh, coming from Kiev that, uh, you know, is used to just shut down any honest discussion. And, and so let me stipulate, I'm not there. I don't have any eyewitness uh, access that, that would educate me about what is really going on. I know that in war, uh, all kinds of ugly things happen, and some of it is uh, at the behest of the commanders, and some of it is freelanced by the troops on the ground. But to shut down any discourse uh, that would allege violations by Ukraine is just preposterous. And, you know, it, it appears that the Azov Battalion, which had the largest concentration of neo-Nazis among the armed Ukrainians, was, uh, I don't know if decimated is the right word, but they, they lost a lot in, uh, in Mariupol. And so uh, I, I believe Kharkiv has been, uh, you know, a pretty bloody high casualty uh, area of conflict as well. And so, you know, for years, we, we were just talking about Israel and Palestine. The human rights organizations have issued reports saying that we are investigating human rights, human rights violations by both sides. <laughs> and I believe that's appropriate here in uh, this conflict, that Ukraine is not uh, somehow immune from the, uh, the ugly aspects and vagaries of war. And uh, they were never, uh, you know, a lily white, uh, clean operation to begin with. So, uh, you know, this leaves us uh, in a situation where we know that there are um, uh, consensus limitations that are imposed on all of us. And we are supposed to all line up and salute uh, the courageous Zelensky and, uh, you know, propose him for sainthood. Uh, and, and this is where you know, our corporate media and our political machinery really run way amok. And I borrowed that word from Emil Guillermo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so
So what what what, what happened with Amnesty International? Oksana Polkachuk was head of Amnesty International in Ukraine, and she was looking into reports that Ukrainians, the Ukrainian government, was putting civilians in harm's way, uh, and they wanted to investigate it more, but that wasn't the narrative that Amnesty International was interested in, so they kind of suppressed any suggestion that the Ukraine military may be putting civilians in, in harm's way, and, and so she resigned. Is that pretty much... That's what I read. Yes. Okay. And and of course, this is comparable to, uh, once again, to Gaza and Israel, where it's not like there are uh, military bases in Gaza where Hamas can put all of its artillery and those rockets and whatever other weapons they have and say, well, this is military and everything else is civilian. And likewise... In these areas that have been devastated by Russia, does Ukraine have options? Uh, do they end up having to uh, commandeer a hospital, a hotel, a school? Uh, because there's very little else that is left. And so this is where we get into the, the desperation that war brings and trying to put a rational frame around it, particularly during the conflict, is very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. A good idea then is to avoid war at all costs, do everything you can to to stop war from ever happening. Let me. Well, and and look at how quickly international uh, leaders intervene to try to quelch uh, squelch what's going on in Gaza right now. But nobody is lifting a finger or opening their mouths to advocate for peace talks in Ukraine, for a ceasefire, for, you know, some sort of a stand down. This is a proxy war that everybody wants to, well, not everybody, but too many uh, important people want to see continue. Did you see Roger Waters from Pink Floyd on Smirkanish CNN? You know, I watched the edited interview and then uh, today I saw that the, the full interview is available, but I haven't been able to listen and compare. It's breathtaking. Roger Waters is saying stuff to Smirkanish, who has this smug look on his face, like, oh, Pink Floyd guy, just a little, you know, too much LSD. And everything <laughs> Roger Waters said, he schooled Smirkanish, uh, but he's, Smirkanish isn't allowed to. Uh, to be anything but ignorant uh, about history. Let me say goodbye to Professor Adnan Hussein. Thank you, sir. Who's on the Mudgeless podcast? Oh, um, we're uh, going to be putting out an episode uh, uh, based on the book uh, by my former uh, PhD student, um, Islam and Anarchism, uh, Reflections and Resonances. Um, and of course, on uh, guerrilla history, uh, we do have, as we already mentioned, uh, coming up very soon uh, in a week and a half, I think, uh, basically, um, our conversation with Noam Chomsky and Vijay Prashad that we're Fantastic. really looking forward to. Thanks how, so much, David. How do you know so much? How, who, how do you? I, I don't, but I just try and use everything that I do know. 
It's absolutely great. everything that I do know. Recycle your knowledge is basically mine. Right. And, uh, now, just on that note, let me ask you, uh, what are your weak areas? And I'll just volunteer <laughs> that uh, sports and Hollywood, sports and Hollywood are the things, Hollywood, you know, yeah, you asked yeah. me to name who starred in a movie 20 years ago. And I am just <laughs> completely befuddled. Dan, are you there? We, uh, I think, Dan, we had a, uh, a uh, stump the humps, but for next time. Uh, thank you, Professor. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, how do you know so much, Peter B. Collins? Because I don't pay any attention to sports in Hollywood. (laughs) Yeah, me, yeah, I, I don't either, but I, I, I can't, how do you keep up with everything? Do you, are, do you have a rigor? Uh, Is there a discipline to your reading? Uh, I do, but I've eased off, uh, since I retired. I read the the Times and the Post online in the morning. Uh, the San Francisco Chronicle now takes four minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a local paper I read. And then I have a bunch of independent uh, media outlets like Consortium News that uh, I look at from time to time. I do follow uh, uh, Max Blumenthal and The Gray Zone. I think they do a lot of important work. Uh, but I, I have dialed back and let me begin. Uh, I do like to occasionally correct errors that I make. And last week on, on your show, uh, the news had just broken about the drone strike that killed, uh, Alman, Ayman al-Zawahiri. Right. And I mistakenly heard and repeated to you and your audience that uh, Biden had said that the CIA had located uh, uh, Zawahiri in Kabul in April. And it was April of 22, but I kind of misprocessed that, and I made it sound like it was April of 21, Mm -hmm. and that we could have taken him out before the U.S. withdrawal. So I got that wrong, and I like to let people know when I do so that they might believe what I say when, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> when I don't have to correct it. Thank you. I uh, really appreciate you. Uh, and when you correct me, it's important to we are trying to uh, tell the truth here. For some reason, CNN never makes a mistake. Uh, MSNBC there, there's, never makes there's a mistake. An interesting there's an interesting profile in uh, Vanity Fair that I read today of Rachel Maddow. And it's a pretty interesting, very personal story about how the uh, stress of her work caused serious problems with her back. She's thrown out uh, several discs. And so it, it explained, you know, her reason for negotiating this $30 million deal to do much less work. Uh, and I'm jealous of that. Uh, but you know, she was was quoted as in a little bit of a back and forth. And the Vanity Fair reporter used Eric Wemple of the Washington Post, who has, uh, to his credit, from a corporate media uh, uh, post, has uh, criticized the Russiagate coverage and the, the false reporting that occurred on Rachel Maddow's show. And she... Uh, she had a very clever uh, out. She said, well, remember when Dan Rather got that one document about George W. Bush and the Texas National Guard 
And this is my addition. Carl Rove uh, got that forged document slipped into the pile of papers that but- Dan Rather got. And he used that and pulled the ripcord, which discredited the entire report that Dan Rather had done. And uh, the the facts were correct. Bush had dodged his service and in they the couldn't, National Guard. By the way, I, they, couldn't, they could not prove that Dan Rather used forged documents. They just couldn't prove that he didn't use forged Pretty much true. Yes, yes. There, there was an issue that one of the documents was typed with an IBM Selectric that uh, was not in production at the time Bush was in the National Guard. That appears to be the forgery that was used to uh, undermine Dan Rather's credibility. But Rachel Maddow didn't offer us an explanation about what single document she got wrong. <laughs> and she just basically claims that all of her reporting was accurate. And if she were to point out that, for example, the former FBI counterintelligence cybersecurity guy who ran CrowdStrike, who testified under oath that we saw no evidence of Russian exfiltration of documents from the DNC, I would, you know, increase my sense of her credibility by a significant degree. But she just, she never looks back except to build on the innuendo that she delivered to us before. Right. So, yeah, they they don't, well, they never correct themselves. They're not allowed to correct themselves. If they make a mistake, the New York Times corrects itself. Print journalists... Uh, have to correct themselves. Well, they they correct the misspelling of a name or the misattribution of someone's title. But the Times, you know, it did correct Judith Miller's reporting about WMD in Iraq. But in, you know, since Trump, uh, there has not been a significant admission of error uh, by the New York Times, to my knowledge. Didn't the Pulitzer Committee look into their reporting and yeah <laughs> and say it was okay yeah okay yeah well, but who who's on the pulitzer committee the new york times uh <laughs> yeah. they're covering for each other well john stewart uh you know every now and then he does something uh noteworthy and admirable mm-hmm. he he stood up for the first responders who went to uh, ground zero, got very sick, and he was able to get funding for their health. And this past month, he was able to get funding, I think it's called the PACT Act, the PACT Bill, which will provide about, I think it's $10 billion. Mitt Romney, the draft dodger, uh, voted against the funding for Iraqi war vets who whose lungs were poisoned uh, in in the the tar pits that they were burning electronic equipment in Iraq, uh, and John Stewart deserves credit for for doing this. I mean, it's more than uh, you know. It's he he pulled it off and uh, deserves credit for it. 
a job. Well, I certainly agree, and I won't take anything away from John Stewart and well, the I will. photo. Hang on for one second. I will. And will. <laughs> okay, the photo that somebody snapped of him standing in a Capitol hallway smirking is Mitch McConnell uh, turtled by in the other direction. Mm-hmm. That is priceless. Right. <laughs> And and I won't take anything away from Stewart on this, but I want to give credit where it is really richly deserved. And for people watching on YouTube or uh, lucky to be in the Zoom room, this is a book published in 2017 by Joe Hickman. And Joe is a guy I got to know when he blew the whistle after serving at Guantanamo, where he was in a guard tower on a night in 2006 when the most unusual thing he had observed took place. Three prisoners were spirited out of the main camp and hustled over to uh, a CIA black site, which is off the main Guantanamo prison campus, but still part of the uh, U.S. leased base there on the eastern tip of Cuba. And they came back dead the next morning. And these, the, the commandant of the camp said that they had all committed suicide and that it was this ugly, uh, uh, what's the right term, asymmetrical war- warfare, mm-hmm. that these jihadis had decided to kill themselves to embarrass the, this, the commandant and the Pentagon. <laughs> and Joe Hickman wrote a book about that, and that's when I first met him. And that's called Murder at Camp Delta. And I highly recommend it uh, for people who aren't aware of it. It's a story that was lightly reported by the corporate media, but they never went so far as to assert that the suicides were falsely uh, reported. So in 2017, I interviewed Hickman, who is a former Marine, and then uh, he also was an Army sergeant. He, He basically did two Uh, shifts in the military, and he published The Burn Pits, subtitled The Poisoning of America's Soldiers. And what he exposed was was that mostly in Iraq, but also to some extent in Afghanistan, wherever there was a U.S. base, KBR, Dick Cheney's old company, (laughs) was the contractor who presided over waste disposal. And they didn't build any incinerators. They didn't site these burn pits at a safe distance from population, whether it's American or native. And just with abandon, they would burn all kinds of toxic shit in a, in a pit just without any concern for the health of people downwind. And Hickman interviewed Senator Joe Biden, well, Vice President Biden, actually, at the time, and Biden does allow us how his son, Bo, uh, probably, he, he doesn't know for sure, but probably his cancers came from exposure to burn pits. Right. So Hickman has been working on this ever since he published the book. And we have to put it in context that during the Iraq war, the military medical departments and the VA colluded to deny medical benefits to many deserving soldiers claiming that they had pre-existing conditions before they went to the war zone that caused the illness that was being rejected for coverage. And 
this is so obscene because it is the people who sent our troops into Iraq, knowing that it didn't have weapons of mass destruction, knowing that, that Bush was lying. And they all, you know, mouth these platitudes that we will support our troops all the way through. It's a lifetime commitment. But when it comes to actually delivering, they always have excuses. Right. And, and so when you criticize the, the war, you're hurting the troops. Criticism right. of the war is hurting the troops. Right. So uh, I'll just briefly recap for people that uh, earlier this summer, there was a test vote where 34 Republicans in June voted in favor of this packed bill. And then because the Democrats made this crappy deal with Joe Manchin to pass the totally watered down version of the badly named Build Back Better with the worst named <laughs> Inflation Reduction Act, uh, uh, the Republicans said, holy shit, this is going to be two wins for Joe Biden heading into the midterms. Mm -hmm. We can't allow that. So Pat Toomey, who's a dead duck, he's retiring. He, of course, is a Pennsylvania Republican who is a proud member of the Club for Growth. And they're, of course, these deficit hawks who only support increasing the deficit when you can cut taxes for the wealthy and corporations. And so uh, Toomey said, hold on. This could ultimately cost uh, $280 billion over the next 10 years. That's $28 billion a year. And so they moved to try to cap it, try to put a, uh, an expiration date on these services. And, and think about this, okay? These toxic burn pits have produced serious, chronic, and potentially fatal illness. And... Pat Toomey is saying, well, you got 10 years to fix it. And after that, you're on your own. Wow. And, and this is so obscene. We write blank checks for the Pentagon and for Wall Street all the time. But and, and, and there is an unknown factor, OK, about exactly how much this is going to cost, how many people will actually access the benefits and how seriously ill they will be by the time they're delayed uh, Health care is actually provided. But this is an obligation that even people like me who bitterly opposed Bush's foreign interventions and Obama's. And to see this play out the way it did. And, and then, of course, uh, you know, it passed with only, I think, 14 or so Republicans in the end over the weekend uh, didn't vote for it. Because they see how popular it is and they, you know, they can't afford to uh, be uh, seen by even their own voters as deserting veterans. But this path to passage is one of the ugliest I've seen. And I do, do give John Stewart credit for, uh, you know, putting himself, inserting himself into this, uh, his uh, kind of bitter and angry sound bites. I think did, in fact, shame some of these Republicans to abandon the Toomey uh, uh, effort to walk away from it. And so I'm very glad it passed. And I would like to give away uh, my one of my copies of The Burn Pits 
the one that I uh, highlighted and marked up for the interview with Joe Hickman. Wow. And I, I will offer it to a David Feldman listener who emails me and uh, just describes that you have been impacted or somebody who is close to you has been impacted by the burn pits. So you can send an email to peterbcollins23 at gmail, and uh, I'll pick the most uh, appropriate person who uh, submits a request, and I'll be sure to include your mailing address, and I will uh, send the book out to you. And what is your email address? How do people contact you? Peter B. Collins, my name, the number 23, and I can't imagine there are 22 others. All right. Uh, at gmail.com. I want to play, uh, we're talking about the fog of war and lying and who do you trust. Defense Undersecretary for Pentagon Policy, Dr. Colin Call, gave a press conference today talking about how things are going in Ukraine. And I want to play uh, a 20-second bite and you tell me if this seems like the truth, okay? Let me see if I can find it. All right, hang on. The Russian military, because of how well the Ukrainian military has performed and all the assistance uh, that the Ukrainian military uh, has gotten. And I think now conditions in the east have essentially uh, stabilized uh, and the focus is really shifting uh, to the south. Um, and in part, that's because uh, the Ukrainians are starting to put some pressure down south and the Russians have been forced to redeploy uh, their forces down there. So, yes, uh, both sides are taking uh, casualties. Uh, the war is the most intense conventional conflict uh, in Europe uh, since the Second World World War, uh, but the Ukra Ukrainians have a lot of advantage, not, advantages, not the least of which. Uh, I'm trying to find militarily seize Taiwan in the objectives at the beginning uh, well, of the war. Anyway, he was saying he said he estimates between seventy to eighty thousand Russian casualties in Ukraine. Think about Vietnam. Well, casualties is not deaths, right? That's, Correct, yeah. Mm -hmm. But the war is, what, five months? Seventy to 80,000 casualties. If that were true, maybe it is, uh, would that be as bad as Afghanistan was for the Russians in five short months? I mean, this is catastrophic for the Russian military, if this is true. Uh, I, I, I just would say we can't trust any of these uh, guesses that we are being provided. Uh, Russia isn't revealing anything. Uh, they, of course, are suppressing coverage of uh, the dark side of their liberation of the Donbass. And uh, so I, I just have to say that I don't know, but I don't believe that. Yeah, uh, I, I think both sides have taken serious casualties, but those numbers seem inflated. And, you know, they were telling us 15,000 dead Russian soldiers. And I believe that was in early April. Uh, so uh, there, there's really, uh, you know, there's spin and counter spin in, in this kind of a situation. And I would discount both. Yeah, it reminds me of every war. Yeah. 
Yeah. Where the no, Pentagon uh, I mean, is David, over. When I was uh, a young uh, radio guy in in Chicago during the Vietnam War, uh, I worked at a, a small station. We didn't have a budget for a news person, and so the DJ read some headlines uh, once an hour. And I remember vividly it was a, a, a ritual every Monday morning was the body count from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And it... it always was hard to believe because we are being fed numbers of massive casualties uh, among the Viet Cong and virtually none uh, by, um, you know, affecting Americans. And occasionally they would admit that some South Vietnamese um, had been killed or, or wounded, but uh, it, it was an information management operation. And, you know, we are in such an era of sophisticated uh, information management control that I think we have to simply discount most of the claims that are made. Right. And until until both sides are um, uh, so bloodied that they actually come to a peace table, uh, I, I think that we're just going to see more of this. Yep. Yep. They said that when George W. Bush started asking for body counts, how the other side was doing, they knew we had lost in Iraq. That's the mm-hmm. first sign. Well, the midterms continue tomorrow. I didn't get to speak to you uh, after last Tuesday's midterms. What was mm-hmm. your impression of how that shook out? And what are you looking forward to tomorrow? Well, my relative, uh, Dharma Ackman, won election to the Ann Arbor uh, City Council, and she defeated a, a pretty entrenched incumbent and uh, has a, uh, a whole team of progressives that dominate the council there. So that's my personal congratulations. That's but of course, news. the remarkable... Bring uh, her on, by uh, the way. Pardon me? P- p- invite... I would love to Dharma, talk. Dharma is her name. Yeah, I would love to talk to her. I, I'm fascinated by people who, especially women, who run in local politics. So, All right. I, I will do it. Uh, I know she's taking a, a break for the next couple of weeks, and then I'm going to be on vacation in early September. What does that but mean? She, that means I'll be gone for three weeks, David. You did this last year. <laughs> I know you're unaccustomed to taking time what, off. What is it but, like to take three? What do you do for three weeks? Well, I'm going to go to Ireland and to Italy. Wow. These are deferred uh, uh, post-retirement plans, and wow. uh, I'm looking forward to it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So the the big uh, development, of course, was in Kansas, where it was uh, almost 60-40 uh, in a very deceptive election that was run during a primary to uh, uh, hopefully get a higher conservative turnout that would uh, set the the table to allow the Republican-controlled legislature and governorship to roll back or ban uh, abortion rights in Kansas. And the, the pro-birth people uh, deeply miscalculated I want to single out the Catholic bishops who squandered $4 million that could have been spent on homeless and uh, other people in need. 
And uh, they spent it to try to, uh, again, join this deceptive effort to trick voters into enabling uh, the rollback of abortion rights in Kansas. And people smelled the rat and uh, came out and, and, and smacked it. And I, this, this does increase some hope that uh, not only Democrats, but that people who even may personally say, I would never choose to have or counsel an abortion, but I am not comfortable in having that right taken away from other people based on religious fanaticism. And that is an encouraging sign. It also counters the Trump wave, uh, which is also mildly encouraging. At the same time, when you see these idiots uh, like the, the Senate candidate in Arizona, who is a total Trumper and uh, wants to roll back marriage equality, demonize transsexuals and uh, all of that, that right wing minority agenda. Uh, and we, we see more Democrats spending money, as we've talked about to promote the fringiest Republican, hoping that that person will be the easiest to beat. Uh, I'm still uneasy <laughs> about the prospects of any kind of a, a wave sufficient to counter the historical trends of a midterm election, which always favor the party that doesn't control the White House. So, uh, you know, we're, we're just going to have to see. And the the thing that Democrats are going to try to uh, weaponize for marketing purposes is the passage of this uh, Joe Manchin uh, Pipelinistan Expansion Act, which is uh, uh, positioned or or presented as this huge victory, biggest investments in climate change. Well, that is narrowly correct. But those investments in climate change, electric cars, retrofitting homes, uh, there, there's some good elements in this package. But they are more than offset by the incredible giveaways that Mansion and Cinema engineered. And I don't think most people have a clue because the coverage doesn't go beyond the happy headlines mm -hmm. that, oh, you know, biggest investment and corporate taxation and you know, Medicare will be allowed to negotiate drug prices. But in each of those cases, when you go behind the, ed the headline, it's a huge letdown. The Medicare uh, drug piece doesn't kick in until 2026, and it only covers 10 drugs. And Big Pharma engineered this to soften any impact on their profiteering. And in a moment, I, I want to read from the Gospel of St. Bernard, because Sanders uh, gave an incredible speech, which really exposed the, the perfidy of all this. But I want to point out that Joe Manchin uh, got fast-track approval, not only for a pipeline in West Virginia, but essentially for all pipelines everywhere in the country. And he raked in $20,000 from pipeline companies in 2020 and $331,000 in 
this year. And guess who also got a little, uh, you know, a, a little spiff off the top? Chuck Schumer. Hmm. $281,000 from a single company called Next Era Pipeline. Manchin also insisted that drilling on public lands and offshore drilling leases have to be offered to the energy extractors every year before money can be spent on offshore wind and solar. That is a huge giveaway that undermines. Say that again the, about the. Say that again. The before, yeah. about the wind and solar. What is that? Yeah, let me find it here in my. Uh, Man Manchin my was here. able to. Uh, I have too many articles here. Maybe it's in the uh, the Sanders piece here. Uh, I'll, I'll get it for you here. But well, read um, from the Gospel of Saint Bernard. Okay, but I want to answer your question directly here because it is shocking. Well, I would just I could just hit rewind. So, three three hundred and seventy billion is the amount to combat climate change, but the fossil fuel industry will receive billions of dollars in new tax breaks and subsidies over the next ten years, on top of the fifteen billion that they get every year, and. Up to 60, under this legislation, up to 60 million acres of public waters must be offered up for sale each and every year to the oil and gas industry before the federal government can approve any new offshore wind development. 60 million acres is the size of Michigan. In addition, up to 2 million acres of public lands must be offered up for sale each and every year to the oil and gas industry before leases can move forward on any renewable energy development on public lands. This is a carbon-first policy. This is extract, burn, and pray. Because, hmm. you know, we've given people like me who can afford to buy an electric car. I haven't yet, but I probably will. Uh and, and, you know, they're throwing a 75, they're continuing the $7,500 uh, federal uh, uh, rebate for people who buy electric cars with no cap. And uh, critical articles from the business community like Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal say, well, you know, GM sold, uh, I, I don't know what the number was, but uh, thousands of cars without the rebate. And so what we have seen here is, and, and this is a, a good quote here, the Center for Biological Diversity said about this bill, it is a climate suicide pact. Wow. It's self-defeating to handcuff renewable energy development to massive new oil and gas extraction. The new leasing required in this bill will fan the flames of the climate disasters torching our country. And it's a slap in, in the face to the communities fighting to protect themselves from filthy fossil fuels. And get this, David, <laughs> even though the Republicans all lined up against this in both houses, the lion's share of the money that's authorized by this bill is going to go into Republican districts. So they're going to be able to go home and say, you know, I don't believe in climate change, but, you know, we've got solar, solar panel jobs here in this Republican district. And so, number one, there's a lot of fraud in this package. There's a lot of stuff that 
doesn't, you know, stand up to close scrutiny like the prescription drug uh, elements. And this is the best <clears throat> that Joe Biden and the Democrats can do. And I do understand the 50-50 Senate, mansion and cinema. Cinema, of course, stood, <laughs> stood up for uh, the... Uh, the private equity industry. Yeah, the carried interest loophole. Right. And she claimed that there were little little mom and pop businesses in Arizona that were going to be badly impacted by this. Of course. That is that's just the same old saw about family farms, right? Right. The these little mom and pop farms with two ponies and a cow, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they're, they're gonna be clobbered by this tax when of course it's the agribusiness that lobbies to get what they want. So uh, let me quote a little bit more from uh, St. Bernard here, because he, he did a great job of framing how the American public uh, has only a 16% level of confidence in Congress, that we are at a very dangerous moment because of the, the divisions in this country. And he goes through uh, a, a bit of a laundry list here about what the American people really need to deal with this ugly inflationary cycle. And they need to expand Medicare. Uh, they need childcare. Uh, we have the highest rate of childhood poverty we had in the Build Back Better uh, package, an extension of the child tax credit that only lasted for six or seven months last year, but it took a record number of American children temporarily out of poverty. Right. That's that's in the rearview mirror. And uh, he talks about student debt. He talks about the elements uh, that seniors need that are not covered by Medicare, like hearing aids and, and glasses. Uh, he says this bill does nothing to address the major housing crisis we face. And so uh, I give, you know, Bernie a lot of credit because he works uh, a kind of inside-outside uh, uh, strategy. And he did issue a statement saying that the bill passed. He says it goes nowhere near far enough. It's a step forward, and I'm happy to support it. And then, of course, he explains why it sucks. Uh, <laughs> so we're, we're in a place where, just like the, uh, the meager uh, gun legislation that was passed, I heard Biden's uh, chief of staff, Ron Klain, uh, on TV today saying that, yeah, you know, we, we got the first gun control legislation in whatever it is, 15 or 20 years. Yeah, but it's meaningless. And, you know, these, these uh, elements in this bill, very few will take effect between now and the midterm election. About the only thing that an average American family will experience is that Obamacare subsidies have been extended by this bill, uh, uh, I believe, for three more years. And so that is going to allow people to avoid an increase in their health insurance costs. Uh, but it's not money in their pocket. It's not <laughs> a rebate or savings or anything that can help them uh, adjust their budgets to afford the high cost of groceries today. So uh, we're, we're in a situation where the Democrats are using the same 
misleading communication strategies as the Republicans. And they are counting on being able to buffalo the average voter. And, uh, you know, they they know that you can fool some of the people some of the time. And they hope that's enough to hold on to the majority in the House. Yeah. I wanted to feel good for a second. Well, you did. <laughs> for a second. Well, hang on for one second. Professor Jonathan Beck, are you there? I am, David, and I can make you feel a little bit better, I think. Okay. Oh, please do. Yes. Yeah, so to explain, we've been raising money for a member of our community who has had some... Uh, uh, a medical setback and yeah, a very uh, challenging year uh, for her. And um, she's been a long time member of the community and is cherished by everyone. And hang on, Timpany, Timpany, yes. how much did we want to raise? We wanted to raise $2,000. Okay. So hang on for one second. Do you have a, uh, a tally? I do. All right. Uh, David, that's a snare. You're right. Hang on. I, I, <laughs> you're right. That is not a tally. You're, you're absolutely right. All right. Here we go. Okay. We need to raise $2,000. There we go. What have, How much have we raised so far? We raised two thousand dollars, David. Okay, I'd, I'd like to make that twenty-one hundred. Oh, that's wow! Wonderful. All right, all right. <laughs> he hasn't seen the bit, Professor Jonathan. Well, I see your twenty-one hundred, and I raise you. What is it now? Hang on, let me do the. Hang on, let me do the. Hang on. That sounded like one more silver dollar. <laughs> David, with those last two donations, we have raised a total of twenty one hundred dollars and five cents. <laughs> <laughs> You know okay, what? Okay, so have have I been tricked, or is this? <laughs> no, no, no. You know real? what? You you were very generous, and I'm kind yeah. of feeling the pressure now. Uh, let me let me throw in. Okay, and now hang on. What does that bring the grand total to? <laughs> $2,100.10. You know, I like to do these things. I really like to do this stuff anonymously. It's kind of embarrassing that I, well, thank you to the community and thank you to Peter B. Collins. Great job. It's great to talk to you. Peter B. Collins, Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer. Yes, sir. Tell me where to send a check. Okay. Uh, oh, uh, can you do a PayPal? Yeah, I do have PayPal. Yes. All right. Let me put the link in the chat. Are you able to see the chat? I will. 
thank you to the community. Thank, uh, uh, yes, uh, the generosity that has been displayed in the last five days, we did this in, in less than five days, um, is, has been just so heartwarming. Thank you, everyone who donated and or who wanted to donate. It's so appreciated, and you know this shows what we can do as a community. Yes, it really it it, it is. And you know what? I'm, I don't mean to get emotional, but uh, <laughs> I'd rather do this anonymously. But just in the spirit of generosity, what do you, what does that now bring the total to? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hang on. They're already applauding. What's the grand total now? $2,100.15. <laughs> oh, and we, we just got another pledge, David. We have a 50-pound pledge from Merwiki. Oh. So, hang on. And I'm, I'm also adding this expired Metro card from the New York subway <laughs> with an unknown amount of money on it. Okay, but hang wow. on. That's very sweet of you, Peter. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the final push here. What is the grand total? Uh-oh. I haven't done the conversion from pounds to uh, dollars, but I'll say it's a... It's about even right now. (laughs) Yeah. $2,100.15 plus 50 pounds. Well. (laughs) (laughs) What is it now? I I hate to be... So be- this is this is all the money David made at his last stand-up gig at a casino. Twenty-one hundred dollars, fifteen twenty cents, and and a fifty-pound donation and an expired tube pass. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Peter B. Collins. Go to peterbcollins.com for oh, a- David at. At the top of my website today, I posted my original Burn Pits interview with Joe Hickman. Okay. It's free free to all comers. PeterBCollins.com. Fantastic. Thank you. Go to PeterBCollins. And thank you, Professor Jonathan Bick. Let us now go to Denton, Texas, where Professor Mike Steinal is at St- Steve's Wine Bar. Is that the name of it? I'm having trouble hearing you. Now I see you. Hang on, we'll fix the sound. You're at... All right, we're, 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 bear with us, everybody. We're, we're going to see a live performance from Professor Mike Seinel. We need to connect the audio. Oh, wait a second. You're at Steve's Wine Bar in Denton, Texas, for the book launch of Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. Everybody should go to SavingCharlieParker.com to purchase his novel. And your let's do let's do a sound check. I don't think it sounds fantastic, to be honest with you. 
you know, there's another feed that we're trying to connect the audio. Yeah, uh, that, that audio is going to be that might feed back. Try. Right, so let me do this. Let me. Let me mute. Uh, should I mute? Uh, yeah. Why, why don't we? Why don't we mute? Why don't we mute the the other feed if that's possible and just keep look. It is, I think it is muted. Okay. Why are we getting bad feedback? It, it just doesn't sound good. I hear your voice. Yes. There's a lot of Okay. How are you, Professor Mike Steinell? We just had a great show. We had packed house, sold a lot of merch, CDs, and uh, I got somebody here. Chris McGuire is the guy that plays on church. Hi. You know, the microphone, I, I hate to be a pain in the neck. Tap on the microphone, if you don't mind. Yeah, the microphone, we're not getting the microphone. So. I knew something was wrong. We're getting. All uh, right. Tap on the mic. It's okay. How about now? I think that might be it. Yeah, I didn't have the scarlet uh, thing. Uh, that should be that's better now, isn't it? Much better. Okay, okay. let's pretend. Let's start from the top. All right. Okay. Joining this, us. This is Chris McGuire, one of the true geniuses of the saxophone. Hello. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you, Chris. I love turtle. I, I play it all the time. I love it. Thank you for turtle. How long have you known Professor Mike Steinell? Since we were uh, uh, Father Garamo's school for wayward boys. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, he was my professor back in the 80s, uh, back when I was in school. Uh, this guy's really funny. He's got a million jokes and a million, uh, a million voices, mostly Irish. <laughs> yeah. They all sound Irish. That's all. <laughs> yeah. You want to meet Rosanna Eckert? I, I, yes. Switch the headphones to Rosanna. You want to get the headphones to Rosanna? Rosanna Eckert. Hello. It's good to see you again, Rosanna. Hey. Oh, hi. Hi. How's it going? Much better now that you're here and your husband's here. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's back there. He's uh, behind the percussion still. He's wearing the do-rag. Ah. Uh, oh, I hold it. Okay. So you're going to be singing? Yeah, we just had a fun gig. Right. I was singing. Yeah, we're done. Like, we... we we uh, did the gig, and I we sang a couple of sets. Uh, and the, we're gonna try turtle. We're gonna, gonna try turtle. Oh, we are. We're gonna try turtle. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I'll be singing. I guess. Fantastic. Thank. This is the first time we've ever done this. So far, so 
so good. How are we going to do this? Well, I think that that other feed, which is from this from the wine bar, did you mute him? No. I don't see his audio. Oh, I see. He's to the right. I see. The, yeah. That other feed, he can unmute his. Uh, oh, you know who's coming here? You know who's coming? Who? Nadine. Nadine's Nadine. here. Nadine is here. Hello, Nadine. Turn it around. Hi, Nadine. Oh, hi. That's fantastic. That's hi. It's great to see you, Nadine. I hear about uh, she doesn't have the head. She she doesn't have the headphones, but she can. Oh, that's Nadine plays Jeopardy with uh, Professor Steiner. The professor, right? And kicks and, his... and kicks my ass in Jeopardy. Yes, it's good to meet you finally. There's my wife, Beverly. Hi, Beverly. A color. What? How is it pronounced? Color. She's a coloratura. That's a coloratura. right. Coloratura. Hello. Nice. Nice to see you. Hi, it's good to see you, too. It's a very exciting evening. Yeah. He did great. And here's Nadine. Hi, Nadine. Just a minute. Say hi, David. Hi, David. Who does she want to be the new host of Jeopardy? <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> who, do, who, who is she rooting for to host Jeopardy? Did you get it? Yes, yeah, sounds great. I think she wants me and Makala. Uh, I think she wants the gal. Okay, you sound great, by the way. This is great. All right. Live music. This well, is... you want to you want us to bring the band up? We got a lot yeah. of people yes. still milling around. That's okay. This was the book launch Later. at Steve's Wine Bar in Tent Denton, Texas. And yeah, we, we uh, I think we did some good business tonight. That's Sold good. some merch. Good. Yeah. Congratulations. Everybody you should know, go to SavingCharlieParker.com and buy the book. How was your show? It better now that you're here. And Nadine. Oh, that's nice. I'm so glad I got to meet Nadine. Yeah, she had a permanent today, so uh, she was ready to get out and uh, cut a rug. <laughs> <laughs> 99. For those who are just listening in. Nadine is 99. Wow. Are, are you allowed to say that? Uh, she doesn't mind. Oh, okay. I mean, she's proud of it. I mean, she's the, the most amazing looking 99 year old you'll ever find. I tell you, good genes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Nadine. Oh, I know. She's amazing. I think her positive outlook is, is part of it. Yeah. Her positive outlook. Yeah. She's such a positive person. Just amazing. Well, we're talking. We're we're talking to in Denton, Texas. This is so exciting. Yeah, Steve's Wine Bar. It's a great music town. It's like the. It's kind of like wannabe Austin at this point. A lot of clubs, a lot of restaurants. It's jumping. I tell you what, the square, which is really uh, well done. Uh, there's night and day. There's somebody there going. You want to try? Hey, Steve. Come, I'll, let me introduce Steve from Steve's Wine Bar. Hey, Steve, come over here. Lane, it, Lane is in England, and he said, 
I love the fact that I'm half a world away and experience this. If I had thought about this only about 10 years ago, I would have sectioned myself. I don't know what sectioning means, but I'd like to see it, Lane. Hi, who who are we talking to? This is the owner of Steve's Wine Bar. Hello, Steve. Hey, let's let's plug Steve's Wine Bar. Hey, there you go. How are you? Much better now that you're here. How if people are visiting Denton, how do they go to Steve's Wine Bar and who do you have coming up? You basically just come right downtown to the uh, square and we're about a block east of the uh, courthouse, which is just absolutely beautiful. Good. And Lots of restaurants right nearby, so it's a great little community of uh, hospitality down here. And being near the courthouse is convenient for Professor Mike Steinell because in about an hour, uh, that's where you'll be sleeping tonight, I would assume. Along with about 100 other people. (laughs) (laughs) Should we try Turtle? I'm going to bring the band up. Yes, please introduce the band. Let's do this. Yes. Give us us two minutes to kind of get in place. Okay. You're listening to a live feed from Steve's Wine Bar in Denton, Texas, where the great, the brilliant Professor Mike. Don't, don't get us pumped up yet. We're, we're not we're not ready to go. That's OK. Professor okay. Mike Steinel. Go to. Let's Mike. try it. We're going to try a test of uh, using the sound through the other through Steve's thing. That's why you can hear the band. OK, great. Let's uh, let's do, we're gonna do mic checks. Take your time. You want to switch it? It's the first time we've done this, so take your time, relax. I don't hear you. T- well, I don't think we hear. And can you play something besides turtle just to test the the sound? This is like the early days of television. I feel like it's, you know, I know. it's like 1952 and I'm Dave Garraway uh, about to meet the same end as this he is did. Going through here. I should I should be hearing you through this. Not. This may not work, David. I'm sorry to say. Well, what <laughs> this is my <laughs> this is the David Feldman show. Why should it work? This is this is even better if it doesn't work. Now, do you do you have Steve's feed muted on I, your end? I uh, I don't have it muted. But just hearing Rosanna do it, it's good enough just to hear her. Yeah. I mean, I do have. I could, you could, can you guys lip sync and I'll play the, the record? Why don't you, why don't you play it? And then when, then we can, we'll just move around like we're playing it. Well, I, I don't, I, I, this is fun. This is, let's, let's see if we can get it right. Well, because you sound good. But it would be, we could do it with one mic. It may not sound that good, but. Well, I don't know. Why? Why did the other? Uh, uh, da, 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 da. One, two, two. Am I coming through there? Are you muted? 
They're not muted. You should be hearing us, but you should be hearing us, but you're not. Sorry, no, I, I hear you. I hear you, Professor. Yeah, we're, you. see, I'm running through my little laptop. This mean here, but this other screen is is uh, the fancy stuff he has for the club. All right. Hey, play the groove. Let's see. We're going to play a little of the groove. One, two, three, four. Master. Well, now we're not here. Can you hear that? Yeah. We're going to play a very shortened version, okay?
There was, David. Did that sound worth the dang? You know, it sounded fantastic. Even with the, uh, thank you. You are amazing. That is. No, these people are amazing. You're, all these you're people all, behind and me. I'm, I'm reading the comments in the chat room on YouTube and in Zoom. And it's, it, this is so great. I want to do this all the time. We have to figure <laughs> out how to do this all. It, it just it is fantastic. What I found really interesting, it's even though there was something with the mix that we have to, it just plowed through the technical difficulties. Thank you. Well, that's good to know. That's yeah. good to know. You guys are amazing. I'm going to, I'm headed to Kansas tomorrow, man. It's too late. They already voted. They, they closed it up. Yeah, they closed. No, they <laughs> Kansas voted. Kansas is closed Kansas. for business. But, no, uh, man. But you guys, that is just the best music ever. It's oh, the best. Nice, man. There's nothing better than Turtle. It just sounds so <laughs> great. It is the best. It is the All best. Right. I need to get your uh, your land address so I can send you a CD. Also, so I can start stalking you, <laughs> putting uh, like dead snakes in your mailbox, uh, not live snakes, you know, like a live snake. That would be kind of that's a bad thing. But it's just a dead snake, you know, just a little hint. <laughs> you guys, you guys are the be it's the best music ever. Uh, There's nothing better than that sound. It really is the best, the best. I, I, I got great. I got great backup people there yeah hey, listen up. we're gonna have to jump because i gotta do some book signing there you go thank you right. i love you thank you everybody that is just the best the best we love you too david thank you okay thank you i'll see you next week i hope yes i yes uh all right everybody should go to steve's wine bar if you live in the dallas fort worth area go to steve's wine bar in denton texas and gotcha, man. they have great music there, right? Seven nights a week? Yeah. Uh, four nights a week, usually Wednesday through Saturday. Monday is, this is, he opened up the club just for us tonight. So we could do that on Monday so we could broadcast Turtle. <laughs> so, so much for that. Thank you, Steve. Hey, love you, man. Love you too. Great. Thank okay. See you. Bye. Fantastic. Fantastic. Somebody said, I think it was on YouTube, with the sound being a little off, it's kind of punk. Uh, we didn't, you know, we had te we're learning how to do this on Zoom, and I think there was like a slight delay because it was two different feeds. But you know, if the music's it's interesting, if the music is that great, it can uh, push through some of the technical difficulties. Well, wow, nothing better than that kind of music coming from uh, Professor Mike Steinel. Let's go back to Mexico where Rodrigo is standing by. And then Benji will go to Florida and uh, Benji, and then we'll call it an evening. Yes, Rodrigo. Yes. Sorry. This computer is a little slow. Um, if you ask any neoliberal or really any liberal who isn't at least socialist curious, they will tell you that it's impossible for any one company to jack up prices just because it can, because someone else will undercut this company and grow at their expense. This is how the free market is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. And everyone who defends capitalism will tell you that they believe in the free market, despite how often 
companies get to write their own legislation through their lobbyists. If you start asking about cartels where all the companies silently agree to raise prices because they can and they know the U.S. government is too scared of their power to decide elections to impose price controls as they did back in the 1970s, or if you start using the word monopsony, which is a fancy word for a reverse monopoly, where there is only one buyer and you can't create anything without a permission, they will lose their minds. They will tell you that it's just impossible. Sorry. He, I think you're being, are you being heckled by somebody? But what, why can't we hear that? It's real. All right. If you start asking about, sorry, no. Uh, Hang on. They will lose their minds. They will tell you that it's just impossible for this to happen because that's how the free market works. So the situation where all the big oil companies jacked up the price of gas on the, the thinly paled excuse that, quote, putting bad, end quote, and the price of gas slowly came down over months in a move completely unrelated to anything Putin did or didn't do, just didn't happen. If you ask economists or any defender of capitalism why prices have gone up more than twice the rate of salary increases and why there was no inflation for the past two years, and why do inflationary spirals happen or not independently of what economists predict, honest ones like Paul Krugman will admit they don't know why, and the rest will compare notes while pretending they still know more than you. But I want to make sure you understand this because it's very important. If you dig a little under everything capitalists pretend to believe, you will find lack of logic, a lack of consistency, or just lies. But the lie that rich companies don't collaborate to jack up prices under anything pretending to be an actual reason is one of the basic tenets of why capitalism works. I cannot stress this enough. You cannot believe in the free market if you accept that all the companies making toilet paper or selling gas or food can just keep jacking up the prices up to what their analysts tell them the market will bear without riots starting. So anyone who tells you they believe in the free market has to defend it without accepting reality. They will also tell you that price controls are un-American. In other words, we may not have an outwardly totalitarian big brother telling you not to believe the evidence of your lying eyes, but we have a system where the government and the media keep telling you day after day that the adults in the room have got discovered while they take more money than they can ever spend. And finally, if you read the BBC, you've heard, and I kid you not, that the Saporizhia nuclear facility in Ukraine, which the Russians have held since March, is getting shelled again, and it's Russia's fault. Either the Russians are attacking themselves, or the Ukrainians are attacking a nuclear facility controlled by Russia. But either way, it's Russia's fault. But also, to quote two different articles from the BBC with the same line, quote, the BBC was unable to verify the reported damage at the nuclear plant, end quote. If you're wondering how to spot misinformation, Read or watch Deutsche sources again. Do they mention that four of the six reactors have been offline since March? Thank you. Thank you, Rodrigo. Always great to hear from you. Well, 
uh, we were down in Mexico. Now let's go to another country, Florida. And Benji. Hello, Benji. Hey, bro. What it be? <laughs> How are you? Good, man. I'm doing good, man. Just uh, enjoying married life, bro. Oh, good. Yeah, man. My wife, uh, she actually opened the car door for me today. Really? Yeah. I'd have been, you know, considered more of a lovely gesture if we weren't doing 80 miles an hour down the freeway. <laughs> but, you know, take what I can get. You know? uh-huh. I hear you. My wife told me to, uh, now I need to give our daughter a talk on drugs. Oh, okay. I told her I would, but, you know, ain't no telling what I'll say if I'm on drugs, you know. <laughs> hey, you know. No, I joke a lot about my marriage, man, but I love my wife, man. I, yeah. I feel for all the single folks out there in this environment, man. You know, yeah. guys and girls, they, they need to be more cautious than ever with this war on women's rights, man. It's yeah. I remember when I was young and I thought I got my girlfriend pregnant, man. That's the moment everything changed for me. You know, yeah. My name, address, phone number. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm not that guy, man. Although when I was younger, man, I did play the airplane game after sex, you know. What's That's the air- when I just that's when I just take the fuck off. No. <laughs> no. Like I was Batman or something, you know. Uh-huh. No. Speaking of Batman, David, uh, you know why Batman only covers up part of his face? Why is that? So cops can tell he's white. Ah. <laughs> I mean, he already catches a lot of flag for him. He's wearing tights, man. He doesn't need to get his ass kicked or shot on the side yeah. of the road, too. Oh, I see. Good. No. Good. Now, my advice for the single guys out there, man, is find you a nice Amish girl. You know, it's... It's great. You don't have to call them the next day. <laughs> if you didn't get engaged, tell them they got 26 uncles willing to build you a house for free, too. It's just, <laughs> and these Amish women, man, they traditionally, you know, love to serve their husbands. You know, so it's their she shed is the kitchen. I mean, <laughs> these women can cook, sew, grow vegetables, mend fences, even darn socks, whatever the hell that means. You know? <laughs> I mean, if you're with an Amish woman when the apocalypse happens, you're much better off. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Hey, before I go, uh, I do got one good uh, legitimate story from Florida this week. Oh, good. Uh, a Florida man was arrested this week after stealing a big rig containing 75,000 cans of Campbell's soup. Prosecutors vowed to put him in prison for mm-mm good. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm, hey, I'm signing off from Swampfoot Studios tonight, brother, with a heavy heart, man. I love you, Newton John, dying, man. I'm still dealing with it, man. Yep. So, but hey, you have a good night, brother. I'll see you at office hours Friday night. I love you. Thank you, buddy. Love you Very too, brother. Funny. Yeah, Olivia Newton John. I was flying to do Conan, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. I can't remember. And I sit down, and right next to me in first class, and I never fly first class, but it was for it was Olivia Newton John and the most beautiful woman. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And I just look at her and she gives me this pained look like, please don't start with me. <laughs> and I and I did. And then during takeoff, when she realized that I was going to stop drooling, uh, she struck up a conversation with me and it she was just the greatest person <laughs> that I ever spent five hours with, with, uh, we, uh, I was married at the time and, uh, I, I fell asleep and she fell asleep and we were awakened with orange juice and she turned, <laughs> turned to me and said, 
good morning. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm waking up next <laughs> to Olivia Newton-John. This is, this is, I feel so, and uh, it was just, uh, yeah, an angel. She's an angel. That's uh, super cool. Yeah. I remember, uh, well, I, 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 anyway, it, it was, uh, yeah, yeah. I have a funny story about my mother, like calling. I don't want to get into it right now. Am I? But uh, if you're, yeah, Olivia Newton-John. Um, yeah. Ah, oh, boy. Well, that is our show, Benji. Should I say goodnight? Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, I actually have notes about that. I, I wrote down my memories of that flight because I didn't. I didn't want to forget it. Um, yeah. Listen to uh, listen to her sing. Listen to her music. Uh, uh, I'm anyway. Ah. Uh, Wrapping it up. I want to thank our guests for tonight. They are Pascal Robert, Jason Miles. Uh, didn't show up, but it was great talking with Pascal Robert from the This Is Revolution podcast. Please subscribe to that. Grace Jackson, subscribe to Literary Hangover. Great job, Grace. John Ross, follow him on Twitter at... Fun with friction. He's got a great Twitter feed. It's really funny. By the way, Jose Arroyo is doing the, the funniest strip that he's putting up on Twitter about life with COVID. And he's anthropomorphized COVID. It's the best. It's the best. Jose Arroyo is the best. And he's got this comic strip on Twitter. Follow Jose, and retweet it. It's so great. Dr. Harriet Fraud, listen to Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. Thank you to Professor Adnan Hussein, the Mudgeless Podcast, and of course, they've got Noam Chomsky on Guerrilla History. So listen to Henry Huckamaki and Professor Adnan Hussein. Talk to Noam Chomsky on Guerrilla History. The great Peter B. Collins. Go to peterbcollins.com. Professor Marianne Cummings is out of town. And thank you to Professor Mike Steinel. Go to mikesteinel.com. Buy all his stuff. And right now, go to his other website, savingcharlieparker.com. And uh, buy savingcharlieparker.com. It gets the Feldman guarantee. If you don't like the book, I will reimburse you. Thank you to this community for coming through for a member of our community. We, uh, we were able to raise uh, all the money that uh, we, we wanted to, and there isn't that much good news in the world. So when we can make good news, uh, it's even better. We can make good news. We can. Uh, there's good news to be made 
out there. I was going to thank the moderators, the mods, but I can't find their names. Let me just see here. Here, let me try this. Well, my one sheet is a lot of people have taken the week off and they're going to be taking off next week. And I don't have the mods, the names of the mods. It's disappeared. This show is produced by Hannah Feldman, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, Professor Jonathan Bick, Grace Jackson, The Invisible Ninja, Joe in Norway, and nothing gets done here without Dan Frankenberger. I thought we were going to do a Stump the Hump, but that's not going to happen today. We got a little screwed up. Uh, Subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. Share it. Share it. That's the best way for words to... uh, Words? Word of mouth. The only word of mouth is... I'm, I'm ready to say goodnight. Word of mouth is the best way to get the word out on this amazing show. And it is an an amazing show. We have a YouTube channel, so please subscribe to that and share, share this with your friends. That's the best way to help the show. All right. I'm going to play the, I'm going to play Turtle, the recorded version of Turtle. Thank you once again, Nadine and Professor Mike Steinel. I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak.